Chapter 24 Spire Albion, Habble Landing Raoul found the view from atop the foremost of the two ship trees to be less exciting than he had assumed it would be. Oh, he could see over the ship itself well enough, though based upon his understanding of the vessel's name, as if it needed one, he felt that its master should have been thanking cats for the obvious inspiration at the very least. Perhaps there was an arrangement to be reached here. Certainly, if they named something after cats, even the dimmest of humans must understand that there was recompense to be discussed. The vessel itself had proved to be interesting. He had seen Little Mouse safely ensconced in a small room with a cup of hot drink, which tasted terrible, but which she insisted upon having frequently in any case. After that, he had gone exploring. There were many hallways and rooms upon Predator, as well as a number of things that needed chasing and catching. Probably not eating, though, unless he was truly hungry. Raoul felt sure that Bridget's fragile feelings would be crushed if he denied her the pleasure of sharing her meat with him. There was certainly a place for a cat on a construct such as this, provided he didn't mind the company. Once he had inspected the vessel, he had promptly climbed the ship tree. But the only things of interest to be seen from there were the humans moving about the ship, and honestly, it would be a long and dull day indeed before they proved more than momentarily interesting. A smaller ship, possibly also bearing a name inspired by his people, came alongside Predator. A human of significantly less clumsiness than most came aboard, a small male, and despite its diminutive stature, it moved with a warrior's confidence and wore a very large and fine hat. Such hats often signified humans who considered themselves important, which was adorable for the first few moments and trying ever after. The visitor had, however, entered the ship as if waiting to be permitted on another's territory, which was the proper way to do things. Raoul had begun to approve of the human, Grimm, who had thus far acted with less than utter incompetence in every aspect of his life. If Grimm was able to command such respect even from humans with very large hats, he might make suitable help, and even humans were wise enough to realize that good help was the most elusive of quarries. Raoul followed the conversation Grimm had with the visitor. It seemed largely to be concerned with inexplicable human madness, though he understood the anger and raised voices that signified what might have been a bloodletting. As so often happened with the fickle beasts, it did not develop into a proper battle, and the visitor left in apparent defeat. Shortly after that, there was some activity between the tall second-in-command and a human operating several long levers with coloured cloth on the ends. They were apparently signals of some kind, because the humans peered down at something below them for a time after their flags waggled. What they saw seemed to satisfy them. The ship, which had been motionless, finally descended toward a wooden platform that, apart from minor details, looked almost precisely like the one they had just left. Raoul found that disappointing. It seemed a great deal of trouble for him to spend half a lifetime bored up a ship tree to gain very little in the way of an interesting change of environment. But such things were to be expected when dealing with humans.'
He would remain patient until they fumbled past such foolishness. Was he not, after all, a cat? He descended the ship tree. It was rather less enjoyable than the climb had been. It was an activity better suited to humans and their spidery fingers. He would have to see to it that there was a human prepared to climb up and carry him down with proper dignity next time. Perhaps it would be an opportunity to test the capability of human Benedict. Clearly, he was unworthy to be the mate of Little Mouse, but perhaps with the right guidance, some kind of adequacy could be nurtured. Raoul returned to the little room where Little Mouse and her companions were drinking their stinking water and leapt up to grip the handle upon its door, hanging from it long enough to make it come open. Then he prowled in and shut the door again with a press of his shoulders. The human, Gwendolen, blinked at him several times and then said, When on earth did he leave? How did he leave? Little Mouse nodded at him and said to human Gwendolen, He is a cat, Miss Lancaster. Asking such questions is an exercise in futility. Raoul leapt up onto Little Mouse's lap and nuzzled her cheek affectionately. He liked Little Mouse. She was far less stupid than most humans. The ship is landing, he told her. We should go see what this new Habble looks like at once. He waited for Little Mouse to repeat what he had said to the other humans. Honestly, he sometimes felt that humans simply had to be deliberately obtuse. What was so difficult about understanding civilized and excellently enunciated speech? His father had often opined that, in fact, humans really were exactly as foolish and helpless as they seemed, or that life was simpler if one assumed it to be true at any rate. But Raoul was not yet sure. A moment later, an acutely unpleasant sound of metal striking metal sliced across the deck. It was one of those human noises that had been, he felt sure, created for no purpose whatsoever but to annoy cats. The sound did seem to galvanize the humans, though. Little Mouse and her companions rose and began fussing about, the way humans often did. The humans who operated the ship did the same, and after a pointless delay for the humans to collect all their toys and keepsakes, he was finally able to take his rightful place in Little Mouse's arms and herd them all in the proper direction. They descended from the ship onto a wooden platform that seemed to simply hang in open air from the side of the spire. He had to give humans credit where it was due. They did seem to have a knack for building interesting places for cats to explore. They walked over the creaking wooden planks, their steps echoing. Little Mouse he said. If the human platform fails, will we not fall to the surface? He could hear her heart speed up, and her hands become somewhat clammy against his fur. Nonsense! I'm certain it will do no such thing. But she began to walk slightly faster. Little Mouse and her companions joined a rather large herd of humans who were standing around doing nothing interesting or profitable. They stayed there interminably, only occasionally taking a step forward. Honestly, 
Was it any wonder their clan chief had finally begged Raoul's father for the guidance and support of the silent pause? At last they funneled through a relatively tiny opening in the wall of the spire, along with a column of similarly placid humanity, and took their turn wasting even more time by talking to armed humans who were not even so important as to have large hats. And only after all of that indecipherable human ritual was complete to their satisfaction did they enter Habel Landing. Raoul reminded himself that cats were eternally patient and that he would not simply explode if he did not fling himself from Little Mouse's arms and go exploring. Which was not to say that he could not do so if he wished, because cats were also their own masters. He decided that his patience was practically legendary, which was fortunate for Little Mouse, or Raoul would already have taken care of this problem or mystery or whatever it was, while she was still milling about in the line to talk to the armed humans at the entrance to Habel Landing, thus robbing her of the glory of success. Though, now that he thought about it, he was the most important member of the party. Any glory gained was rightfully his in any case. He decided to tolerate the situation for the present, but if the humans became unmanageable, he might have to take steps, and who could blame him? Not even his father would assert that it was practical to manage five humans. It was a well-known fact that humans became more addled than usual when running in herds. Habel Landing was fascinating. For one thing, the ceiling was only half the height of the other Habels he'd seen. It was still far above even Little Mouse's head, but the more enclosed space reminded him of the ducts and ventilation tunnels that were traditionally the territory of his people. And it was thick with humanity. Habel Morning was considered to be a well-populated Habel, but Habel Landing absolutely teemed with people by comparison. Hundreds and hundreds of them were coming and going through the hole in the spire wall. Dozens of humans who were selling trinkets and keepsakes, all of which Little Mouse would say were absolute necessities for a human were lined up along the walls in neatly arranged stalls. And this wasn't even the market area. Voices filled the air, so many of them that it was impossible to pick out a specific conversation. Taken as a whole, the voices created a low murmur that sounded a bit like the sighing of air through a junction point in the vents. Scents were thick, too. Foul smells that always came with humanity. Savory smells of various foods. And absolutely fascinating scents he could not identify. Goodness, human Gwendolyn was saying. Have you ever seen so many people coming and going? It would be a lovely setting for slipping an enemy agent into the spire. Human Benedict agreed. Human Folly was apparently frightened of something though she was in no danger that Raoul could see. Her heart beat very quickly, and she stank of nerves strung tight. She kept her eyes on the floor and stayed within inches of the senior male of the group, Master Ferris. The older man's eyes were almost closed, as if he wanted an observer to think he was nearly sleeping. But Raoul could see them flicking around in an almost feline fashion, taking in the sights just as he was. Master Ferris? Human Gwendolen asked. Where should we go, sir? Hmm? Ferris said. What's that? Lodging, perhaps? 
Little Mouse suggested. Ah, excellent, yes. He glanced back at Human Benedict. Young man, do you know of a decent inn? I believe there are a great many of them in the Habble, but I stayed at the guardhouse while I was here, Human Benedict said in an apologetic tone. I do know that we should be able to hire a runner who can assist us. Human Gwendolyn frowned. Should we not stay there as well? This is an official inquisition for the Spyrarch, after all. We can't make it official, and we can't stay at the guardhouse, Little Mouse said. If there is a traitor amongst the guard, and we march in and announce our intentions, we might as well blow trumpets everywhere we go. Quite right, Master Ferris said. Quite right. A runner, then? Human Gwendolyn seemed to take that as a command. She nodded and strode off through the crowd. Raoul waited with infinite patience. There were many things to see and smell. One human vendor had a great many little creatures in little cages. Some of them had wings, and some scales, and some fur. Raoul managed to sort out scents to their owners and studied them thoughtfully. Then a gentle stir and shift in the direction of the ventilated air announced the arrival of afternoon as the sun began to warm the other side of the spire and brought with it a deliriously savoury scent of cooking meat. Raoul whipped his head to one side to stare in the direction from which the scent came and noted as he did that human Benedict had wit enough to smell it too and was showing exactly the same interest. The human's stomach made growling, grumbling sounds. Human Gwendolyn returned shortly, in the company of a rather scrawny little human kit. The little human's hair was a mess, its face was dirty, its clothing ragged, and Raoul, who found humans drearily like one another most of the time, could not tell whether the apparent runner was male or female. This is Grady, human Gwendolyn announced. He has graciously consented to guide us to an inn. Aye, aye, said the little human. Just come with me, ladies and gents, and we'll get you squared away with a clean bed and a hot meal. Good, good, said the oldest human. Proceed. Yes, sir, said the little human. Right this way. They followed the little human from the gallery that led to the shipyard and into a side tunnel, where he produced a medium-sized lumen crystal and made everyone utterly blind to anything happening more than a few paces away. Humans were inconsiderate that way. Raoul could see perfectly well after all. It was hardly his fault if humans couldn't tell the difference between mere dimness and true darkness. Which was ironic, because they were, as a whole, among the dimmest creatures he knew. They walked a short way through the side tunnel and then exited into a long, narrow street where the human buildings crowded in close on every side and thrust up from the floor all the way to the ceiling in many cases. But the building heights were uneven and jagged overall, like so many broken teeth. The street was only dimly lit, and there were considerably fewer humans walking along it than they had seen near the shipyard. Raoul found that inconsistent. The presence of danger brushed along his fur as the little human led Little Mouse and her companions down the street, and Raoul found himself 
gathering and releasing his muscles. He could not pinpoint any particular threat, and yet... Little Mouse, wise enough to look to a cat for guidance, noticed Raoul's reaction almost immediately. Her own posture became tenser, her eyes flicking around, searching for any threat just as Raoul did. Suddenly, Raoul heard soft footfalls behind them, and he turned his ears quickly to listen in that direction. Little Mouse, he said quietly, we are being hunted behind us. She looked down at him but did not swivel her head to look over her shoulder toward their pursuers. Excellent. Such a gesture would have alerted the hunters to the fact that their prey had sensed them. Little Mouse was so clever, for a human, of course. Benedict, Little Mouse said quietly, Raoul thinks someone is following us. Human Benedict frowned at her but did not ask questions. Instead, Raoul saw his nostrils flare and he began to use his eyes, looking around him, though he did not turn his head. "'Damn!' human Benedict said a moment later. He took a step forward, drawing even with Master Ferris, and tapped human Gwendolyn on the shoulder. She turned to look up at him, but didn't stop walking. Human Benedict leaned down to speak quietly to her. "'Cuz, I'm afraid we've been marked.' Human Gwendolyn frowned. Marked? She looked down at herself. Did someone put something on my dress? Human Benedict let out a breath through his teeth. Marked, cuz, as prey. We're being paced and followed. By whom? Footpads, most likely, Human Benedict replied. There are several gangs that operate in Habble Landing. Human Gwendolyn narrowed her eyes. I see. And which person has marked us specifically? To your left, Human Benedict said, about ten feet behind us, dark brown coat, black hair, about twenty. He's keeping track of us by watching our reflections in windows as we pass them. And there's another one ahead of us, on the right, in that slouchy hat. I see, she replied. What is the usual course of action for dealing with such things? Avoid them. We've already failed at that, Human Gwendolyn said, her tone irritated. What else? Human Benedict sounded a bit flustered. Cuz, how should I know? I've never been marked by footpads before. She considered that and nodded. I see. Then, without hesitating for more than the time it took to take a step, Human Gwendolyn turned, raised her gauntlet, and discharged it. An almost invisible bolt of force and heat howled through the air and slammed into the stone wall of a building's front side not two feet from the head of the footpad pacing them from behind. The light made Raoul duck his head to shield his eyes, and the force of the blast threw chips of stone from the wall, sending them skittering around the street. The footpad, and perhaps a dozen other humans who happened to be nearby, let out a shriek and flinched back, staring at the smoking, scorched gouge in the stone. He lost his balance and fell to the ground and onto his rear. The entire street, in fact, froze in its tracks, everyone staring at little human Gwendolyn. She stepped toward the footpad, 
her gauntlets crystal still glowing in her palm, and raised her voice to a pitch and volume that would carry it to the entire street. She pointed the forefinger of her right hand at the stunned footpad and said, her voice hard, "You." The man just stared at her. "Run home," human Gwendolen said. "Do it now, and inform your masters that we are not prey." Her words echoed around the stone building fronts for a few seconds. Then the footpad's mouth twitched a couple of times. He gave a jerking, frantic nod, scrambled to his feet, and dashed away down the street and out of sight. Raoul turned his eyes back to human Gwendolen, impressed. That was precisely how one should deal with a would-be predator. Human Gwendolen's instincts and response had been practically non-incompetent. Maker of the path, human Benedict swore beneath his breath. Cause you just discharged a gauntlet on a crowded street, and stopped us from being attacked by thugs. Human Gwendolen replied, "No one was hurt. Honestly, cause we have no time for this sort of nonsense." She took a step forward and knelt down to stare in the eye the little human who had led them there. Grady, she said in a sweet tone, "Why did you bring us here to be attacked?" I didn't," the little human said, his face bloodless. "I wouldn't. I won't, Miss. You just happened to bring us down a crowded chute full of men seeking targets to mug. Is that what you want me to believe?" The little human swallowed. Then he said, "I know another inn, Miss, right by the gallery out in the open. I could take you there if it pleases you." "Fool me once, shame on you," Gwendolen said. "Fool me twice." And I may feel inclined to blast you purely on principle. The little human stared at her, agog. "Boo!" Gwendolen shouted and stamped her foot. Grady turned and sprinted off. "Are you certain you don't want to blast the ground at his feet as he runs away?" Benedict asked, his voice dry. "Don't be tiresome, Benny," Gwendolen replied. If we can't trust one runner, we can't trust any of them. There's no guarantee that the next time it might not be Auroran agents instead of simple thieves waiting for us. Present me with options. Benedict frowned for a moment and then shrugged. There's one place we can go where I feel certain we can at least get honest guidance, if nothing else. Excellent, Gwendolen said. Let us proceed. This way, Benedict said. And they started walking again. After a moment or two, human Benedict turned to look directly at Raoul. "Thank you," he said. Raoul yawned, feeling rather pleased with himself for having saved his humans from footpads, and said, "It is what I do." Chapter Twenty-Five, Monastery of the Way, Habble Landing. Bridget walked carefully through the cramped passages of Habble Landing, trying to pay attention to any other sources of potential danger. But she felt as if she'd been sent to the store, without anyone telling her what she was supposed to buy. What would danger look like? She supposed that if it was overt and obvious, just anyone could see it coming, 
but she had no idea of what an ambush might resemble before it actually began to happen. She saw no one in a great black cape or twirling a waxed moustache, which all the villains in the theatre seemed to have. Though she supposed true villains would rarely do one the courtesy of identifying themselves and declaring their intentions in a forthright manner, it was one of the things that made them villains, after all. She kept one eye on Raoul constantly. She would never admit it to the little bully aloud, but he probably had a much better idea than she of what might prove a threat. He was already even more insufferably pleased with himself than usual today, having warned them of the footpads. If she admitted it to him, he would never let her forget it. Raoul, for his part, looked and sniffed and flicked his ears this way and that, taking in all the sights and sounds of the busy, even maniacally industrious Havel. The crowded labyrinth of vendor stalls and counters near the airship docks had been only a foretaste of the Habble proper. There were more shops in operation in one quadrant of landing than in the entirety of Habble morning, and they had divided their vertical space in half, so that there was a whole second level above them, presumably filled with even more enterprise. Entire lengths of cramped street were dedicated to specific crafts and businesses. There was a street of tinkers and smiths, the air hot and filled with the sound of metal on metal. There was an entire street of papermakers, the smell of their labours so appalling that Raoul buried his nose beneath Bridget's arm until they were passed. There was a street of vatteries next to the street of tanners, next to the dye-makers, and absolutely everyone seemed to be in a great hurry, passing their slower-stepping group with grumbles and dire glares. The people were just as dazzling in variety. She'd always assumed that Habble Morning was the most cosmopolitan Habble of the Spire, the absolute hub of Albion culture. But though visitors weren't precisely unheard of there, there was simply no comparison to be made. In the space of ten minutes, she spotted half a dozen different groups of foreigners moving through the streets of landing. She saw a group of ruddy-cheeked Olympians in their traditional green and gold garb, most of them wearing the device of their home spire's laurel wreath upon their breasts or pendants or rings. Not five steps later, a pair of women with the golden-brown skin marking them as Nephesians strolled by wearing long, sweeping skirts in half a dozen fine, pattern-slashed layers of different colours. They were followed by a tall, warrior-born man with the nearly black skin and ice-blue eyes of an Atlantean, wearing an airship captain's coat of indigo, and not long after that she spotted a crew of rather small, lean, worn-looking men and women, whose faces were marked with the fine, swirling ritual scars of pikers. "'Is this your first time out of Habble Morning, Miss Tarquin?' Benedict asked her. Bridget jerked her eyes away from the pikers rather guiltily. "'Is it so obvious?' "'Totally understandable,' he said. "'After all,' Something like seventy percent of the residents of Spire Albion never leave their home habbles at all. I should think it would reduce one's chances of being preyed upon by footpads, she observed. Benedict grinned. 
Oh, of course. Crews like that never pick on anyone from their home happle. Too easily identified to the authorities, and their leaders would never allow it. Leaders? Bridget asked. They aren't just, like, packs of marauding vent rats. Naturally not, Benedict said. Far too messy and chaotic, and therefore easily stopped. Everything they do has to be coordinated and carefully organized. Organized robbery, among other things, yes, Benedict said. Smuggling, the sale of dangerous intoxicants, trafficking in weapons, in medicines, in flesh. His eyes darkened slightly. All controlled and precisely applied by the guilds. Bridget blinked. The guilds, like the Vatterists' guild. I doubt it's much like the Vatterists' guild in Habble Morning, Benedict replied. All of the guilds are in competition here, and most of them engage in one kind of shady activity or another. Some are worse than others, but as a rule, if someone gets his head broken in Habble Landing. It was because one of the guilds decided it needed to be done. It would seem to be a great deal of trouble to manage a group of men who would do such things, Bridget noted. Indeed, it is. Wouldn't it be simpler for them to just do honest work? Benedict showed his teeth. Probably, but there will always be those who seem to think that simply taking what they need through strength is easier and more enjoyable than working to create it. Certainly, it leaves them more leisure time. I don't understand," Bridget said. "Why would guilds that behave this way be permitted to exist? Any number of reasons," Benedict said. "If there is a law, someone will work to break it. That's human nature. The guilds have a certain code of conduct to which they adhere that makes them a somewhat less appalling proposition than independent criminal activity. They are the devil we know." He pursed his lips. And they are extremely powerful. Not more powerful than the guard, surely. More focused than the guard, Benedict said. Much harder to find than the guard. And of course, they aren't burdened by the restrictions of spire law. Atop that, they also control a number of legitimate businesses, and through their influence, can significantly alter Habel politics. They command a combination of fear, respect, money, and professional craft that makes conflict with them a difficult and dangerous proposition. Bridget frowned, thinking about that. Then, pardon me if my understanding falls short, but did not Gwendolen just issue a rather blatant public command to these powerful and dangerous men? Yes, Benedict said placidly. Yes, she did. Oh dear, Bridget said. That seems less than ideal. Benedict shrugged, his feline eyes constantly sweeping the streets as they walked. Perhaps, perhaps they'll respect it as a show of strength. Men like that tend to refrain from unprofitable enterprises, such as preying upon victims who can fight back. And the Lancasters can certainly do that. 
They turned down a final cramped street, and as they did, Bridget could actually see the tension go out of Benedict's lean frame, and his face relaxed into a smile. What just happened? Bridget asked. This is safe territory. We're close now, Benedict said. The guilds won't operate in this portion of the Habble. Why not? They've been taught that it is more trouble than it's worth, Benedict said. They passed through a last bit of street crammed with buildings, and suddenly emerged from the warren into the open space of a standard height Habble ceiling stretching out fifty feet overhead. The rest of the Habble's buildings simply ended. The twin levels, connected by a heavy deck and several large wooden stairways, as if their designers had simply forgotten to carry the conversion of the original space beyond the point they had just passed. Before them stood a solid wall of masonry, ten feet high, set with a single heavy gate of bronze-bound wooden beams. In front of the gate sat a man in a rather odd-looking saffron robe. The material loose-fitting around the upper arms, but bound in by wraps on his forearms. His pale head was shaved entirely bald, and he sat with his eyes closed, his legs crossed, and his palms resting lightly on his knees. A simple rod of copper-clad metal, about three feet long, rested on the floor beside his right hand. Oh, Bridget said, is that a monk of the way? Raoul stirred in her arms and looked up at the man. The cat's ears focused forward and his tail twitching with interest. Oh, I can't do this, Master Ferris said. Sir Benedict, would you mind? Of course, sir, Benedict said. He raised his voice a little and said, "This is Brother Vincent. He has gate duty because his handwriting is terrible." Brother Vincent smiled without opening his eyes. Sir Benedict, have you come to teach or to learn? Shall we find out together, brother? Benedict asked. Brother Vincent smiled and did not open his eyes. Benedict promptly unbuckled his sword belt and stripped off his gauntlet. He held them out to Bridget and asked, "Do you mind?" She blinked and then assured him. Not at all. It took a bit of juggling to hold Benedict's weapons and Raoul at the same time, but she managed. Thank you, Miss Benedict said. Then he turned and began stalking toward Brother Vincent on cat-quiet feet. What is happening here precisely? Gwendolen asked Master Ferris. Tradition, Ferris replied, watching Benedict with bright eyes. She frowned, meaning what precisely? Isn't it traditional for a Lancaster to know something about tradition? Master Ferris asked acerbically. Folly gave a little curtsy to no one in particular, and then told her jar of crystals. The monks take their guardianship of the temple very seriously. They won't allow anyone to enter casually. One must prove to the monks that his desire to enter is sincere. Gwendolen lifted one delicate eyebrow, and how does one? Silent as darkness itself, Benedict sprang upon Brother Vincent. Oh, Gwendolen said, "I see." Bridget had never seen the warrior born move so quickly. 
but somehow the monk was already on his feet, and the two men met in a flurry of blows and counterblows that made Bridget's heart skip several beats. She could barely see what they were doing; they moved so quickly, and it was laughable to think that she might be able to anticipate what might happen next. By comparison, her own knowledge of unarmed fighting was, she could see now, a pebble beside a spire. And then something terribly complex and lightning quick happened, and Benedict wound up with his face pressed against the spire stone floor, while Brother Vincent held one of the warrior-born's arms straight out and up behind him at what seemed an extremely uncomfortable angle. The monk stood over him with one foot braced against his back until Benedict grimaced and slapped the floor twice. Brother Vincent obligingly released his arm. And the younger man lay quietly for a moment before gathering himself and rising to his feet. He rolled his shoulder several times, wincing. What was that? It would seem, Brother Vincent said, that you have come to learn, young knight. I was fairly sure of that five minutes ago. You never showed me that combination, didn't I? Brother Vincent asked, smiling. Goodness, such an oversight. But I'm sure I haven't forgotten to show you anything else. I'm sure you didn't forget, brother," Benedict replied, his tone wry. "I think you just want me to come visit more often." Brother Vincent smiled and clasped Benedict's shoulder with one hand for a moment. It took time to soften your skull enough for ideas to slip in, but you proved a good student eventually. It is good to see you, son. Benedict smiled, and the two exchanged a bow. Brother, we've come to the temple for help. Vincent's dark eyes became troubled. You know that we do not involve ourselves in politics, Sir Benedict. Nor would I ask you to do so, Benedict said. Perhaps you could spare a cup of tea and a few moments of conversation. Brother Vincent studied Benedict's face for a moment. Before his gaze turned to take in the young man's companions, Bridget felt slightly uncomfortable beneath that gaze. It seemed as though the man could see a great deal more of her than he had any right to. Brother Vincent's stare lingered on Master Ferris the longest, and he sighed. And then the rumors are true, war again. And the walls have ears, Benedict said. Of course. Of course," Vincent said. "I'll get someone to cover my post. Do you bring your companions inside?" Benedict nodded and beckoned to the rest of them. Bridget walked over to him and passed his weaponry back. "That was amazing," she said. "That was typical," Benedict said, smiling. "Amazing would have been if I'd beaten him." "How do you know him?" "He was my mentor when I first came." Several years ago, Benedict said, "I was considering joining the monks at the time." Gwendolen made a slight sniffing sound. "Ridiculous, Benny! You'd look wretched in saffron." "It's not my best color," Benedict said gravely, nodding. "He mostly wore purple back then," Brother Vincent said cheerfully. "Purple?" Bridget asked. "Bruises." Benedict clarified, smiling. "I was the kind of student who sometimes had difficulty listening."
A teacher can always find other paths, Vincent said. Ladies and gentlemen, won't you please come inside? Welcome to the Temple of the Way. Chapter 26 Spire Albion, Habble Landing, Temple of the Way Gwendolen watched Bridget hand her cousin's weaponry back to him and carefully did not smirk. For goodness sake, Gwen had been standing just as close to him and with empty arms as well, and yet Benny had turned to the girl with the cat almost instinctively when he began to disarm himself. Benedict had expressed to Gwen his determination to avoid entanglements with a wife in no uncertain terms on any number of occasions. He had even been something very nearly rude to mother when she had pressed one too many partners upon him at a dance two years ago. It was not as though there were no young ladies interested in him. Oh, granted, none of the highest tier of eligible ladies would have considered a union with a young warrior-born, even if he'd been a full member of House Lancaster. Well, perhaps if he'd been the heir, she supposed. But the ladies of the lesser houses could very well better their position through a union with Benedict. There was also, she thought, always that sort of person who would gladly seek a tryst with one of the warrior-born simply for the thrill of something so outré. Benedict was, of course, a fine-looking young man. He had been pursued by any number of young, or youngish, widows when he came of age, but he had ignored them all with steady, polite reserve. Now he spoke quietly with Bridget and the wayest monk, and Gwendolen felt immensely pleased for him. She had known Bridget long enough to feel certain that she had no designs on Benedict for the sake of his endowments, monetary or otherwise. And while Bridget seemed to have very little in the way of social graces, such things could be learned. Anyway, courage and integrity were more important, and the girl had those in excess. The name of Targwin still carried weight in some corners of the Habble, too. Mother could be convinced to bless such a union. Of course, Benedict would be sure to make a hash of things if left to his own devices. Thank goodness he had someone to smooth the way for him. When the time was right, naturally. Gwendolen smiled in satisfaction and followed the monk into the temple with the rest of her group. She was entirely unprepared for what she found in the interior of the temple. She had expected a rather simple arrangement, and indeed it was, in the extreme. But the monks had transformed the courtyard behind the temple's heavy gate into a garden so lush and thick that even those in her family's estates simply could not compare. Every square foot that could be spared, she saw, had been devoted to planters of masonry filled with rich black earth transported painstakingly from the surface. Each planter supported a fine net of silken threads above it, spangled with small lumen crystals that glowed like a thousand stars, bathing the whole of the courtyard in rich silver radiance. Beneath the woven nets of light grew fruit trees, grapevines, rows of vegetables and grains, as well as flowers, small trees, ferns, and leafy bushes she could not identify. Foodstuffs growing from the filthy soil of the surface, rather than in a proper water garden treated with nutrient-bearing vat sand. The very thought was somewhat nauseating. 
Why do such a thing? The smell of the place was simply shocking. It filled the air with a riot of scents, sharp and pungent, rotten and sweet, and above all, very, very alive. The air itself seemed different, thick and swollen with moisture. The impression of the whole was that of rampant life, growing as wild as the deadly green hell covering the surface of the world, and she felt her heart speed up in an immediate irrational reaction of instinctive fear. Her rational mind told her that clearly there was no danger here. Any number of monks were moving quietly through the plants in their saffron garb, trimming and tending and weeding. Insects buzzed through the air, many of them striped with yellow and black. Bees? Goodness, she hadn't known anyone had been able to successfully transplant a colony to Spire Albion. As far as she knew, only the pikers had managed to successfully manage beehives, and their near monopoly of the honey and mead market provided the cornerstone for their economy. Well, if this garden could support something as fragile as bees, surely the place couldn't be all that threatening, regardless of how nightmarish it might look. She took a breath and steadied herself, and pressed forward through the vegetation, following her cousin and brother Vincent. There must have been two hundred feet of the bizarre gardens between the gate and the temple proper, which rose up to a height of four stories and was built of excellent masonry. The building looked nearly as square and as solid and as fixed as if it had been made of spire stone by the builders themselves. Despite its height, it managed to appear squat and thick, as if determined to resist the sheer idea of any assault, much less the actual attack that might spring from such a notion. Two more of the monks, armed as Brother Vincent had been, stood at the main doors of the temple and watched in stoic silence as Gwendolen's group followed their guide within. Gwen expected the inside of the temple to match its stony exterior, but to her surprise she found that it was warmly lit and decorated with paintings and banners bearing proverbs in wayest script. Some of the paintings, though they depicted iconic figures of the wayest faith, had been masterfully produced. In their own way, they were a match for the collection they'd seen in the Spyrarch's manor. The floor was made of stone blocks, but was painted a deep green colour, except for a brown path that wavered back and forth down the hallway. So many feet had walked upon the painted path that in its centre the paint had worn away and the stone itself had been worn down along with it. With the others, Gwen found herself naturally following the depression along the hallway, the soles of her feet an inch below the proper level of the floor. The meal room? Benedict asked. It seems simplest, Brother Vincent said. The monk looked over his shoulder and smiled at Gwen. You seem surprised, miss. It's very lovely in here, really. Gwen found herself replying. It's not at all like it appears to be on the outside. Is anything? asked Brother Vincent with a small smile. Here we go, Benedict said beneath his breath. Gwen arched an eyebrow at her cousin and turned back to Brother Vincent. 
Wouldn't it be faster to walk in straight lines rather than wandering back and forth like this? This way does not seem sensible. The monk's smile widened. Did anyone forbid you to do so? Well, no, Gwen said. Why aren't you walking the way you believe to be sensible then? Gwen blinked. Well, it was obviously the way everyone walks here, I suppose. Did you wish to avoid offending our sensibilities? No, not exactly, Gwen said. It just, it seemed the proper thing to do. Brother Vincent nodded. Why? Because, well, look at it. The stones are all worn down where everyone has walked. Do you feel you should walk the same path because so many have walked it before you came, Miss? Gwen glanced at Benedict, but her cousin only looked back at her in silence, apparently interested in her answer. No, of course not. Except, yes, in a way. I hadn't really given it any thought. Few do. Brother Vincent bowed his head and turned to continue leading them down the hallway, and Gwen had the sudden impression from his body language that he was a teacher who had just concluded a lesson. She felt her back stiffen slightly. Brother Vincent, she said, in what she felt must be a tempered yet iron tone. Are you trying to trick me into becoming a waist? She couldn't see his face, but from where she stood, she could see his cheeks round out as he smiled. In the void, there is no distinction of east and west. Gwen blinked slightly at that. I know all of those words, and yet when strung together like that, I have no idea what they mean. The monk nodded. Perhaps you are choosing not to hear them. Gwen sighed in exasperation. Benedict. Her cousin turned to walk backward for a few paces and smiled. He's like that, cuz. I don't know what he means either. It's his way. The monk carefully did not turn, and Gwen suddenly felt that the man might be laughing at her. So she sniffed once, lifted her chin firmly, and started walking in a straight line down the hall. Wayest custom be damned. She tripped on the irregular surface a few seconds later. And all but fell. After that, she lowered her chin enough to make sure she could watch where she put her feet. Pardon me, brother, Master Ferris said a moment later. But might I trouble you to show us the collection if it isn't too much trouble? My apprentice has never seen it. Brother Vincent's face lit up as if the etherealist had just offered to cook him a fine meal. Of course, sir. It's on the way after all. Master Ferris beamed. Excellent. Attend, folly. Yes, master. The apprentice said, "Collection," Gwen said. "What collection?" Vincent's eyes gleamed. He stopped at a very large, very heavy door and opened it with a gentle push of his hand. The enormous thing swung open wide, silently and smoothly, to reveal an immense chamber beyond. Ladies and gentlemen, he said in a quiet, vibrant tone. The great library of Spire Albion. Gwen felt her eyes widen. The great library was huge; it must have taken up three quarters of the space of the entire temple all by itself. 
The ground floor was filled with shelving and work tables, and every inch of shelf space was crammed with books, books of every size and shape and colour. Why the collection here beggared the one at her academy? That had been a library of nearly three thousand volumes, and it wouldn't have taken up a tenth of the space of the ground floor of the library. And there were three tiers of shelves circling the outer wall of the library above the ground floor, each accessed by balconies and multiple series of staircases. More monks moved around the upper floors, dusting and tidying the shelves. All in all, there were more books in the library. Gwen felt sure than she had seen in the entirety of her life outside it. A dozen saffron-robed monks were seated at the tables, copying volumes by hand, while younger initiates carried paper, sprinkled sand over pages to dry the still wet ink, and performed any number of other tasks to support the effort. Gentle music drifted through the air from a pair of monks playing wooden flutes in elegantly interwoven melodies. Gwen stared. For several silent seconds, and then realized that she was attempting to calculate the approximate value of the books based solely upon their materials. The paper for each book was representative of more wood than its volume would suggest. House Lancaster had a library of several hundred volumes, but it was one of the wealthiest houses in all of Spire Albion. Pabble Morning's academy had nearly a thousand volumes collected over two centuries. Some of them quite old and valuable, but this place, the great library, could scarcely have been more costly in a purely monetary sense, if its walls and floors had been coated with gold. But that was, she supposed, in keeping with the rest of Pabble Landing. Entire buildings had been made of wood here, in their mad division of their working space. She had known the local economy was vigorous, but she'd had no idea that the level of commerce taking place here dwarfed that of Habble Morning itself. All that construction would have required milling of the wood, resulting in mountains of sawdust. Perhaps that had been the source of raw materials for the paper in the volumes before her. That might have lowered the price, but all the same, the books represented a genuine fortune amongst a group of men and women who were known for their pathological avoidance of excess or material gain. It also went a great way toward explaining why the monks so strongly discouraged casual visits to the temple. She supposed her own family's vatries weren't precisely open to the public either. Oh, Folly breathed out loud. The oddly dressed girl was staring at the library with round eyes. Oh, is that? Oh yes, Master Ferris replied. I've never, never felt this in our library, Master. Felt what? Ferris asked. His voice was gentle, but his eyes, thought Gwen, were rather sharp. Folly was silent for a moment before she said, "I'm not sure." Think on it," Ferris suggested. He turned to Brother Vincent and asked, "Might she remain here quietly while we take tea, Brother? I give you my word that she will give you no offence." 
Brother Vincent bowed at the waist. Then he stepped aside and murmured something to one of the apprentices before moving back toward the group. Miss, please do not touch any of the volumes without consulting one of my order. Folly tensed when the monk spoke to her, and cradled her jar of little crystals close to her chin. Oh, he spoke to me. Ought I tell him that I understand? No, of course not. He knows now because I asked you about it. There. Master Ferris said with a pleased smile, "Now, about that tea." Brother Vincent studied the etherealist's apprentice for a speculative moment, then smiled at Master Ferris and said, "This way." The monk led them to a modest dining hall featuring low, round tables made of copper-clad iron, surrounded by sturdy cushions instead of chairs. Gwen was unsure of the dignity of such. Novel seating, but she managed to sit down upon one of the cushions with what she felt sure was acceptable grace, and within moments they were sipping at cups of hot, excellent tea, sweetened with scandalous portions of honey. Raoul had a small bowl of his own. The cat wasn't satisfied until Bridget had spooned twice as much honey as anyone else had into it. Once they had all sipped. Or lapped, Brother Vincent nodded and turned to Benedict, who sat at his right. Very well then, tell me. Benedict made a round of introductions and gave a concise account of the events of the past days, including the purpose of their own visit to Landing. In short, he said, we need a place to stay that is free of any undue influence of the guilds. It was my hope that the Walker could be convinced to allow us to operate from here, brother. It's the most secure place we could ask for. Walker, Gwen asked. The foremost brother or sister at the temple, brother Vincent said, smiling. He turned back to Benedict and shook his bald head. I'm sorry, son. The laws of our order are precisely that. The waste temples do not take sides in political disputes of any kind. But this is your home, Gwen blurted. If the Aurorans conquer Albion, they conquer you along with it. The Temple of the Way in Spire Aurora operates quite peacefully, Brother Vincent said in a mild tone. We would deeply regret the loss of life that such a conquest would necessitate. We would help the wounded. And the bereft in any way that we could, we would peaceably protest any inhumanity perpetrated by either side, and accept the consequences of that protest. But we are neither soldiers nor warriors here, Miss Lancaster. That is not our path. I don't remember asking you to fight anyone for me, Brother Vincent," Gwendolen replied. "I have recently discovered that I have something of a knack for it." Should we permit you to use the temple as the base of your inquisition, it would create the impression of partisanship with the spyarch. We deeply respect his authority and his restraint, but the purpose of our temple is to serve all humanity, not merely the inhabitants of one spire. Benedict smiled without much humour. Which is the answer I expected you to give, brother? Perhaps you have a suggestion as to where we might stay in relative safety. 
It's been a while since I was last here, and even then I didn't know the habble as well as the order does. Brother Vincent took a long, slow sip of his tea. His eyes narrowed in thought. If you're searching for an entirely honourable proprietor in this habble, I hope you brought considerable supplies to sustain you. He returned Benedict's faint smile with one of his own. It's all the money, I think. It does strange things to some people. Surely some must be better than others, Benedict said. Some certainly appear to be, Vincent replied. Whether the truth matches the appearance is another matter. I have often heard it said that anything in landing has a price, especially loyalty. Gwendolen lowered her cup and stated, "We don't need an honourable innkeeper, Benny." Her cousin blinked at her. "We don't, not at all. We simply need one who sells his loyalty with adequate integrity." She turned to Brother Vincent. Is there an innkeeper who, when bought, remains bought? The monk raised his eyebrows. A mercenary innkeep. It is the quickest way, and we are in something of a hurry. Gwen said. Vincent seemed to muse over that for a moment before saying, "Giving you even so little a thing as our advice strains the neutrality the order has worked hard to cultivate. What if we are not asking Brother Vincent?" Gwen said, "Suppose we ask my cousin's old teacher, Vincent, for a recommendation." Sophistry, the monk said, "and threadbare at that." We're simply having conversation over tea," Gwendolen pointed out firmly. "It isn't as though the spyarch has written requesting your aid." Brother Vincent pursed his lips. "I must carefully consider the impact my actions might have on the order." And other followers of the way. While you're at it, Gwen said, perhaps you should consider the impact your lack of action might have on the wayists of Spire Albion, along with all of their neighbours. Surely they are included in the roles of the humanity you say you wish to serve. Brother Vincent blinked several times, then he said in a mild tone, "You don't take hints terribly well." Do you, Miss Lancaster? Perhaps I'm choosing not to hear them," Gwen replied in a honeyed tone. Something that looked suspiciously like a newborn smile suddenly danced in the monk's eyes. Gwendolen smiled brightly back at him. Chapter Twenty-Seven. Spire Albion, Habble Landing, the Black Horse Inn. Bridget walked along a bit behind Benedict, whose eyes constantly scanned the streets around them as they walked from the temple to the inn Brother Vincent had named. She really shouldn't have been chattering at him on the way there. After all, it was his duty to watch for danger and protect Master Ferris from any attack. How could he do that effectively while she was hanging all over him? What did you discover, Folly? Master Ferris was saying to his apprentice. The oddly dressed girl frowned for half a minute before she spoke. "Frozen souls." Ah, Ferris said, raising a finger. "Yes, near enough. Well done, child." 
Folly beamed and hugged her jar of crystals to her chest. But why haven't I ever felt anything like that in our study? It is primarily a matter of density, Ferris replied. One needs more than a handful of trees to see a forest. Folly frowned at that. It seemed as if they spoke to one another. Nothing quite so complex as that, I think, the etherealist said. Some sort of communion, though, definitely. Bridget cleared her throat and said tentatively, "Excuse me, Master Ferris." The etherealist and his apprentice turned their eyes to her. "Yes," he asked. "I do not mean to intrude, but what are you talking about?" Books, my dear," Ferris replied. "Books." Bridget blinked once. "Books do not have souls, sir. Those who write them do," Ferris said. "They leave bits and pieces behind them when they lay down the words, some scraps and smears of their essential nature." He sniffed. "Most untidy, really." But assemble enough scraps, and one might have something approaching a whole. You believe that the library has a soul, Bridget said carefully. I do not believe it, young lady, Ferris said rather stiffly. I know it. I see, Bridget said. Thank you for answering my question. You are welcome. They kept going. Following Benedict, and eventually came to the inn on a well-travelled portion of the streets leading to the gallery outside the shipyard. A sign hanging outside featured, as many of them did, the drawing of a fantastic animal that supposedly existed long ago. Most of the inns in Habble Morning were so decorated, Bridget knew. The lettering beneath proclaimed the building to be the Black Horse Inn. They went in and found the usual for such a place—a common room where food and drink were served. In essence, a small pub or restaurant. The ceiling was really quite low. Benedict had to duck his head a little to avoid bumping it against the heavy beams supporting the second floor. The air was thick and smoky too. Several men and women sitting huddled at the tables were holding pipes that smouldered with whatever weed they burned within them. Which was, strictly speaking, against the guidelines laid out by the merciful builders in the High Manual. Apparently, they had viewed smoking as a serious sin. But then, Habble Landing did have something of a reputation as a place of disinclination to piety. It was, after all, the home Habble of the Wayest Temple, and had only a few small chapels to God in Heaven. Here, the guiding principle was the interest of business. And apparently, at the Black Horse Inn, business was excellent. There were three score people at least crowded into the common room, occupying every table. Two women were weaving as rapidly as they could through the room, carrying food and drink to the tables, and taking away empty plates and cups. Back in the kitchen, dishes rattled and voices spoke loudly, but without heat, evidence of a business operating at its full focused speed. A moment, a moment, ladies and gentlemen," 
called a round-cheeked man in a rather plainly made jacket of silvery grey raw ether silk. Only after he'd said that did he take a look at them. Bridget saw his bright, rather closely set eyes take in Gwendolen and Ferris's excellent and expensive clothing at a glance, and he came forward, rubbing his hands together to smile broadly at them. We're quite busy, as you can see, but we'll clear you a table in a moment. Benedict's stomach made a noise audible even over the chatter of the room. Wonderful, he said. We also have need of lodging, sir, Gwendolen said. We've been told your establishment can serve our needs. The innkeeper rubbed at his neck. Ah, miss, I see. We'll be happy to get a hot meal into your bellies, travellers, but I'm afraid my rooms are all spoken for. I beg your pardon, Gwen said, smiling. I'm not sure I heard you correctly. Well, miss, the innkeeper said. Times being what they are, what with an attack and maybe a war and so on, we've no rooms to rent. I'm afraid. They're full right now, Gwendolen asked. Every one of them. I'm sorry. But they are," the innkeeper lied. It was patently obvious from the expression on his face. Perhaps Bridget reflected turning down money was not something an entrepreneur of Habble Landing was emotionally equipped to take in his stride. But why wouldn't he simply rent her the rooms if that was the case? Ah, it doubtless had to do with who is renting them," Gwen asked brightly. Perhaps I could make some sort of bargain with that person. That's not any business of yours, Miss. Meaning no offence, but I don't go blabbing about my customers or their business. I'm sure we can reach some kind of understanding, Gwendolen stated. No rooms, the innkeeper said, his jaw setting stubbornly. Gwendolen Lancaster narrowed her eyes. They decided to take their dinner in their suite, rather than shouldering their way into the Black Horse's common room. One of the women from downstairs delivered it on several stacked trays. The food came in hot and fresh on the best plates the Black Horse had to offer, along with genuine silverware and several rather expensive bottles of mist wine. Once the food had been set out on the room's small table. The serving woman left, and Folly shut and latched the door carefully behind her. The etherealist's apprentice looked wan, as if she hadn't eaten in days. Once the door was closed, the girl immediately hurried to the corner of the room farthest from it and settled down on the floor, holding her little jar of crystals carefully. "Cuz," Benedict said, opening the first bottle of mist wine. I'm afraid you may have a thing or two to learn about bargaining for the best possible price. It isn't my task to save money," Gwen replied rather tartly. "I'm here to save time." "Impossible, impossible," Master Ferris said. "Time is time. We can barely even see it, much less alter it." Benedict poured the wine into their glasses calmly, despite his stomach's rumblings. Before he seated himself and began to fill his plate, his motions, Bridget noted, were not hurried. But she could see the cords in his neck standing out with the effort of his restraint. Not time, then, Gwen said, 
but trouble. Yes, we paid five times the price. Ten times, Benedict interjected gently. Gwen waved her hand. The point is, we aren't wasting hours running back and forth to the temple until we find another inn. Point, child, a fair point, Master Ferris said. Little mouse, said Raoul, rather pointedly from the floor, where should I sit? Bridget calmly cleared a little space on the table, put some roasted fowl on a small plate, and lifted Raoul up to the table to sit before it. The cat made a pleased, throaty sound and began nibbling away. If I may ask, Bridget asked hesitantly, what is our next move? Exploit the environment, Master Ferris said around a mouthful of beef. The room below is an excellent place to sample the local climate for signs of unusual activity. Sir Sorolin, perhaps you would be willing to employ your talents to go down and listen. Pretend to be drinking, but don't become impaired. Benedict swallowed hurriedly and cleared his throat. Uh, Master Ferris, I fear that the Spyrarch's orders prevent me from doing any such thing. I'm to stay within arm's reach of you. The old etherealist blinked. I suppose your orders could be interpreted that way, couldn't they? Interpreted literally, Benedict said. I'm afraid so. That being the case, Ferris said, I will accompany you. It will add verisimilitude to have someone who is genuinely drunk at the table. He shook his head sadly. Death is light as a feather. Duty as heavy as a spire. What? Ah, Benedict said. Master Ferris, is that wise? Gwen asked. It's an ancient proverb, handed down from the time of the builders. Ferris replied. Chronologically speaking, it is wisdom of the highest order. Not the proverb, Gwen said. You, inebriated. It seems to me that you might have more difficulty pursuing your mission if you are drunk. I should far rather be drunk than eaten, Miss Lancaster, Ferris said in a serious tone. As should we all. Very well, that's settled. Gwen blinked. The etherealist took a slow sip from his glass and nodded owlishly. Master Sorolin and I will confront and destroy several more bottles of this rather excellent mist wine and see what news can be passively gleaned. Meanwhile, the rest of you will go with Raoul and Bridget to make contact with the local cats. If anything out of the ordinary is happening in Habble Landing, they'll have noticed it. Raoul looked up from his food to say, He said my name first, little mouse. He has an excellent sense of priorities. Bridget eyed Raoul and then looked back at the old man. Master Ferris, forgive me, but I'm not sure exactly how long it might take to make contact. Cats are not known for their forthright hospitality when it comes to meeting strangers. I'll help, Gwen said calmly. Bridget sighed. I... Think your help in this particular endeavour might be counterproductive. Gwen frowned. In what way? God in heaven, she really doesn't realise what she's like when she's bearing down on some poor soul, Bridget thought. Aloud, she said, 
cats don't react well to, um, to. She faltered and looked over at Benedict, silently pleading for help. Gwen, Miss, Benedict said. Gwen lifted an eyebrow. In what way precisely did you mean that remark, Cuz? In precisely every way, Benedict replied. Your diplomatic efforts so far have consisted of instigating a duel, threatening detachment of fleet marines with charges of treason, throwing away a tidy little fortune in bribes, and abruptly discharging a gauntlet into an otherwise non-violent situation. But Gwen began twice. Benedict said mildly. Gwen regarded him steadily and gave her next bite of fowl a particularly stiff jab of a fork. I don't mean to insult you, Gwen, but cats don't react well to the kind of pressure you bring to bear, Bridget said, especially not when they're dealing with invaders. Raoul muttered, "Newcomers," Bridget finished mildly. Gwen rolled her eyes and said, "Very well." I shall keep myself out from underfoot then. It's just for the first meeting, Bridget said quickly. Benedict frowned at Bridget. You shouldn't go alone. She isn't, the etherealist said. Folly will be with her. Bridget glanced at Folly. The girl was bouncing her little jar of crystals gently and singing them a very quiet lullaby. Benedict arched an eyebrow and said, "Ah." It's all right," Bridget said. "Fewer people mean less noise. Raoul will be able to hear potential threats well before they can come near enough to harm us." Raoul groomed one of his front paws modestly. "Right then," Master Ferris said. "That's settled as well. Go forth. Good hunting, Sir Benedict. Let's get drunk." Chapter Twenty-Eight. Spire Albion, Habble Landing Shipyards, AMS Predator. Grim descended from the deck to the engineering section just as the engineers were carefully opening the crates marked with the crest of the Lancaster Battery. Ah, Journeyman cackled, rubbing his broad, calloused hands together. The stocky, balding engineer was sweating despite the pleasantly cool afternoon. They had grounded the ship and throttled down her core crystal only about half an hour before, and the excess heat shared by the ship's power conduits had not yet dissipated. Currently, electricity was running only to the lumen crystals and the kitchen. Finally, carefully now, man. If you crack one of my new crystals, I'll hoist you up on a spike. Grim cleared his throat calmly. Journeyman squinted over his shoulder. Ah.、Oh. He said, "That is, I will report you to, to the proper person in the chain of command who will make decisions about discipline that are not mine to make." Always good to maintain discipline in your section, Chief," Grim said pleasantly. Even in a civilian vessel, Journeyman flicked Grim a quick salute and snorted. "Preddy's a warship skipper. We all know that." Grim shrugged a shoulder. When need be, Chief. Are the new parts up to spec? 
Journeyman waved a hand vaguely at the far workbench, where eight green-white crystals, the size of a man's head, sat in an orderly row in a long crate, like eggs in a nest. Those are the new trim crystals, and they're first rate. You can still smell the solution from the vat on them. Grim glanced at Journeyman sharply. Trim crystals of varying quality were often to be found, but never new ones. New trim crystals tended to be more efficient and more sensitive to varying degrees of current, and then gradually degraded with use. A ship with new trim crystals was slightly but significantly more manoeuvrable than one without, which was why they were universally snapped up by the Ethereum fleet as rapidly as they were produced. They're new. Journeyman gave Grim a gap-toothed grin. Bet your fancy silk suit on it, Skip. Grim shook his head slowly, partly in answer to Journeyman and partly in slowly dawning realization of the amount of debt into which he had been placed. Predator would have been nimble even if the Spyrarch had provided used lift crystals. With new ones, she could dance with the finest in the world. The last crate finally came open with a groan. And the engineering crew carefully broke it down around the last crystal, an enormous oblong shape the size of a bathtub, its emerald surface faceted so finely that, except for a few glitters of light upon it, it looked round and smooth. The lift crystal would socket into the suspension rig, the ship's structural foundation, and when they were in flight, all the weight of Predator would be spread across the crystal surface. Gorgeous, journeyman crooned, approaching the crystal with his hands outstretched. Oh, you beautiful thing! Come here, come here. Grim arched an eyebrow. Ought I leave the two of you alone? Journeyman sniffed haughtily and then knelt down beside the crystal, running his hands over its surface. He muttered to himself, then started pulling probes and gauges from his tool belt. He popped a pair of engineer's optics over his nose, flicked several different lenses into place, and squinted at the crystal surface, prodding and muttering. Grim gave him several minutes to study the lift crystal before he cleared his throat again. Mister Journeyman, been some kind of mistake, Skip. Journeyman muttered. Grim leaned forward. Mistake. How so? The journeyman hooked up a set of probes to a power outlet and touched them to the big crystal. Radiant spirals of light began to flow through the crystal just beneath where the probes touched. Journeyman eyed the spirals through his optics, then flicked them out of the way with an annoyed hand and did it again. This time, watching a gauge to which the probes were attached. Yep, definitely a mistake. What's wrong with it, Chief? Oh, not a damned thing, Skip," Journeyman said. "Brand new, and one of their Mark IVs to boot. Efficient as hell." Journeyman, Grim reminded himself, was a genius with etheric technology. That was why they had managed to return home to Albion with an almost completely non-functional lift crystal in the first place. Journeyman had rigged the trim crystals to carry a load for which they had never been designed, and more or less burned them out in the process. 
He was a damned fine engineer, but at times Grimm wished he could be a bit less of a genius child entirely absorbed by his toys. Then what's the mistake, Chief? Journeyman turned to squint at Grimm. This is a battle cruiser's lift crystal skip, or I'm a shining new Wally Pog ensign. Grimm grunted, frowning. Capital ships used multiple heavy crystals to maintain their altitude, and the crystals tended to be denser and more complex, which made them more energy efficient. The sheer mass of the large ship's structure and armor demanded nothing less. If what Journeyman said was true, that lift crystal could easily keep a ship thirty-five times Predator's mass aloft. They'd have to be careful of how much power they fed to the crystal, or its raw power might tear it free of the suspension rig entirely. It was altogether possible that Predator might be able to climb faster than she could dive with a crystal like that to lift her. What kind of altitude could she take us to, Chief? Journeyman scratched his ear with one broken, nailed finger. Seven, maybe eight miles. Way higher than we could breathe without tanks, anyway. For all practical purposes, she won't have an operational ceiling, and she's real efficient at lower altitude. Won't have to dump a quarter of the power we used to from the core into this sweetheart to keep us in the air. One of the engineering crew let out a low whistle, and Grim felt himself in heartfelt agreement with the sentiment. The largest part of a ship's power budget was allotted to its lift crystal. Less energy spent on keeping the ship afloat meant more power that could be used for other systems. They could get more speed out of the etheric web by charging it more highly. Increase the density of Predator's shroud and fire her cannon until their copper barrels melted. The Spyrarch had given them parts of such quality that, when combined with her exceptional core crystal, Predator was about to become the fastest airship in Albion's fleet, as fierce as any military vessel in her own class, with the ability to pour fire from her cannon that a cruiser might envy. It didn't mean that Predator could take on a true armored warship like Etasca, but she would be far more elusive and difficult to bring down with a lucky shot. And any ship lighter than Etasca would get a very nasty surprise if it engaged Grimm's little ship. I love you, Journeyman said to the lift crystal. He kissed it and spread his arms across its surface in an embrace. I love you. You big, beautiful beast! I want you to marry me. I want you to bear my children. Chief, Grim said reproachfully, but his heart wasn't in it. Addison Albion had come through on his promise to a degree that Grim could scarcely encompass. Grim tried to calculate the cost of the Spyrarch's largess, and realized that he couldn't. Crystals like that weren't for sale; they were priceless. And they would make his ship into something far more swift and fearsome and efficient than she had ever been before. The Spyrarch had known that Grim had no intention of taking service to him, but he had sent these crystals anyway. How did one, in good conscience, pay back a debt that, by its very nature, could not be calculated? 
How could Grimm turn his back on such a gesture of faith and walk away after a single errand? If there was a way to do so, he certainly did not see it. Lord Albion, Grimm decided, was something of a judge of character. How long until you've got them all installed, Chief? He asked. Journeyman looked up from the crystal and squinted around the section, evidently gathering his thoughts. Trim crystals won't take but a day, he said. They're standardized, and we can swap them out pretty quick. This lovely beast, though. He rubbed his hands over the lift crystal surface again. This might take some time. Our suspension rig can handle her, but not until I make some modifications. How long? And then there are the power runs. Journeyman said, "We'll have to install some resistors to reduce the current, or those trim crystals will have us spinning upside down in mid-air the first time Kettle tries to bank. And we'll have to lay new runs to the web nodes so that we can feed more current to the web. How long? And there's the Haslet cages to consider too. I'll have to calibrate them to account for the increased efficiency and the cores cage too to let us run up a thicker shroud." Chief, Grim said, keeping his patience with effort. How long? Journeyman shrugged. A month, maybe. If Grim knew his engineer, he'd still be fussing over and massaging his new crystals into increased performance six months from now. There's a war on, Chief. How long for the quick and dirty necessities just to get us moving? Journeyman's face wrinkled as if he just caught a whiff of something foul. Skipper, he protested. Grim let a hint of calm, cool steel creep into his voice. I'm a captain. Humor me. How long? The engineer scratched at the back of his neck, muttering. Then he said, "Maybe a week." Run round the clock work shifts, Grim said. And if you can find any bonded local engineers, we'll hire them on. Journeyman stared at Grim as though Grim had just suggested that the engineer should prostitute his mother to pirates. In my engine room, skip. Do it, chief. Grim said. That's an order. Journeyman muttered a bit more savagely under his breath. A few days then. For that, you get the most pathetic, slipshod, half-assed, rickety, unreliable, accident-prone potential disaster in the history of the airship. I have every faith in you, Chief," Grim said, turning to go. "Draw funds as you need them and get to it." Chapter Twenty-Nine, Spire Albion, Habble Landing. Four weeks ago. Bridget had lived a quiet and sensible existence. She thought, she worked with her father, took care of their customers, and often visited her poorer neighbors, bringing gifts of meat that hadn't sold and needed to be eaten. She attended school every other day and occasionally ventured to the market to purchase what their home and business needed. She had been to the amphitheatre half a dozen times to attend musical concerts and gone bi-weekly to services at the Church of God in Heaven. And now she thought, she was wandering through a strange and possibly dangerous habble. Her only companions, a cat who regarded himself as the world's preeminent being, and a rather reedy girl who kept up a steady, muttered conversation with her jar of used crystals. 
What if she got lost? What if she came upon more footpads? What if she found the enemy before she made contact with the local cats? At least in Habble Morning, she'd had the implied authority of her uniform to hide behind. Now she wore only her regular clothes. Granted, the wide sleeves of her blouse concealed the gauntlet on her left hand almost completely, but she'd scarcely had time to learn to discharge one without killing someone by accident, much less doing so by conscious intention. She doubted her ability to hit a target more than three or four feet away if it came to a genuine combat situation. She wasn't sure whether that made her better off than if she was completely unarmed or worse. Raoul rode on her shoulder. His head held at a high, cocky angle, as though he had recently conquered the place, laying a benign gaze upon his realm and subjects as their little party walked through one of the wider and more crowded tunnels of the Habble's first level. The cat's nose never stopped twitching, and his ears flicked around alertly. Honestly, Raoul, Bridget murmured, are you certain you're watching for the local cats? Even the sharpest eyes cannot see what is not there, little mouse. Raoul replied serenely, "Keep walking, over toward those cooking places." I bought you a dumpling not half an hour ago, Bridget protested. Those smell good to me, and I want to smell them some more. Raoul said, "Any other cat worth the name would feel exactly the same way. Perhaps we will see them there." And perhaps, as long as we're there, you'll have another bite. Perhaps I shall. I should make you carry your pay around yourself. Metal circles, Raoul scoffed. They are a human madness. A human should deal with them. He's right. Folly put in from where she walked, so close to Bridget's flank that Bridget feared to turn toward her too quickly, lest she strike her with an elbow in the process. Money is madness, a delusion, illusion. It's not made of metal, really. It's made of time. How much is one's time worth? If one can convince enough people that one's time is an invaluable resource, then one has lots and lots of money. That's why one can spend time. Only, one can never get a refund. I see, Bridget said, though she didn't. Well, in any case, shall we go over there? Folly leaned down and whispered to her jar, "She spoils the cat." A privilege I do not give to just anyone," Raoul said smugly. Folly suddenly stopped in her tracks and let out a harsh hiss. Bridget turned to the other girl as pedestrians nearly walked into her back and began to pour impatiently around her. The etherealist's apprentice was standing with her back ramrod straight, her mismatched eyes very wide. Folly, Bridget said, "It's here." Folly said in a whisper, "It's watching." We would tell Bridget about it if we could. They were getting a few glares and mutters now as they slowed the foot traffic around them. Bridget didn't mind glowers and low curses, but she found herself very much concerned that their disruption of foot traffic called a great deal of attention to the two young women. It was quite the opposite of operating covertly. She took Folly's arm firmly and guided the girl onto a side path. 
Folly, she asked, "What's here? What's watching?" Bridget doesn't know about the grim captain's visitors," Folly said, her eyes darting around. "But they're looking at us right now." Bridget blinked. "Captain Grimm's visitor? Do you mean that commodore, the one with the very large hat?" Raoul added helpfully. "She doesn't understand," Folly said to the jar. "These came before that." When the master treated the grim captain on the day before they met, I'm a bit confused," Bridget said politely. "Master Ferris treated Captain Grimm before meeting him." Folly whispered to her jar, "If she keeps repeating everything I say, this is going to take much more time." She glanced around them and slowly exhaled, "There, I think, I think yes, there. We're alone now." Folly, I need you to help me understand," Bridget said. "Are you talking about aurorans?" Folly blinked several times and then said, her tone thoughtful, "She brings up an excellent point. Possibly, I feel awful, and I think I'll sit down." The etherealist's apprentice sat down on the ground as if entirely exhausted. Her knees curled up to her chest, her eyes sunken. She leaned her head back against the spire stone wall. Miss Folly, Bridget said, "Are you quite all right?" Folly patted her jar as a mother might a restless child and said, "It's all right." Bridget doesn't know how hard it is to hear things. Tell her that we're just tired, and we need a moment. I see, Bridget said. She tilted her head, studying the other girl thoughtfully. She had regarded Folly as someone who must have fallen into some kind of premature dotage, but her answers were canny enough, if phrased quite oddly. Folly had said that she would have told Bridget something if she could, though by the simple act of saying as much, she had accomplished it. I noticed, Bridget said, that Master Ferris seems to have difficulties with doorknobs. She doesn't know that the master is far too brilliant for such things," Folly said, nodding. "And you," Bridget continued thoughtfully, "seem to have difficulty speaking directly to others." "Oh, she uses her eyes and what's behind them as well," Folly said to a jar with a weary little smile. "That's two in one week. Perhaps I should write down the date." "Remarkable," Bridget said, "Miss." I am very sorry if I said anything to offend you, or if I haven't paid attention when you meant me to hear something. I didn't understand. Raoul leaned down to peer at Folly. She seemed no more ridiculous to me than most humans. At that, Folly looked up and beamed a smile at Raoul. Oh, he doesn't know that that's the kindest thing anyone said about me since the master called me a gnat catcher. And now we're back to being very odd," Bridget said. "But I shall try to make allowances for it, since we're to be working together." Bridget felt Raoul's paw tap her cheek, and she turned her head in that direction. The side lane where they'd stopped was dimly lit, even by the standards of Habble Landing. It reminded her of the tunnel where the footpads had lurked. For a second, she didn't see whatever Raoul had warned her about. 
But then there was a flicker of light, and she saw a pair of green-gold eyes staring at them from the shadows, and around them was a grey-furred shape, a cat. Bridget made a basket of her arms, and Rowl leapt down to them and then to the ground. The ginger cat ambled calmly down the alley toward the other feline. Then he sat down a few feet away from the other cat, ignored him entirely, and began to fastidiously groom his paws. The stranger cat emerged from the gloom and sat down a bit closer to Rowl. Then he too promptly ignored the other cat and began grooming. Oh, Folly asked ajar, "Do you think Bridget knows if that is cat diplomacy?" They've never explained it to me, but it's more of a power struggle, I think," Bridget replied. "I'm fairly sure it's about establishing which of them is the least impressed by the other. I wonder what is being established. A more capable cat is never impressed by a less capable cat." "Oh," Folly said, "I see what she's saying now. They're seeing which of them is the proudest." Bridget sighed and nodded, or at least which has the biggest ego. By ignoring each other, Folly said. Yes. Folly frowned down at her jar. I don't know all about cats like Bridget, but it seems to me that this could be a prolonged contest. It often is. I wonder what we should do to hurry things along. Folly said to her jar. Hurry two cats. Bridget asked, smiling at Rowl. "No, the cats didn't come to our hable looking for our help, Miss Folly. This is their custom, their way. We shall wait. We shall wait for three hours, apparently." Folly yawned to her jar of crystals. "One learns patience working in a battery," Bridget said. "It doesn't matter how much one wants a batch to be done." It won't happen any faster. It's the same with cats. Folly leaned down to her jar and whispered, "I don't think cats grow in vats, but we shouldn't say so aloud, for that might hurt her feelings and be unkind." You know what I meant, Bridget said. Though that was very amusing. The other girl smiled downward, clearly pleased. So few people understand my jokes. Usually they just give me very strange looks. I'm the girl who associates with cats," Bridget said. "Please believe that I know precisely the look you mean." Bridget checked on Raoul again, but the two cats remained locked in their war of mutual indifference. "I've been thinking about what the Spyrarch said earlier, about the nature of Master Ferris's mission." "She means secret mission," Folly said to her jar. "Did he tell you what he was up to?" Folly traced a fingertip along the outside of the jar. It might have been Bridget's imagination, but the tiny crystals inside seemed to give off the faintest glow of light where Folly's fingertip touched the glass. Bridget doesn't understand the master very well, she said. He guards knowledge like a banker guards coins. So, you don't exactly know what he's looking for either. Folly smiled faintly without looking up. He gave me few pennies. They're quite frightful. Bridget frowned. But surely it isn't difficult to deduce that he means to locate the Auroran infiltrators and foil their plans. Bridget's logic seems sound, Folly said. I was thinking almost the same thing.
Bridget nodded. We're seeking the help of Albion cats to thwart the Aurorans. But they've been so successful at keeping their movements concealed that we still have no idea exactly where they are. That seems a remarkable accomplishment, to descend through the vents of half the habbles of a spire without being observed by a cat somewhere. We must be doing something to make sure they go unseen. Do you think it possible that the Aurorans are also using cats as scouts, Folly? The Etherealist's apprentice ducked her head a little at the mention of her name. The pitch of her voice dropped to a bare, low whisper. Not cats. Not cats. Not cats, Bridget said. It's something else, then. Something that frightens you. It's a terrifying penny, Folly said to her little jar. I'm slightly mad, but not a fool. If Bridget knew, she'd be as afraid as I am. Bridget felt a chill run neatly up her spine and leaned toward Folly, speaking more quietly. You mean something from... Her mouth felt quite dry and she swallowed. From the surface? It wasn't unheard of for the creatures of the surface to gain access to a spire. In fact, the smaller beasts did so regularly. A spire contained literally hundreds of miles of ventilation tunnels and ducts, water channels, cisterns, sewage channels and compost chambers. Metal grates were regularly installed where they could be, but constant contact with the outer atmosphere degraded their cladding and eventually left them vulnerable to iron rot. Cats did far more to protect the residents of any spire than humans realized, by hunting and killing such intruders. Granted, the lovely little bullies would have done so in any case, and not simply for food, but because they loved the hunt. Most folk tended to assume that cats preyed solely upon rodents and the like, which was certainly true. But in fact, by working cooperatively, a tribe of cats could stalk and bring down prey considerably larger than themselves. Sometimes, however, something too large and too dangerous for cats to handle managed to enter a spire's tunnels. That was why every habble employed verminositors, men and women who hunted such predators professionally, who maintained and repaired the defensive grates, and who tracked and killed nightmarish interlopers before the beasts could begin hunting the people of Aspire. But those were wild creatures. If somehow the Aurorans had managed to train something from the surface to fight with their military... There were many stories and books and dramas written around the concept of some misguided soul attempting to tame the creatures of the surface, to train them to do their will. Such fictional figures universally met an identical fate, agony and death at the hands of their would-be pets. Generally after a great loss of life, wild beasts could not be tamed, they could not be controlled, that was, after all, what made them wild. They don't belong here, and they want to destroy us, Folly said to her jar, her eyes sick but her tone matter-of-fact. All of us. They don't care what spire we call home. Well, Bridget said, if the Aurorans truly are playing with that fire, 
It's only a matter of time before it burns them. I once had a dream of the world, Folly said. She gave Bridget's face a quick, flicking glance before looking down again. And it all burned. Bridget felt a shiver gather at the nape of her neck, and she said nothing. She looked away, back toward Raoul, waiting. Chapter 30 Spire Albion, Habel Landing, The Black Horse Inn Benedict fetched their drinks when the bartender waved at them, and Master Ferris seized his rather large mug of beer with obvious enthusiasm and began tilting it back at once. Goodness, Gwen said, shaking her head. I'm quite certain that a gentleman does not simply attack a drink so. Ferris lowered the mug and wiped foam from his upper lip, beaming. No, indeed, he does not. Fortunately, I am absent any of the qualities that make a gentleman, and thus need not bother with the gentlemanly approach. He waved his empty mug at the bartender and said, Another, Sir Benedict. Benedict, who had just sat, gave the old man a rather lopsided smile and then rose again, without complaint, to make another trek across the room and back. He came back with one enormous mug in each hand and set them both down before Ferris. The old etherealist beamed and said, A man who plans ahead. Foresight. Always foresight. It's the first trait of any formidable person at all. I just hoped to be able to sample mine before I had to get up again, Benedict said, and sipped demonstratively at his own drink. How was your tea, cuz? Perfectly tepid, Gwendolyn answered, but she added a dollop of honey to it in any case, stirred it, and sipped. Even scarcely warm tea was tea, thank goodness, and something that felt very normal amidst all the strange events of the past few days. Master Ferris, my word. Ferris lowered the second emptied mug, coughed out a quiet, rather unobtrusive little belch, and smiled at her. Yes, child? I take it that you are not obliterating your good sense for no reason whatsoever. He narrowed his eyes at her and gave Benedict a shrewdly conspiratorial glance. Doesn't miss much, does she? Despite what everyone tends to think, no, Benedict agreed in a polite tone. I think she rather enjoys letting everyone believe she's too self-absorbed to notice anything that's happening around her. It's either that or let them think I'm some vapid twit, like Mother, Gwen said. I simply can't bring myself to stoop that low. Ferris nodded sagely. No, no, not a bit like your mother. Can't have that. He took the third mug in a comfortable grasp and smiled. In fact, you are quite right, Miss Lancaster. There is a method to my madness. Well, to this particular madness, at any rate. He took a deep draught from the third mug, though at least he hadn't finished it in a single gulp. And what would that be? Gwen prompted him. You must understand something of what we do, Ferris said, or this will seem like foolishness. We? Etherealists, you mean? Precisely, Ferris said, with another politely suppressed belch. A great 
deal of what we strive to achieve happens as, as an instinct. I suppose one might say, we touch upon forces that others cannot sense. You mean the ether? Ferris waved a hand in a rather exaggerated gesture. That's simplifying a monstrously complex concept to its barest core, but yes, that will do. We sense etheric forces. Most people do, to some degree, though they rarely realize it. I'm sure I don't know what you mean, Gwen said. In fact, you do. Ferris replied, "That gauntlet you're wearing, for example." Yes. What do you feel in it? Nothing in particular, Gwen replied. The crystal is a bit cool against my palm, but it always is. In strictest point of fact, Miss, it isn't," Ferris said. "If you found yourself a thermal meter and compared the crystal's temperature to that of your skin, you would find them to be almost precisely the same." Gwen frowned. "I assure you, sir, it is quite cool." "It isn't," Ferris replied. What you feel is the etheric energy that courses through the crystal, but your sensation of it is something your mind was not sure what to do with when you first encountered it. A wonderful place, the mind. But if it has any kind of disappointing failure, it's that it always attempts to put new things into the context of things which are already familiar to it. So your mind apparently decided, upon encountering this new sensation, that it might just as well label it cold and get on with your day. And you are far from alone. It's one of the more common reactions to the first direct exposure to an intense field of etheric energy. The crystal on my gauntlet tingles, Benedict said, nodding, a bit like when you've fallen asleep on your hand and the blood comes rushing back in. Though I'd never heard it explained in quite those terms before, Master Ferris. That sounds like nonsense," Gwen said. "Something is cold, or it isn't, sir." Ah," Ferris said, pointing a finger at her. "I had no idea you had an interest in philosophy. Splendid." "I beg your pardon," Gwen said. "I never mentioned philosophy." "Didn't you?" Ferris replied. You just heard Sir Benedict confirm that his experience with a weapons crystal was significantly different from your own. There is but one reality. That is true, but the two of you experience it in slightly different ways. The older you get, I should think, the more you will come to understand that the universe is very much a looking glass, Miss Lancaster. Meaning what precisely? That it reflects a great deal more of yourself to your senses than you probably know. Rubbish! If I look at a blue coat, I see a blue coat. The fact that I'm looking doesn't change that. Ah, Ferris said, raising a finger. But suppose that what you see as the colour blue is the same shade that Sir Benedict sees when he looks at something you would call green. But that doesn't happen. Gwen said, "Well, how do you know?" Ferris replied, "Can you see with Sir Benedict's eyes? And if you can, I should love to know the trick of it." Gwen blinked several times. So you're saying that it's possible that when I see blue, he sees green? Not at all. 
He sees the colour blue, the etherealist said. But his colour blue, not yours. Gwen frowned. She opened her mouth to object again, thought about it, and put her teeth together. And if Benedict does, then perhaps everyone else does too? Benedict smiled down at his cup. It would do a great deal to explain the aesthetic tastes of House Astor, you must admit. Oh, Gwen said with a shudder. Yes, those people simply cannot coordinate their wardrobes properly. Now then, Ferris said, after another pull from his mug. That's something perfectly simple and relatively minor. Colours. What if other fundamental aspects of life seem quite different to others? What if their experience of heat and cold is different? What if they sense pleasure or pain differently? What if, to their eyes, gravity draws objects sideways instead of down? How would we know the difference, eh? We've all learned to call the same phenomena by certain names from the time we are quite small, after all. We could see things in utterly unique and amazing ways and be quite ignorant of the fact. That sounds remarkably slipshod, Gwen said. I'm sure that God in heaven would not have created the world and its residents in such a ramshackle fashion. Ah, Ferris said, beaming. There, you are a philosopher already. A great many reasonable folk who have gone before you have put forth a similar argument. The real question, of course, Benedict said, is why on earth it matters. After all, we seem to have a common frame of reference for blue, and when she says blue, I know what she's talking about, even if my blue is her green. It matters because it is philosophy, Ferris replied. With an expression of sly wisdom. If all philosophers took questions like yours seriously, Sir Benedict, they'd find themselves straight out of a career now, wouldn't they? Gwen sipped at her tea, frowning some more. But I'm not saying that I agree with your proposition, of course, Master Ferris, but let us suppose that you are correct for the sake of argument. Let us suppose, Ferris said. Then it would mean that. For all practical purposes, each of us lives in our own universe, Spire, would it not? Perceiving all of it in our own fashion. Go on, Ferris said. Well, Gwen said, if that is the case, then it seems quite remarkable to me that we've managed to establish any kind of communication at all. Ferris arched an eyebrow. Quick study, Miss Lancaster. Very quick, indeed. When we connect with our fellow mortal souls, something quite remarkable has happened. And perhaps one day, if we all work at it diligently and manage not to exterminate one another, we may even be able to see through one another's eyes. He beamed. But for now, we'll have to make do with making good guesses, I suppose. Food for thought. He finished the third mug in another pull and waved for more. Benedict cleared his throat. Master Ferris, I'm afraid we've wandered from the original point. Have we? Why are you getting drunk? Her cousin prompted gently. Ah, Ferris said. 
He held out his empty mug to Benedict. Would you mind terribly? Your turn, I think, cuz, Benedict said easily. Gwen sighed and fetched another pair of mugs for the etherealist. Lovely, Ferris said, and gulped some more. Perceptions of etheric energy change from mind to mind, just as you and Sir Benedict demonstrate with your weapons crystals. And if one changes one's mind, that also changes the nature of those perceptions. This will allow me to perceive those energies in ways in which I would not normally be able to do so. You're getting drunk, Gwen said slowly, so that you can experience etheric energy differently. Ferris held up his mug and said solemnly, Think of it as goggles for one's mind instead of one's eyes. Benedict sipped at his drink, frowning. You think you'll be able to sense the Aurorans' weapons crystals? Ferris waved a hand. No, no, there are so many of those things about. It would be like searching for a needle in a barge load of needles. Gwen turned her teacup idly in her hands and said abruptly, You think there's another etherealist here, don't you? And you think that by changing your mind, it will be easier for you to find him. Ferris nodded, though the gesture made his head wobble a bit. Top marks. He put away another mug, and this time his finishing belch was rather louder. Extrapolate. Benedict suddenly smiled. If you could sense him, he could sense you. So you're also changing your mind to make that more difficult. Ferris slurred his sibilance severely. Astute, sir. Sincerely astute. He peered down toward the bottom of his mug. Though, I confess, I have not changed my mind quite this thoroughly in some time. Why? Gwen asked. I mean, why do you believe there's another person like you here? Oh, it's complicated, Ferris said. Or I seem to remember that it is, at any rate. The Auroran fleet, Benedict said thoughtfully. Their attack was precise, as if they'd had some kind of beacon to show them exactly where to dive through the mists. Could an etherealist manage such a thing, sir? I dare say, Ferris said. Gwen set her teacup aside. And have you changed your mind sufficiently to locate this person? Ferris eyed her, and then his mug, unsteadily. It would seem not. But it's likely a question of distance, methinks. If we get closer, I'll have a better sense of it. And that's why you're contacting the local cats, Gwen said, to give you an idea of where to start looking. Time, Ferris said. There's no time for a search pattern. He closed his eyes for a moment, and Gwen thought that he suddenly looked several years older and several years wearier. There's never enough time, you know. Gwen traded a frown with her cousin. Sir? 
Ferris shook his head. He took a swallow from the mug and put it down again. Time to slow down now, I think. Gwen nodded and felt somewhat relieved. Too much of such an indulgence can be dangerous, sir. What now? Now? Ferris sighed without opening his eyes. Now we wait. Is that wise, sir? Benedict asked politely. You do say that we're short on time. We always are, Ferris said. At the moment, it is all we can do. I'm afraid. Best get comfortable. Gwen and Benedict traded another look, and Gwen nodded firmly. In that case, she said, "I shall ask for properly hot tea." Chapter Thirty-One. Spire Albion, Habble Landing Shipyards, AMS Predator. The door to Grimm's cabin opened a few inches, and Kettle said, "Skipper, something you want to see." Grimm blinked his eyes open, long accustomed reflexes swinging his legs out of his bunk and his feet to the floor before he was able to focus his gaze. Night had fallen, and the cabin was lit only by the light of a few large lumen crystals that were hung around Landing's shipyards, shining wanly through the small windows. He felt as though some kind of gum were squeezing his eyelids shut, but he knew it was nothing more than simple weariness. He must have been asleep for less than three or four hours for his body to feel so reluctant to get out of his bed. Skipper, Grim felt an irrational surge of annoyance at the pilot and promptly clubbed it into submission. Kettle hadn't slept much more than Grim had, and the man wouldn't have woken him if it wasn't important. I hear you, Mister Kettle. I'll be out directly. Aye, sir," Kettle said quietly, and closed the door. Grim fumbled a lumen crystal to life, quickly washed himself from a basin of tepid water, and dressed. Captains did not arrive to address a crisis looking like an unmade bed. They were always calm, confident, and neatly turned out. If an enemy battleship was about to unleash a full broadside on a ship, the captain would face it with his hat straight and his cravat crisp and square. Anything else undermined the faith of a crew, increasing the chances of casualties, and was therefore unacceptable. That said, the captain knew very well how time critical any number of issues could be. On a fleet ship, Grim would have had a personal valet to manage a good many things. And save him considerable personal time on a given day, but Predator, as a private vessel, could not afford the luxury. The upshot being that it took him nearly four minutes instead of three to cleanse himself, dress, buckle on his sword, tug his hat on firmly, and appear on the deck. His arm ached restlessly without its sling, and he could have done with a shave. But all things considered, it could wait until morning. The time, Mister Kettle, Grim asked as he emerged. Sixth bell, Kettle replied. Three o'clock, sir. Grim strode to the ship's starboard rail and scowled up into the misty night sky at the vessel that was making its descent to the landing slip beside Predators. She was a large armed merchantman. A third again, predator's size, flying a Delosian flag this night. 
She'd been painted smuggler black all across her hull, though there were sharp white marks painted on her decks to show the way to her crew in darkness. Like Predator, she had masts for raising sail when the use of her web was not possible, though Grimm knew her sails to be stained storm-cloud grey and smudged with black smoke. A blazon of garish red paint at her prow named her the Mist Shark. There, you see, sir? Kettle growled. What's she doing here? Whatever it is, Grimm mused, I think we can safely assume it's unlikely to make our sleep more restful. Could be we have a problem with that new number three gun, Skipper, Kettle suggested darkly. Maybe it goes off completely by mistake, blows that bitch clean out of the sky. Terrible accident. Sincere regrets. We all go to the funerals. Now, now, Mr. Kettle, you know I would never condone such an action. He glanced aside and added in a whimsical undertone, at least not when it could be traced back to Predator. He narrowed his eyes, scanning the decks of the mist shark for familiar faces. Still, you know she took that slip intentionally. Make ready a side party, if you would. She'll be here to gloat in a moment. There could be a horrible accident with a gauntlet, Kettle growled. If you please, Mr. Kettle, Grimm said, keeping a firm note of reprimand in his tone. Side party. Aye, aye, Captain, Kettle said, and stomped off, muttering under his breath. Grimm nodded and went back to his cabin. He picked up his nicer bottles of liquor, his cutlery, his gauntlet, and a number of small, valuable objects, placed them all in his heavy cabinet, and locked it. And then he made the bunk neat and turned up his crystal lamps to their brightest levels. By the time he had finished, he could hear men on the deck of Mist Shark shouting. Her captain would be on the way. Grim went back out on deck and eyed the other ship. A lean woman of an age with him, but half a foot taller, was coming down the gangplank onto the pier. No, she said firmly to the burly, one-eyed ape of a man walking beside her, Mist Shark's first mate, Santos. I absolutely forbid it, unless you can find a way to make it look like it was someone else's ship that had the accident. Santos spat out a curse, scowling, and put his hands on his hips. He glowered at his captain, and then up at the deck of Predator. The woman took notice of Santos's reaction, and turned on a low, heavy boot heel to gaze up at Grimm. Her expression turned into a perfectly amused smile. She wore an aeronaut's dark leather pants, a white blouse with roomy sleeves, and a tailored vest bearing intricately embroidered designs. She swept a hand up to her head and doffed her cap, giving him a formal bow, her arms spread at her sides. Grim scowled. When she straightened again, the woman replaced her cap and said, My dear, dearest, lovely Francis, you look absolutely delightful. Grim folded his arms and continued to scowl. The woman laughed. Francis, I do hope that in your usual charmingly predictable and courteous way, you have prepared to receive me. I'm coming aboard, with your permission, of course. 
Kettle keeps asking me to let him shoot you, Captain Ransom. Oh, but you never would, Ransom replied, smiling. Not Francis Madison Grimm of the Albion Ethereum Fleet, even though he isn't. Grimm gave her a sour smile. Let's get this over with, shall we? Ransom put a hand to her chest and made a sad face. Oh, sweet Francis, you wound me with your lack of enthusiasm. I shall certainly wound you if you try to take anything that isn't yours while you're here. Everything's mine, Francis, she replied in a merry tone. The only question is whether or not it knows it yet. Grimm jerked his head toward Predator's gangplank in a peremptory gesture, and walked toward it without ever quite turning his back entirely on Captain Ransom. The woman strode down the pier and around to Predator's gangplank with steady, quick strides, and came up the ramp like a visiting monarch. Side party, Kettle snarled. Tension, tension indeed. Grimm thought. Half a dozen armed men, three on either side of the gangplank, snapped to attention, and every single one of them kept his hand on his sword, his gauntlet primed and gently glowing. Kettle faced the gangplank and gave his best glare to Captain Ransom as she came up to the deck. Sweet Kettle, Ransom said. Something quite predatory came into her smile. Does your knee still ache when it rains? Aye, Kettle snarled, and I make it feel better by breaking the noses of mouthy, sucker-punching, welching, treacherous Olympian bit, Mister Kettle. Grim said, his tone hard. Captain Ransom is my guest. You will maintain courtesy and discipline aboard my vessel, or I shall terminate your contract. Do I make myself perfectly clear? Kettle looked over his shoulder at Grim sullenly. He grunted. Then he turned and snapped off a textbook salute to Captain Ransom. Ransom returned it genially. Permission to come aboard? Granted, Kettle said through clenched teeth. Grim stepped forward and cleared his throat. Conditionally, Captain Ransom, I believe you are familiar with my terms. Ransom beamed and unfastened a gauntlet. Kettle stepped forward warily to accept it. Then she unbuckled her sword belt and passed that over as well. Satisfied. And the knives in your boots, if you please, Grim said. She reached down and withdrew two slender copper-clad blades from the tops of her boots, smiling without a hint of shame or repentance as she surrendered them. I only put them there to give you an excuse to gaze at my lower half, Francis. How thoughtful. Grim replied, his tone disinterested. "What's that at the small of your back?" Ransom reached behind her, and every man in the side party rattled their swords to make sure they'd come clear of their scabbards if need be. Her smile widened, and she produced a small silver flask. "A lovely drop I picked up in Ethiopia. You'd like it." "Fool me twice, shame on me," Grim said. You won't be needing it. She rolled her eyes and passed the flask over as well. Don't you touch a drop of that flask, Kettle? No worries there, Kettle growled. 
I know where it's been. Ransom ignored the comment loftily. Anything else, Francis? She bobbed an eyebrow at him. Should I strip out of my clothes as well? That shall not be necessary, Grimm replied stiffly. Ransom winked at him. I do so appreciate the courtesy that has always shown me when I visit the second fastest ship in the sky. Grimm felt a flicker of utterly irrational annoyance at the mention of the race, and had to fight to keep from clenching his jaw. It is how decent, civilized people behave, Captain Ransom, though I suppose that to someone of your level of moral fortitude it must seem remarkable. She barked out a quick laugh. <laughs> I would say you'd scored a touch, Francis, if I had the least shred of desire for your good opinion. She strode across the deck breezily. Don't bother to show me the way to your cabin, Captain. I'm sure I'll find it in the same place. Grimm watched Ransom walk away and permitted himself a slow exhalation and a narrow-eyed glare. Kettle stepped up next to him, his eyes wary. That woman, Grimm said quietly, drives me quite insane. Kettle grunted. Why'd you marry her, then? Grimm followed her to his cabin and shut the door behind them. He leaned his shoulders back against the door and folded his arms over his chest, mostly to use his right arm to support his wounded left. All right, Calliope, he said. What are you going to make me regret this time? She tossed her hat casually onto his writing desk, settled onto his bunk, and stretched out along it with a smug assumption of the space. Perhaps I missed you. Can't I pay an old friend a social call? Friend, he said, his tone carefully devoid of emotion. Empirical evidence suggests that you cannot. She smiled, the expression impish, her green eyes sparkling in her strong, square face. Had an artist painted Calliope, no one would accuse her of extraordinary beauty, but somehow it was present in any case. In the way she held her head, the glitter in her eyes, in her sheer physical confidence. A still-life image of her was something of an oxymoron. Calliope was never still. Even when she was seemingly motionless, he could see her mind at work, sorting ideas, seeking solutions, cataloguing the space around her. To see her beauty, one had to see her in motion. You've grown so cynical since the Admiralty cashiered you for obeying orders, Francis, she said. It's most unbecoming. Grimm simply stared at her. Calliope rolled her eyes. I'm almost certain that I remember you having a sense of humour sometime in the murky past, at the dawn of history. We used to have a lot of things, Grimm said in a neutral tone. What do you want? I want to make you an offer. An easy job with an excellent profit margin. How believable, Grimm said, but I'm afraid I'd rather not lose another year's earnings to your amusements. It isn't about money, she replied. Since when, Grimm said mildly. I'm doing quite well for myself now, Calliope replied. Why, not a month ago we stumbled upon a damaged Cortez-class merchantman.
She'd had a battle cruiser escort, but apparently it went herring off in pursuit of some dim-witted band of amateur pirates who had made a mess of attempting to take her. Her entire belly was as naked as a newborn. Took the ship and her cargo, sold them, and ransomed back her crew. I've enough money to bathe in at the moment. Grim snorted and opened his door. I believe I've heard enough. Good day, Captain Ransom. No, she replied, her eyes hardening. You haven't heard enough, not yet. Hear me out. Give me one minute. If you don't like the offer, I'll go. Grim twisted his mouth into a frown. We're done here. Calliope sat up, her brows knitted, her gaze intense. Mad, she said very quietly. Please. Grim stared at her for several seconds, then he shut the door again. One minute, he said. Due to a clerical error, I find myself double booked, she said. I've half a load of vat sand bound for Olympia, and the other full of medicine bound for Kisan. I can't make both deliveries in time. Help me out by taking the Olympia run, and I'll split the net profits with you. In theory, I should think a ninety-ten split would be more reasonable," Grim said. "You want ninety percent of my cargo?" Calliope asked. Ten percent and a solid reputation is a great deal more than nothing in a broken contract," Grim said. Theoretically, she narrowed her eyes. Oh, "There's no point in trying to argue with you over this. None whatsoever. I'm not the one who needs help." She pressed her lips together and then nodded once. "You leave me little choice, it would seem. In fact, I leave you none at all. I'm not available. That battle cruiser you mentioned gutted Predator. It'll be days before we can put Sky under her again." Calliope frowned. "What? She's not Skyworthy." "Yet," Grim said. Those green eyes slipped into calculation and seemed to reach some sort of conclusion. She rose abruptly and reached for her hat. Then I suppose I should seek help elsewhere. I'm sure someone would like the work. Grim nodded and opened the door for her. Captain Ransom strode out of the cabin and over to the gangplank, where Kettle warily returned her effects. She glanced back over one shoulder at Grim just for a second and then departed the way she had come. Kettle came over to his side. What did she lie about? Grim shrugged. I'm not certain. All of it likely. Said she had an easy money job for us. Kettle snorted. Precisely. And you told her no. Kettle said rather carefully. Of course I did. The pilot sagged a little with evident relief. Ah, fine. It's never good news when she shows up. Grim found himself frowning thoughtfully. No, no, it isn't, sir. Mist Shark arrives just as the spire comes under attack. Grim asked, "Are we to think it a coincidence?" Kettle grunted. "What do you mean?" The spire arc sent us down to landing to smoke out an enemy force. Grim said, and it just so happens that by chance the fastest ship in the sky is docked in the landing shipyard. Kettle scowled. 
Predator only lost that race because Santos sabotaged our main Hassler cage. Regardless of how it happened, she won, Grimm said. She claimed the fame and glory. Such renown is a marketable commodity. Kettle's frown deepened. You think she's enemy transport? I am disturbed by the presence of inordinate levels of coincidence, Grimm said. I want eyes on Mist Shark at all times. Report anything, no matter how trivial. See it done. Kettle nodded. Aye, sir. Grimm narrowed his eyes thoughtfully. And after that, send Mr.'s journeyman and Stern to my cabin, please. Kettle's concerned frown twisted up into a little smile, and his eyes glittered with a sudden malicious light. Ah, yes, sir. I'll be delighted to. Chapter 32 Spire Albion Habel Landing Ventilation Tunnels Major Ispira seized the sword from the hand of the Auroran Marine braced at attention in front of him. He held up the weapon and inspected it minutely before snarling. You've allowed the copper to wear through. Right there, Marine. He held up the weapon a few inches from the Marine's eyes so that the tiny spot of brown-red rust was clearly visible. The iron rot's already begun. Can you see that? Yes, sir, the Marine said. Why do we clad iron and steel with copper, Marine? The Marine's cheeks coloured slightly. To prevent iron rot from destroying the weapon, sir. Excellent. You do know. And once the iron rot sets into the steel, how long will it be before it spreads from this point and turns the entire thing to rust? A few days, sir. Give or take. Espira nodded. This weapon will not kill whom you need it to kill if it shatters on the first stroke or snaps when you attempt to draw it from the scabbard. I don't mind if your carelessness kills you, but it might also kill your brothers-in-arms, myself among them, when you fail to fulfill your duty. The Marine swallowed, staring ahead, and said nothing. Well, what have you to say for yourself, Marine? No excuse, sir, he replied. Espira passed the weapon back with a sharp motion and said, Report to the armorer, scour the rust off, and seal the bare spot with lead. Once that is done, you will perform maintenance on every spare weapon in the armory, and you will do so with flawless attention to detail. Understood? Yes, sir, the marine replied, saluting. Espira glared all the way down the line of marines from 2nd Company's 1st Platoon. In fact, why don't all of you prepare your weapons and gear for inspection? Again. When I return in one hour, each and every man of you will turn yourselves out like Aurora Marines or God in Heaven bear witness I will send every one of you up the ropes. The faces of more than twenty hard-bitten professional soldiers went pale in a single wave of acute unease, and Espira let the silence weigh heavy before he said, Dismissed! The Marines all executed a drill-ground right face, despite not being ordered to, and marched quietly and efficiently away from the intersection chamber and back down the length of ventilation tunnel to the designated bivouac area. Barely looked like a real spot to me, Major,' rumbled a deep-chested voice from behind him. 
Espira turned to find Sergeant Siriaco standing a few feet away, having approached in total silence. The warrior-born Marine threw him a crisp salute, which Espira returned with equal precision. Sergeant, once upon a time, the first sergeant I worked with taught me to keep nervous men focused on their mission with familiar routine and fear of my wrath if they deviated from it. The other man relaxed, smiling a bit. Did he? He teach you anything else? Only to never expect him to arrive in a timely fashion, Espira said, not quite allowing himself a smile. Where is Lieutenant Lazaro? Siriaco's feline eyes glinted with buried rage. Dead, sir. Espira tilted his head. How? He ignored my advice and made a bad call, Siriaco said. Ran into what he thought were civilians tending wounded after the airstrike. He tried to bluff his way past them instead of shooting them and moving on with our payload. Why? One of them was a pretty girl. Looked like a porcelain doll. He was young, sir. Espira frowned and nodded. Chivalry was a virtue held in high esteem in the upper echelons of Spire Aurora. It took young officers time to learn how seldom it could be indulged in combat. Unfortunately, actual combat could often be abruptly, lethally parsimonious in the matter of how much time it gave young soldiers to learn. What happened? They caught on to him, and the little doll lit up his face with a gauntlet from about two feet away. Espira grunted. Damn, the boy had promise. At least it was quick. The battery? The sergeant shook his head. Waited for the strike team to rendezvous, but they never came, and we never got the explosives to them. Some kind of reserve fleet officer with far too much initiative assembled a militia, brought it into the tunnels, and intercepted us. I presume the battery team is dead, sir. Bah! Espira said. It was only a side errand, and a sensible gamble. But it would have been a nice feather in our caps to have destroyed that damned crystal shop of theirs. He tilted his head, frowning at Siriaco. Are you shot, Sergeant? Huh, a bit, Siriaco said. It'll pass. Damn fool, Lazaro. Lost half the squad. He squinted down the hallway after the departed platoon. Would you really send him up the ropes, sir? Half a tithe of my strength? Don't be absurd. But at the moment... They need something to fear more than a spire full of angry Albions. Suryako's nostrils flared and his eyes shifted to one of the other tunnels leading off from the intersection chamber. That way she is here. Mind your tone, Sergeant, Espira said to the larger man. You're one of the finest soldiers in Spire Aurora, but we all have our orders. Yes, sir. Espira nodded and then followed the sergeant's glance to the darkened tunnel. Madame Cavendish's batman, Sark, stood at the entrance to the tunnel, a sober, frightening figure in black, his wall-eyed face locked into an expression of perpetual boredom. No one with half an ounce of brains in his head would mistake him for anything but a lethal sentry. Espira had been blocking it from his attention deliberately with constant attention to the men, 
but now that all voices had fallen silent, he could hear it again. A high, pitiable, hopeless keening sound that came drifting brokenly out of the darkness. Ren? Syriaco asked in a whisper. A verminositor stumbled onto the base. Espira replied equally quietly. We caught him, but not his partner. He says he was alone. She is here to verify his story. Knives? The warrior-born guessed. Espira shook his head and suppressed a shudder. She took nothing with her. She's a mad beast, Siriaco said. She is our mad beast, Espira corrected him. Be glad she is on our side. The warrior-born narrowed his eyes, staring intently at Sark, and rolled one of his shoulders stiffly as if it pained him. No, sir, Major, he said, I don't think I will. Just then, footsteps sounded in the black hallway, firm and decisive. A moment later, Madame Cavendish emerged from the darkness. She paused at Sark's side, and her batman handed her a small towel. It was only then that Espira noted that her nails and fingertips were wet and scarlet. The sobs in the tunnel continued unabated. The etherealist calmly discarded the cloth and walked over to Espira. Sark loomed in her wake. Major, she said, we have had a stroke of luck. He was indeed working alone, though he believes there will be a search for him in the next twenty-four hours or so. Disappear the body, ma'am. God in heaven, no, she replied. That would only make the Verminoster's guild turn out in increasing numbers, searching more and more tunnels to find one of their own. Take the body and leave it where it will be found in the next few hours. Then there will be no search. Espira nodded slowly, struggling to keep his face neutral. He looked down at the darkness from which weak sounds of despair still drifted. He's alive, ma'am. What is left in that tunnel is a technicality, Cavendish said. But it wouldn't do to have him found with sword strokes and blast wounds in him. She mused for a moment and then smiled. Send him up the ropes. Espira felt his throat tighten again, and his stomach twisted at the idea of doing that to any man, much less a hopeless, broken one. Ma'am? No more than a minute, or there won't be enough left to be identified, Cavendish said. She paused, and then said, her voice harder, Do you understand, Major? Do you know how long a minute is? Espira ground his teeth, but said, Yes, ma'am. Very well. Do your best not to interrupt my preparations again, won't you, dear? I'm expecting guests, and I must be ready to receive them. With that, she turned and began walking calmly away. Sark watched them in silence until she was several paces away, and then he turned to follow her. 
Syriaco waited until Sark was gone to let out a low, leonine growl. We work with the materials we are given, Sergeant, Espira said. The sobbing continued in the darkness. Ren, Syriaco said quietly. Don't order me to send a living soul up the ropes. Of course I won't, old friend, Espira said quietly. Break his neck. Send up the corpse. Dispose of it as Madame Cavendish specified. Espira could feel Syriaco's gaze on him. And then the warrior-born marine sighed and nodded. Yes, sir. Chapter 33 Spire Albion, Havel Landing Bridget had nearly fallen asleep when, a number of hours later, both bored-looking cats abruptly whipped their heads in the same direction, ears pricked forward as if they'd heard something, although Bridget hadn't, beyond the normal muted noises of later hours in the habble. After a moment, both cats simultaneously rose, stretched, and yawned. Folly, wake up, Bridget said. It's time. Folly blinked her eyes open from where she'd been dozing with her head against the wall and looked around, apparently disoriented. Whose time is it? Shh, Bridget said, listening intently. Adequate, Raoul asked the other cat. So it would seem, the strange cat replied. Introductions. Appropriate. Both cats turned at the same time and sauntered toward Bridget and Folly, walking exactly shoulder to shoulder. Folly peered sleepily at them as they approached and whispered to her jar, I wonder which of them won. Bridget felt her eyebrows lifting. I, I believe it was a draw, she whispered back. This is a formidable member of his tribe, she sighed. Just our luck. When we're in such a rush to meet someone who could ignore Raoul for so long. Ought we stand up? Folly asked her jar worriedly. Won't it be seen as disrespect if we do not? A human who is sitting down is a human who cannot possibly pounce on a cat faster than the cat can spring away, Bridget replied. Stay sitting. It's more polite. Oh, Bridget makes it perfectly sensible. Folly said, smiling. I'm so glad I wondered aloud. Raoul prowled over to Bridget and settled comfortably in her lap. Oh, said the strange cat, they belong to you. I had wondered why they waited about. This one belongs to me, Raoul said, leaning his head up to nudge the underside of Bridget's chin. That other one works for me. With you. Bridget said beneath her breath. Raoul flicked a careless ear. It's the same thing. He turned to the strange cat and said, I'm Raoul, Kit of Maul of the Silent Paws. This is Little Mouse. That one has not yet earned a real name. Her name is Folly, Bridget put in, saying all but Folly's name in cat. No real name agreed the other cat. I am Neen, Kit of Norn of the Nine Claws. 
I have heard of the nine claws, Raoul said. They seem perfectly adequate. I have heard of the silent paws, Neen replied. I find nothing overly objectionable about them. The humans of my habel sent little mouse here to ask for help from cats. Neen lashed his tail thoughtfully. That seems overly intelligent for humans. I thought the same, Raoul said. Little mouse, ask. Bridget stared calmly at Neen, matching the cat's enigmatic, confident expression as best she could. If it is not too much trouble, I would like to speak to your clan chief. Neen tilted his head and returned her stare. It almost sounds like a cat. It sounds precisely like a cat, Raoul replied. Some of the hair along his spine rising. Little Mouse is mine, and I will thank you to remember it. Bridget ran a hand down Raoul's spine in just the way he most preferred, and hastened to add, "I know that this request is unusual." Neen, Kit of Norn, but it is very important to the Spyrarch, Lord Albion, and it may be that only the Nine Claws can help us. I beg your indulgence in this matter, and will accept whatever decision you make in it. Neen lashed his tail left and right for a moment before rising and saying, "It is Norn's place to decide. I think, remain here. Norn will see you, or he won't." Farewell, Raoul's little mouse. Then he turned and vanished into the shadows. Goodness, so abrupt! Folly muttered. Cats are not to be rushed, Bridget said. On the other hand, it's rather difficult to slow them down once they've decided to start. She traced Raoul's ears with her fingertips and said to him, "I take it we should wait." You should. Raoul said approvingly, turning in a circle and then lying down in her lap. I, however, am weary from all that diplomacy. I shall sleep. The nine claws kept them waiting for all of half an hour, and then a pair of large male cats appeared from the shadowed hallway. They sat down at the very limits of Bridget's vision. Where the yellow gold gleam of their eyes was the thing she could best see, folly. Bridget said, she touched Raoul's back lightly, and the cat lifted his head at once. Of course, he said and yawned. Now they are quick. It's as though they have no consideration for others at all. Bridget said in a dry tone. I suspect that they do not. Raoul growled, but this is their territory. We must show them. He shuddered. Respect. Bridget nodded firmly and said to Folly, "Let Raoul walk first. Stay even with me, shoulder to shoulder, and try not to look at any specific cat for more than a second or two. It makes them uneasy." Very well. Don't worry, Folly said to her jar. I'm here to protect you. Yes, thank goodness for that," Bridget said, rising as Raoul climbed out of her lap. She offered a hand to Folly and hauled the slender apprentice etherealist to her feet. 
Raoul looked back and up at them, his expression enigmatic, then turned and prowled forward. They followed the pair of male cats into darkness that rapidly swelled and swallowed them. Bridget would have been blind if not for folly and her jar of expended lumen crystals. There must have been several hundred of the little crystals in the girl's container, each producing a faded remnant of its original glow. Any one of them could have barely produced light enough to be seen from the corner of one's eye, but taken together they cast a very soft, nebulous radiance that at least allowed Bridget to follow the cats without walking into a wall or tripping over debris on the tunnel floor. The pair of warriors... They could be nothing else given their size, their silence, and their arrogant demeanour, led them into the ventilation tunnels of the east side of the spire. While the builders had created Spire Albion in the shape of a perfect circle, each habble was laid out as a square fitting within that circle. The extra spaces, at the cardinal points of the compass, were filled with a variety of supporting structures— Systems, ventilation tunnels, waste tunnels and the like. Cats generally preferred the smaller ventilation tunnels for habitation. Bridget could barely squeeze into one of the little tunnels and still wriggle forward, and she devoutly hoped that Norn would meet them in one of the larger tunnels or intersection chambers. It took them only a few minutes to reach a large intersection chamber where, apparently, the Nine Claws had decided to receive them. It was a roomy space, with ceilings that stretched up out of the meagre light of Folly's jar, forty feet wide and perhaps twice as long. Eight ventilation tunnels intersected at this point, and the moving air of the spire's living breath swirled around the chamber, a constant droning sigh. The far side of the chamber featured several pieces of wooden furniture— including a footstool, a wooden chair, a high bar stool, and an impressive, darkly stained table. They were lined up in that order as well, obviously as stairs leading up to what amounted to a dais. A score of warrior cats were arrayed on the various pieces of furniture, or on the ground at their feet, up to the large table, where a single, heavily muscled tomcat of purest black sat with his eyes mostly closed. On the bar stool just below the level of the table sat Neen, with a bored expression, though his tail lashed left and right in agitation. He has his own furniture, Raoul demanded under his breath. Oh, that is simply outrageous. What is he doing with those? Cats have no need for such things. Why do I suspect you're going to want me to buy some for you? Bridget asked. That is not the point, Raoul sniffed. We will discuss such matters later. Bridget kept herself from showing any teeth when she smiled and looked carefully around the large chamber. There were a great many cats looking on. In the wan light Folly held, she could see little of them but for indistinct shapes and the flicker of reflections of green-gold eyes. Hundreds of them. Oh, my, Folly whispered. There are certainly more cats here than I've seen in the duration of my life. And, oh, look, kittens. Bridget arched a brow sharply and turned her head to follow the direction Folly was pointing out to her jar. 
She did indeed spy several tiny sets of eyes, many of them coming closer as the curious kittens crept forward, noses extended, their ears pricked toward the visitors. That was odd. Cats did not expose their kittens to humans. Even Bridget and her father, with their strong relationship with the silent paws, had seen kittens no more than half a dozen times in her life. And now the nine claws had received them in the very same communal chamber where their kittens were being cared for. In fact, this is all of them, Bridget breathed to Raoul. This is the entire clan, kittens and all. Raoul narrowed his eyes and made a quiet sound in his throat. Impossible. Too many tunnels must be watched and guarded and held against encroachers. But even as he said it, Bridget saw his eyes scanning the room, taking an approximate count of their hosts. They're nervous, Folly whispered, banding together for safety. Cats don't do that, Bridget said or began to say, but she stopped herself. Cats absolutely operated in groups to hunt and defend territory more safely, but they certainly did not ever allow themselves to appear to be doing such a thing. Such a lack of independence would be seen as unacceptable. Even a team of cats working together tended to be a loose coalition more than anything, and lasted no longer than was necessary. Clan chiefs like Maul or Norn maintained their position through a dense, complicated network of one-on-one -on -one relationships, through building a general consensus, and when necessary, through the exertion of personal pressure where possible and force where necessary. Getting half a dozen cats to agree upon almost anything was the next best thing to impossible. Getting several hundred to move together to abandon their individual territories. To share a single living space was unheard of, literally. From all she knew of cats, Bridget would never have believed such a tale if someone had told it to her. What in the name of God in heaven was happening in this hovel? Raoul strolled forward through the chamber as if there weren't enough potentially hostile cats surrounding them to smother them all to death beneath their sheer weight. As deaths went, Bridget thought, being asphyxiated by warm, soft, furry little beasts seemed a bit less ghastly than some she had considered lately. But nonetheless, she preferred to avoid it. Raoul, generally speaking, knew very well what he was about. But when his natural ability and confidence failed, the results tended to be the sorts of events one felt obligated to write down in one's diary. She hoped rather fervently that this would not be one of those occasions. Raoul went straight to the lowest stool and mounted it as calmly as if it had belonged to him, and the cats who sat there were forced to give way awkwardly at the last moment, or else find themselves bowled over. Raoul proceeded up the pieces of furniture until he reached a high stool upon which sat Neen. Once he had reached that. Raoul calmly took a seat beside his counterpart and faced Norn attentively. Norn watched this display with narrowed eyes, and the tip of his tail twitched once or twice. Then he eyed Neen. Neen 
idly lifted a paw, cleaning it fastidiously. He was not precisely ignoring his clan chief, but he was, Bridget felt, walking near some sort of boundary. Norn's voice was a deep, growling tone. You are Raoul, of the Silent Paws. I know that, said Raoul. After a moment he added, Sire of the Nine Claws. Norn growled in his chest, Arrogant, just like the other Silent Paws who have visited my domain. I know that too, Raoul said. You know why I have brought these humans to you? Yes, Nunn said. His green-gold eyes flicked to Folly and Bridget. They believe we owe them some sort of service. Sire of the Nine Claws, Bridget said, taking a small step forward. That drew the eye of every cat there. Bridget felt rather abruptly severely unnerved by the attention of so many consummate predators, however small each of them might be individually. She swallowed and kept her voice steady. Lord Albion, the Spyrarch, sent us to request your aid in a matter in which we believe only the Nine Claws can help us. Norn peered at Bridget and tilted his head this way and that for a moment. Is that some kind of trick, Kit of Maul? Like when the humans make those hideous dolls appear to speak? It is no trick, sire, Raoul said easily. This is my human, Little Mouse. And it speaks, Non mused. As I told you, Neen noted. The Elder Nine Claw eyed his kit and considered his own front paws for a moment, as if deciding whether or not he needed to choose one with which to reply. Raoul fainted at Neen's nose with one paw, and the other young cat flinched. Instantly, every warrior cat in the place was on its feet, and Bridget felt almost certain that she could actually hear the mass of fur upon spines suddenly springing straight up. The air whispered with hundreds of low sounds of feline warning. Bridget found herself holding her breath. Raoul ignored the chorus of angry growls with a certain magnificent indifference to reality, looking at Neen in strict disapproval. Respect your sire, Raoul said severely, or you will oblige him to teach you here and now when he obviously has greater concerns before him. Neen blinked at Raoul several times. He took note of the room and all the cats staring at him and abruptly became disinterested, looking out at nothing in particular, his eyes half-closing. There was a long silence, and then Norn let out a low sound of amusement and his ears assumed a more relaxed, attentive angle. Bridget felt her pent-up breath slowly easing out of her again as several dozen of the watching cats joined their clan chief in sharing their amusement. Uh, you have courage, Raoul Silent Paw, Norn noted. Or you are mad. I know that too, Raoul replied. Will you hear Little Mouse's request? Little Mouse, Norn said, his gaze travelling up and down Bridget's large frame. A fine name for her. She grew 
more than was expected. Raoul explained. It was most inconsiderate, but what can one expect? Humans rarely concern themselves with the needs of cats. No one agreed, and those who do are rarely to be trusted. Raoul lifted his chin. Little Mouse, kit of word keeper, is exceptional. Norn studied Bridget with unblinking eyes for a time. Then he said, Raoul, kit of mole, you are a welcome guest in my domain. Raoul tilted his head sharply to one side. Whatever do you mean, sire? Norn's unreadable eyes for an instant were hot with rage. The Nine Claws are no friends to humans, no matter to whom they belong. The older cat turned to stare hard at Bridget. Little Mouse, kit of wordkeeper, you and your companion are unwelcome here. You will depart immediately. You will not return to these tunnels, nor will you attempt to make contact with my clan. Should you refuse to abide by either of these commands, your lives are forfeit. Bridget opened her mouth, startled. But, sire, surely if you would only hear me out... I know why you are here. Norn snarled, rising to all fours. I know you seek to enlist our aid as eyes and ears in the coming conflict, but you will not have it. The war is a human war. It is not a cat war. The Nine Claws will not care if your enemies slaughter every last man, woman, and child. It is all the same to us. We will go on as we have with whatever batch of humans rules this habble. Bridget bit her lip. Well, that was unacceptable. She couldn't simply return and explain to Master Ferris that the cats had said no and what might be his next idea. Miss Lancaster would surely not simply abide by that conclusion. But what could be done? Within this setting, Norn's word was law, and though most people thought cats to be little more than vicious little vermin, good for mostly killing even worse little vermin, Bridget was perfectly aware that cats were willing and able to bring down human beings if they chose to do so. Norn could absolutely make good on his threat. If Norn so ordered it, None of them would leave this chamber. Even so, Bridget had a duty to perform. She had no intention of failing in it. She squared her shoulders and took a deep breath, ready to try again. Folly abruptly seized Bridget's wrist and the slender girl's fingers felt like cold, hard bronze. No! Folly hissed. Can she not see it? See what? Bridget whispered back. Folly turned her head slowly, her eyes raking over the chamber, the shadows, the silent, tense forms of the Nine Claws clan. They are afraid, Folly breathed, barely audible, her lips hardly moving at all. They are being watched. Bridget's mouth suddenly felt dry, her throat tight. Here, now. Folly nodded her head in so slow and slight a motion that Bridget almost thought she had imagined it. Norn turned, the motion deliberate, his dark fur rippling in the dim light of Folly's jar, speaking in a slow, heavy voice. 
You will be shown from this place and put on a path back to the human quarter of the Habble. He paused to glance over his shoulder at Neen and said, his voice heavy with weariness, "Show them to the ropes." Chapter thirty-four. Spire Albion, Habble Landing, Ventilation Tunnels. Raoul. Little Mouse and the slightly odder than usual human girl walked in a circle of Norn's hardiest warriors, half a dozen big battle-scarred toms, most of whom were nearly Raoul's size. Each warrior wore a pair of fighting spurs, curved metal blades fashioned by humans and attached to leather cuffs that wrapped around the cat's rear legs. The spurs were sharp enough when used properly. To be more than a little dangerous, Raoul felt that the escort was largely symbolic. None of them were his match, spurs or not, and Little Mouse, of course, was both armed and an exceptional human with strength that had even impressed the half-soul Benedict. It would take a dozen experienced warriors at least to bring down a human like Little Mouse. Raoul growled in his throat. The first to try it would not live long enough to touch her, and that was what this was about. Norn had extended his hospitality, and with it his offer of protection to Raoul. He had made no such offer for Little Mouse and Folly. Clearly, Norn had no love of humans, for which Raoul could hardly blame him. As a matter of history, cats had usually come to regret entanglements with humans. Humans were fickle, prone to changing their minds without warning or reason. There were very few reliable human beings, even with the half souls among them, which was why those such as Little Mouse and Word Keeper were so very exceptional. It was why no sane cat allowed kits to come anywhere near human beings. Humans seemed to feel that it was perfectly acceptable to teach kits to accept food from their hands as a matter of course, rather than teaching them the importance of hunting skill and self-reliance. Once one had to depend upon someone else for food, one had to depend upon someone else for life itself. To give humans such power over cats was an abomination, but it was far from the only indignity or injustice that humans had meted out over the centuries. Including active hunts of cats at times, blaming them for things no cat would have done for any reason, attempting to poison their food supply or their water, cats and humans regularly clashed in places where their understanding of the local human population was incomplete, and mutual pain was the inevitable result of such a breakdown of basic comprehension. If Norn had suffered through something like that, or if those he cared for had suffered, it could easily drive him to irrational hatred of even exceptional humans like Little Mouse. There were only a few reasons Norn would send them from his territory on a course so different from the one they had taken when they arrived. None of them pleasant. Certainly, Raoul thought, Norn meant for something to happen, something of which he did not, and perhaps could not, if Folly was correct, speak aloud. Raoul's instincts kept repeating calmly that Norn intended to expose them to some kind of danger. 
which was perfectly fine. Raoul could handle any reasonable amount of danger, and between himself and Little Mouse, he felt that there were few challenges that need occupy his thoughts with undue concern. The real reason to him was why Norn would do such a thing. It seemed somewhat rude, especially to a visiting clan chief's heir. But then, Raoul did not yet know everything that was happening. Practically everything he felt certain, but there might be some nuance to the situation or to Norn's motivations that the local clan chief intended to show him, or it could be simple treachery. Raoul had no preference. In either case, he would deal with the problem and then respond to Norn in whatever manner was most appropriate and tasteful. When had he done anything else? The little group reached the mouth of a side tunnel, and the leader of the escort of nine claws toms came to a halt. There, the cat said, down that tunnel. Keep going, and it will lead you out into the human section of the hovel. Will it? Raoul asked calmly. Yes, but you aren't going there, Raoul said. No, you are stopping here. Raoul said, "Yes, because you are afraid." The other cat stared at Raoul with flat eyes. Raoul yawned his unconcern. "If you wish to keep those eyes," he said pleasantly, "move them elsewhere." Raoul, Little Mouse breathed in protest. Little Mouse was such a tender, sensitive thing. Threatening to rip out someone's eyes was probably something she regarded as shocking, no matter how sincere Raoul might be or how well earned the threat had been. Raoul looked up at her fondly, then turned his attention back to their escort. The threat drew a response from the rest of the nine claws present, and they all turned to stare at Raoul. Raoul returned their gazes one by one. And one by one, they turned disinterestedly away from him, as if they'd found their conflict to have suddenly become unspeakably dull. Raoul lashed his tail in satisfaction and said to Little Mouse, "Shall we?" "Of course," Little Mouse replied. "Would you like me to carry you?" Raoul considered the question gravely. "No," he decided. You should be ready to use your gauntlet instead. Bridget's eyebrows went up, but instead of protesting, she calmly rolled her sleeve all the way up and away from the gauntlet. As Raoul understood it, there was no real need for such an action, as long as Little Mouse didn't use the gauntlet too much. But the copper cages around the devices grew very hot after a time and could set cloth aflame. Folly, meanwhile. Stared at the new tunnel's blackness with wide, frightened eyes. Raoul approved. Fear was wisdom in a situation like this, and he was pleased that Folly was obviously intelligent enough to know it. He hoped that she would use the fear to make her cleverer rather than more foolish, but that was asking much of a human, relatively odd or not. I wonder, Folly said to the jar, could we go another way, a way that is not down this tunnel? Unlikely, Raoul said. Norn means us to walk down that tunnel. 
To refuse him would be to challenge his rule. Oh dear, Folly said. <sighs> I think you should walk on my right, Little Mouse said to Folly. Little Mouse was afraid. Raoul could hear her elevated heartbeat, but her voice was as calm and regular as a cat's. He felt that he deserved most of the credit for teaching her that. That way, I can lift my gauntlet hand without bumping into you. Oh yes, she's quite right," Folly said, nodding, and stepped up to stand a little behind Little Mouse and to her right. But one of us should tell her that I would prefer another tunnel, any other tunnel at all in the world, to this one. Hold the lights up, please," Little Mouse asked. "The sooner I can see a potential threat, the sooner I can attempt to blast it." Folly. Solemnly lifted her little jar of crystals to her chin. Thank you, little mouse said. I will go first. Raoul told her, "Please do not tread upon my tail. I find it demeaning." I haven't done that since I was eleven, little mouse said, smiling. Yet, Raoul said. Then he flicked his tail left and right and started down the tunnel. After he had taken a few steps. The clothing of the humans rustled, and they began walking steadily along behind him. There was a strange scent in the tunnel, and Raoul noted it immediately. It was creature flesh. He knew that much. Something had come into the spire from the surface. Its scent pungent and unsettling in his nose. There was the foul taint to it that Raoul had learned to associate with poisonous, inedible kills while he was still a fuzzy little kit. So something particularly strange and perhaps particularly dangerous had recently been in this tunnel. Raoul objected. Granted, the Nine Claws territory was not his to defend, but it seemed grotesquely inappropriate that something should go to all the trouble of coming this far up the spire from the surface, only to prove utterly useless as food after it should be hunted. It seemed very rude to make a cat go to all the work of hunting and killing it, and then not provide the victory feast after the successful conclusion to the hunt. Ahead, Folly breathed. Something, the ceiling. They had to walk another forty steps, fewer for the humans, he supposed, before even his eyes could make out something in the near-perfect shadows of the tunnel's ceiling. The ceiling was perhaps two or three pounces above them, and made of conventional stone rather than spire stone. The humans of Habble Landing had halved the height of the tunnels as well, though Raoul was sure he did not know why they would do such a foolish thing. To provide more tunnels for the top half of their happle, Raoul supposed. There was, Raoul noted, a hole in the ceiling, as wide as the length of his body and tail. From the hole trailed dozens of long lines of some kind, something like all the long ropes on Grimm's airship, but made of different material than those had been. They stirred gently in the breeze of the tunnel. As they did, they reflected hundreds of tiny random colors of light from the jar Folly carried. It was a moment more before Little Mouse and Folly were able to see the lines, and at that point their steps slowed and stopped.
What is that? Little Mouse breathed. What are those ropes made of? Ether silk, Folly whispered. Ether silk rope, Little Mouse asked, her mouth open. Who could afford to make such a thing? It isn't rope, Folly told her jar. But she doesn't know that. She's probably never seen what it looks like before it's been harvested. Harvested, Little Mouse asked. Then she drew in a short, sharp breath. Silk weavers, that's what you mean, isn't it? Folly stared at the hole as though she could not look away and nodded in silence. Bridget shook her head, but they live on the surface and in the mists. They don't. To weave a strand that big, they would have to be enormous. And God in heaven, what lunatic would attempt to tame them? Fools have been trying to domesticate them for their silk for two thousand years with no success, with no survivors. In my opinion, humans are sufficiently foolish to attempt it again. Raoul noted. Oh, Folly said suddenly, and staggered back several steps, flinching away from some unseen threat. Watch out! Raoul stared at the odd human, and for a baffled second, nothing happened. And then there was a chorus of high-pitched, eerie sounds, and dozens of silk weavers plunged through the hole and plummeted toward them. Raoul had never seen one of the creatures before, but he had learned his people's lore about the silk weavers, along with a nightmarish menagerie of creatures like them. He knew them, knew how they hunted, and he knew how to kill them. The first movements proved to be half a dozen creatures, about half of Raoul's own size. He estimated, they had a dozen legs, spread out along either side of a lean, hard-scaled body that made them look something like overly enthused silverfish. Their heads, however, were bulbous, sporting short muzzles that opened in three parts that were all serrated along the inside. Streamers of silk. Issued from their rear parts, providing a kind of drop line that they would use to control their fall. The fresh exuded silk, Raoul remembered, was quite adhesive and presented additional danger. It would not do to be hasty, so he contemplated his actions carefully, until the silk weavers had fallen almost halfway to the tunnel floor, and then he moved. He bounded up, not at the lowermost of the falling silk weavers, but at the highest. He slammed both front paws into the thing, stiff-legged, and shoved it back. Raoul used the momentum to twist in the air and land on his feet, his head already tracking to see the results of his attack. His victim swung in a wide arc, its silk line tangling with those of its companions. The silk weavers let out whistles of distress as the sticky silk at their rear ends clung to other lines and weavers alike. One of them became hopelessly tangled, and two more had legs wound up in twists of silken line. The other three managed to escape the tangle and drop to the floor. Raoul pounced on the first and batted it as hard as he could with his paws, knocking it away onto its side. The second got the same treatment, and then the third leapt upon Raoul. The warrior cat had been waiting for the stupid things to get around to that. 
He flung himself in the direction of the silk weaver's leap, flipping himself onto his back in a sinuous motion as he did. The silk weaver came down, poisonous jaws questing for his flesh, and he held it away with his front paws. While raking savagely with the claws on his rear legs at its vulnerable underside, the silk weaver's legs convulsed as Raoul hit something vital, and the cat flung it off him contemptuously. Neither of the other two had risen to their many legs yet, and were still thrashing on the stone floor. He pounced on the nearest, got a good grip on its underbelly with his jaws, and before it could curl and bite him, he shook it savagely, ripping the frail underbody open. It let out a shriek like the first, legs thrashing and tumbled free, leaving a mouthful of its vitals behind. Raoul spat the foul-tasting thing out of his mouth and turned toward the third silk weaver. Only to see Little Mouse's large, sturdy shoe come crushing down on the thing like a column of living stone. The silk weaver was quite simply no match for that kind of mass and strength, and it didn't so much die as explode in every direction. Raoul whirled toward the tangled silk weavers, leapt upon one of them, and killed it with his jaws, taking care to avoid the silk himself. And while he did, Little Mouse stomped the remaining two silk weavers into splatter marks on the floor. Handy, humans, Raoul thought, clumsy, slow, and not always terribly bright, but they were very, very strong, through sheer inarguable mass. He now saw his father's wisdom in desiring to keep a few of them around the home tunnels. They could manage annoying problems that might prove awkward and time-consuming for cats. Raoul looked around calmly for more foes to defeat, but he'd run out of enemies with which to amuse himself. Just as well, he supposed. They tasted horrible, and it would take him a week to get all of their goo and stench out of his fur. Well, I have saved you both," Raoul said to the humans. Though I will concede, little mouse, that you were not entirely useless to me in this matter. Thank you," little mouse said gravely. She examined the bottom of her stomping shoe and shuddered. Ugh! How revolting! How useless," Raoul said, disgusted. It was barely a fight at all. And we can't even eat them. Just as well, Little Mouse said. They have a poisonous bite, do they not? Were any of us bitten? Raoul asked. No. Then no, Raoul said simply. They obviously did not. He gave her gauntlet a pointed glance. An unused weapon is not a weapon at all. I didn't have time to aim it before they were bouncing all over the floor," Little Mouse said. "And after that, they were all around you. You did ask me not to step on your tail with my boots. I assumed you would not want me to step on it with my gauntlet either." Raoul considered that and nodded. "That does not seem unreasonable, I suppose. Presumptuous, but not stupid." "Thank you," Little Mouse said. In that tone of voice that sometimes made Raoul wonder whether she was in some way mocking him, he couldn't be sure. Little Mouse was woefully lacking in ears, 
and had no tail whatsoever. How on earth was one supposed to know what was going on behind those enormous myopic eyeballs without some kind of cue? So that's what that is like, the odd human was saying. She shivered. Weavers, weavers, run! Folly, little mouse said. It's all right. They're dead. We've killed them. Folly shook her head in a jerky motion and jabbed a finger upward. Bridget doesn't know," she whimpered. "Bridget doesn't. There, there, there." And with that, a flood of silk weavers poured from the hole in the ceiling. They were all more or less the same size as the first group of creatures, but there were more of them—not dozens, not scores, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of them. Pouring out like water in a chorus of shrieks, a rattling thunder of clashing serrated jaws, swarming down the already hanging silk lines like inverted aeronauts, like fleets of them. It was just possible that there were too many for Raoul to exterminate alone. Run, little mouse bellowed. She grabbed Folly, and Raoul flung himself into a run beside them. The etherealist's apprentice and the two guardsmen, neither of whom were guarding anything, or, in point of fact, men, took off down the hallway at a frantic sprint. A chittering tide of silk weavers boiled along behind them. Chapter Thirty-Five, Spire Albion, Habel Landing, Ventilation Tunnels. Just before the original six silk weavers hurled themselves at them, Folly had watched it happen. It had been quite unnerving, really. She had stared at the hole in the ceiling and suddenly felt the utter irrational certainty that six silk weavers were hurtling out of it. She could see nothing, and yet she felt that she could have counted the spiky hairs on their many legs if she'd cared to do so. While her eyes told her the space was empty, every primitive nerve in her body had fired off howls of panicked warning, and she had been able to do nothing but flinch and scream. It was a second later before the silk weavers actually appeared, and Folly, confused, had simply stared as Raoul and Bridget dispatched them. She hadn't been stunned for very long, really. That cat had moved with an utter disregard for the superior numbers of the foe, and, for that matter, of gravity. Within a handful of seconds, the six silk weavers had died. Folly saw the conclusion of the fight in her thoughts a few seconds before it actually ended, which could only mean she had successfully tracked a possible future. Oh, she heard herself say, "So that's what that is like." And then a stirring in the ether, like the first that had warned her of a malicious presence beyond the hole in the ceiling, slithered through the air. Only this one was far, far larger. Folly immediately tilted her head to one side, struggling to track the sensation. Her eyes slipped out of focus because they were of no use, no use at all, and she shuddered as she realized what she was feeling. Another possible future coalescing before her mind's eye, and this future included more silk weavers, hundreds more. Weavers, she breathed. Weavers, run. Folly, Bridget said. It's all right. They're dead. We've killed them. 
Folly shook her head as the malicious presence in the ether suddenly looked back at her. A shock of immaterial sensation as unsettling as a sudden scream in one's ear. That presence seemed to focus on her, and then it began to rush closer. That was when Folly understood for the first time the nature of the enemy her master had warned her about. Those hadn't been silk weavers that Raoul and Bridget had dispatched; they'd been puppets. Bridget doesn't know," Folly said to the empty air, struggling desperately to latch onto the same sense of distilled instinct that had let her track the future of the initial attack. The invisible sense of a thousand images blurred through her mind, like a hundred people singing different songs all at once. It was painful. And she felt that she had glimpsed only the barest trace of possibility. She could possibly escape, and Raoul might have a chance. But Bridget doesn't," she said aloud. She looked around wildly, trying to find more futures, a path to survival for all of them. But it was like trying to catch a specific gnat out of a cloud of them. Bright chances flitted by nimbly, and folly struggled to understand them before they vanished. There was one, and there, and there. She was barely aware that her mouth was moving. There, there, there. Even as she spoke, the future coalesced into certainty, and she had less than a second's premonition before the silk weavers physically poured down from the layer above them. She needed a future with life in it, and sought desperately. While a hideous horde of painful, increasingly probable futures assaulted her thoughts like pieces of stinging hail striking her skull, it was new and odd and utterly terrifying. For some part of her actually lived through each future she saw. She fought to hang on to it, but she could not retain the vision, and it vanished. Run, Bridget bellowed, and Folly felt herself being propelled. She stumbled into a run beside the taller girl, and the horde of little silk weavers came after them. She struggled for a few seconds more to attain enough clarity and calm to see the future, to find some path to survival, and then abandoned the effort. That was the mark of a true master etherealist: the ability to look into the future in any circumstance, no matter how dire. And it required a level of self-mastery and concentration that she had clearly not yet attained. Bridget twisted to unleash the fury of her gauntlet into the swarm behind her, but she might as well have been tossing stones at a grease fire for all the good it did. Of course, looking on the bright side, there were so many silk weavers that Bridget could hardly miss, could she? So at least they had that going for them. But the silk weavers were gaining. Folly forced herself to order her thoughts as the master had so often practiced with her. It would have helped if she could have sat down in a nice lotus position and breathed quietly for a while, but the silk weavers seemed unlikely to extend that courtesy to her, so she made do with synchronizing the beat of her thoughts to that of her pounding heart and running feet, and the etheric world opened itself to her. Everything changed. The world faded into an utterly black void. A blaze with traceries of etheric light. 
The tiny crystals in her jar twinkled brightly, and the weapon crystal of Bridget's gauntlet glowed like a miniature sun. Raoul and Bridget appeared to her as phantoms, partially illuminated by the glow of etheric energy passing through them, but mostly to be seen as shadows where that energy was absent. Pulsing streamers of energy flooded through the walls and floor of the spire. The spire stone drawing it from the sky and conducting it down through its matter to the earth, a lightning rod being continuously struck. She cast a glance over her shoulder and saw the horde of silk weavers shining like an out-of-control fire, every single creature ablaze with clouds of light. Using this portion of her mind to see, Folly could peer through the seemingly solid stone as if it had not been there at all. Though it was a rather dizzying, disorienting activity within a spire, there were myriad flows of energy going generally downward, but also lancing back and forth through channels in the spire stone, placed there by the builders, so that the spire's systems could support the lives of its residents. If a truly complex clock had been manufactured out of translucent glass, Folly imagined. Her current quandary might be an experience similar to trying to find a single part located somewhere within it. They needed a smaller tunnel, something that would let them pass through easily, but bottleneck their pursuers, slowing them. And Folly found one at hand. Now, if she could only find an etheric nexus, there might be more possibilities open to her. That way, she shouted to her jar. And abruptly turned down a much narrower passage with a much lower ceiling. Folly, Bridget shouted in protest, but it wasn't as though the larger girl had any choice in the matter of which way to go. Folly had the only light. Bridget slipped on her silk weaver slimed shoes, righted herself, ducked, and plunged into the smaller tunnel after Folly. Raoul entered behind Bridget. Letting out a snarling, hissing cat scream of warning at the foremost silk weavers as he did, and the three of them fled down the much more constricted hallway. Their footsteps were loud in here, their breathing deafening. Bridget had to run in a crouch, but the tide of silk weavers pursuing them had to slow at the entrance, like water pouring from a small hole in a large vessel. Their pursuers were no fewer in number. But fewer could approach them at once, and that was very nearly the same thing for Folly's purposes. Though now that she considered it, Folly had never regarded herself as the sort of young woman who had purposes precisely. That was potentially a troubling development, not nearly so troubling as being torn to pieces by thousands of silk weavers, of course, but it was a matter upon which to be deliberated, assuming, of course, that she survived the next few moments. Folly led them down the choked hallway, slowing her steps slightly so that she could sweep her ether-focused gaze around them for further options. And then suddenly she was able to see one of the things that might change the situation—a nexus. Flows of etheric energy coursed down from half a dozen directions, pouring into a single downward-flowing conduit. And at the point where they merged together, excess energy overflowed the conduit. Spreading out into the air of the tunnel in a gossamer backwash, that cloud of etheric force all but sang to Folly, 
and she rushed forward in a desperate sprint, panting, fumbling for her pistolier's holsters as she went. Folly! shouted Bridget from behind her. Wait! There wasn't time. Not if the tide of silk weavers was to be stemmed quickly enough to save Bridget's life. Folly ripped out the two mesh sacks of quiescent lumen crystals from the holsters and gave them a quick snap, one at a time, dumping their contents onto the floor of the tunnel. Then, without hesitating, she smashed her jar of crystals down to the stones as well. And for an instant, the tunnel went completely dark. Folly could see, of course, by the fey illumination of her ether sight, but she supposed it might have been a terrifying moment for Bridget, who unleashed a despairing shriek. But that, Folly supposed, was only because Bridget had never seen what an etherealist, even an imperfectly trained one like Folly, could do with a supply of ready energy and vessels to contain it. All of us together now! Folly admonished the crystals, and felt their sleepy, rather muzzily confused sense of aggregate agreement. And then she seized upon the freely flowing etheric energy with her thoughts, and sent it coursing down into the crystals. Infused with energy far beyond that which had originally been stored within them, the little lumen crystal's radiance swelled from faint ghostly glows to a thousand merry pinpoints of radiance, a sudden well of white light. Shrieks of surprise and distress arose from the silk weavers, a surge of raw sound compressed by the narrow confines of the tunnel into a sledgehammer. Folly did her best to ignore its impact and staggered only a little. Then she threw her hand out toward the tunnel down which they had just fled, giving the flows of energy a quick mental nudge, and sent a spray of little crystals flying down the silkweaver-filled hallway in a glittering cloud that scattered among the silkweavers in an entirely random distribution. The next part was tricky, and Folly hoped that the crystals remembered her endless practice sessions. Lumen crystals were designed to accept a charge of etheric energy and output a steady trickle of light. But light was really just one of any number of possible expressions of energy. Weapons crystals did the same thing, only with heat and force. Lift crystals expressed that energy in a form of inverted gravity. And the most complex crystals of all, power core crystals, expressed their energy in another form. Electricity. There was no difference between a lumen crystal and a power core, really, except that the power core crystal was grown with the complex pathways needed to route etheric energy into a rising surplus, converting it into bottled lightning. There was no reason a little lumen crystal could not do the same thing, assuming that someone was willing to provide them with a blueprint of the necessary structured paths. So folly... As quickly and ably as she could, imagined the precise sort of pathways her little crystals would need to employ. That was a fairly elemental exercise, but doing it a thousand times all at once was something of an ambitious effort, more so than any she had successfully used in her practice sessions. Of course, 
The practice sessions had been embarked upon with the precise goal of providing her with the skill she'd need for a moment just such as this. Goodness, think of what trouble they'd be in if Folly hadn't practiced. So because it was right and necessary to do so, she simply imagined a thousand different complex, unique little paths for her baby lumen crystals all at once. Well... She shouldn't exaggerate, really, since that was boastful. There were 987 crystals on the floor, so she modestly imagined 987 patterns, one for each little crystal, to show them how to use the energy she was feeding them. And the hallway behind them, and every silk weaver in it, was suddenly wreathed in a latticework of blinding blue-white lightning, the noise of it was really quite startling, a cloud of individual snap cracks that sounded rather similar to the discharge of a weapons crystal, only since there were 987 of them, all within the same second or two, the noise was equivalent to a small army firing a fusillade within the confines of the little access corridor. The heat was fearsome as well, and with the heat came a blast of wind that was, folly felt, really quite unnecessary to the process, neither adding significant fearsomeness to the unleashed energy, nor accomplishing anything other than to knock Folly and Bridget down soundly, and to scatter her matrix of lumen crystals hither and yon. Folly lay on the floor after, because it seemed the proper thing to do. She blinked several times up at the ceiling, and realised that, without her ether sight, she could not be sure she was in fact looking at the ceiling at all. When one assumed, one quite frequently was correct, but it was hardly a constant. There was etheric energy spilling from the nexus still, and Folly waved her hands at it vaguely, sending it out toward her little crystals. Without Folly's thoughts to guide them, they were once more innocent of the knowledge of how to turn etheric force into violent death, the little crystals began to glow cheerfully, lighting the entire length of the access tunnel. Folly turned her head to find Bridget staring, most definitely, at the ceiling. The larger girl had a scorch mark on her chin and a long scratch along her hairline that had bled toward her eye without obscuring it. She blinked several times and then looked around them dazedly. Folly turned her head the other way to find Raoul standing over her. The cat's fur stood straight out in every direction, though there were uneven gaps here and there where it had been singed away. The cat's expression, Folly noted, was very cat-like. Raoul swatted her nose firmly with one paw, claws sheathed. Then, with massive dignity... He rose and firmly turned his back on Folly to walk over to Bridget, nuzzling her and letting out an encouraging purr. Folly continued to lie meekly on the floor. Raoul, she thought, probably had some sort of point. She really hadn't expected quite that much excitement. What would the master think? He did so disapprove of showing off. And besides... She felt quite thoroughly exhausted, at least as sleepy as her brood of tiny crystals. Bridget sat up slowly. She turned her gaze up and down the hallway. 
The air was full of the stench of scorched silk weavers, though there really wasn't a great deal left of them. A leg here, a bit of shell there, a fang there. The hallway was black with fine ash. The former vatterist shook her head slowly and said in an awed tone, "Folly, your little crystals did this. Don't brag." Folly admonished her crystals firmly. "You couldn't have if I hadn't shown you how." Bridget blinked several times. "You did this." Folly sighed and closed her eyes. She really did feel quite tired. As an exercise. She mused aloud. It was really quite simple, not at all easy, but quite simple. I don't. Bridget began. I had no idea. That was. Folly had been trained for this as well. Most folk had no idea how formidable an etherealist's skills could be when applied properly. When they learned, their general reaction was, she had been assured. One of understandable, if irrational, fear, which was a shame, because it had seemed that Bridget might have been a rather lovely friend, and she really didn't want to start crying. It would be perfectly awkward. Amazing, Bridget finished. God in heaven, Folly! I thought we were finished. Well done. Folly blinked, opened her eyes, and stared at Bridget for a moment. Then she felt herself smile. She looked down very quickly as Bridget's shape went all blurry. How odd that suddenly her tears did not feel awkward at all. Then Raoul let out a sharp hiss. Folly felt it at the very last instant, too late. The awful attention of the awareness she'd sensed before, while they were searching for the nine claws. It was the enemy. She felt almost certain. She couldn't think of a better sobriquet for the malevolent presence that had been driving the silk weavers like an enormous threshing machine intent on murdering them. It was as if the spirit of hatred itself had been given a mind and a dark will, and was eager to convey its malice through the medium of the hideous creatures of the surface. What kind of creature could have such a horrible will? How could such an intangible thing be fought? In a lifetime of strangeness, Folly had never heard of such a thing before, and she found that it frightened her a very great deal. That same enemy presence now sent a trio of the little creatures, burned and mangled, but alive and obviously dangerous, toward Folly's weary, recumbent form. Everything happened very, very quickly. Raoul. Let out a shrieking snarl and flung himself on the silk weaver farthest to one side. Then there was the howl of a discharging gauntlet, and the second silk weaver vanished, burned and blown to bits by the blast of Bridget's gauntlet. The third silk weaver flung itself onto Folly's face, and was intercepted just short of it by Bridget's fist. The larger girl simply drove her arm down like a steam engine's piston, crushing the silk weaver to the spire stone floor and ending its attempts on Folly's life with a perfect brutal finality. Oh, Folly breathed. Her heart was racing painfully. Oh my! There, Bridget said, 
nodding in satisfaction. Raoul? The cat had finished dispatching his opponent and approached, shaking one of his front paws in pure distaste. They are the last, the cat reported. Can I use my metal circles to hire a human to clean my paws? Is there a human who could do so competently? I shall do it, Bridget said, rising. She winced and touched her cut lightly. But I desire competence, Raoul protested. You are too rough with your wet cloths. If you would only use your tongue, as is proper. I think not, Bridget replied firmly. I know where your paws have been. She offered Folly her hand. Can you rise? Folly took her friend's hand and rose. She wobbled for a moment, but Bridget steadied her until the hall stopped spinning hatefully about. Raoul, Bridget said, are these silk weavers grown? They are grown as much as they ever shall be, Raoul said with satisfaction. You know what I mean. I do not think they are mature, Raoul replied. My people's lore suggests that adults are two or three cat weights or larger. Hatchlings, Bridget said, frowning. Could little silk weavers like this have spun the lines we saw back at the hole in the ceiling? Oh, Folly said. Oh, Bridget is clever, in a very horrifying sort of way. No, these little things could not have done so. Adults had to lay eggs and spin those lines, Bridget said. But if only the hatchlings remained to attack us. Raoul growled. Indeed. Where are the adults? Folly's heart began to race in real panic this time. Oh, she breathed, her instincts screaming to her precisely where the enemy would direct its deadliest weapons. Master! Chapter 36 Spire Albion, Habble Landing the Black Horse Inn. It was well after midnight. Gwen felt simple-minded with exhaustion, and the Spyrarch's master etherealist was leading the bar in an enthusiastic round of Farmer Long's Cucumber, a song that featured a number of shocking concepts Gwen had scarcely encountered before that night, along with what seemed to be an infinite number of verses. Really, Benedict, she complained, I'm sure I've no idea where you could have learned such a crass piece of exploitative trash. And she hid it there again, Benedict sang, grinning before turning to his cousin. From Estabrook, naturally. The cad! Are you almost out of verses, at least? Benedict took a sip of his drink, his expression scholarly. Marines on an airship apparently make a custom of writing more verses to their favourite songs during their tours of duty. Only the best. You mean most obscene? Gwen interjected. Benedict bobbed his head in acknowledgement. Only the best are retained. But even so, after several centuries of sailing tradition... Gwen arched an eyebrow. You're telling me that they're going to go on all night, aren't you? Well past that, if they don't get tired of it, Benedict said. 
He squinted up at the cheery, ruddy-cheeked etherealist. One wonders, though, where Master Ferris learned them. I was once a marine, of course. Ferris bellowed. Then he and several customers of the pub shouted in unison, "Semper fortitudo." Gwen sighed. Fortitudo, Miss Lancaster," Master Ferris said, and plopped from the table down into his chair with the grace, or at least the drunken recklessness, of a much younger man. An old, old word, even by my standards. Do you know what it means? Strength," Gwen said promptly. "Always strong." Ah, but what kind of strength? Ferris asked over the roar of a new singer taking over more verses of the song. This one featured Farmer Long's cucumber falling in a mud hole, and Gwen wanted nothing to do with it. Sir, there are many, many kinds of strength. Fortitude refers to something quite specific. He poked a finger at Benedict's biceps in demonstration. Not this kind of brute power. Not at all. It means something more: inner strength, strength of purpose, moral courage, the strength required to fight on in the face of what seems to be certain defeat, the strength to carry on faithfully when it seems no one knows or cares. He swirled his cup and eyed Gwen. And the strength to sacrifice oneself, when that sacrifice is what is required for the good of others, even when one could offer someone else up instead, especially then. Gwen smiled briefly. How um, pointlessly trivial, Ferris suggested quickly. I was going to say interesting, Gwen said in a mild tone. And that's as close to diplomatic as she gets. Benedict noted. Gwen kicked her cousin's ankle beneath the table. Master Ferris, it grows late. Indeed, the etherealist said and stifled a yawn with one hand. Perhaps we should consider discontinuing our investigation until we have heard from our field agents. You mean the cat? Gwen asked. Quite. Master Ferris suddenly peered at Benedict. I say, boy, what's caught your interest? Benedict's feline eyes were focused on the bar at the far side of the room, where the master of the house was speaking in a low voice with a newcomer. His expression intent. The fellow was a broad, burly man in green aviation leathers and a greatcoat trimmed in the thick grey-brown fur of some creature of the surface, making his already massive shoulders look inhumanly broad. The coat's sleeves bore the two broad rings of an airship's captain. His square face was ruddy and getting ruddier, and he slammed a blocky fist down onto the bar hard enough to be heard even over the singing crowd. What? One thick fist shot across the bar and seized the innkeeper by the front of his suit. The frantic innkeeper darted a nervous glance over toward their table and spoke in a low, hurried voice to the burly aeronaut. "Ah," said Benedict. "I think now I see why our host was so reluctant to rent you the room, Cuz. He'd already promised it elsewhere." "That isn't a fleet uniform," Gwen noted. "It is not," Benedict said. "Not a uniform at all, really." 
He must be a private captain. Olympian, I should think, from the colours and the fur trim of his coat. Master Ferris put in Olympian, and it would seem possessed of a fury, which is funny if you know enough history. The Olympian released the innkeeper after a few more low, choice words, and then stalked toward their table, scowling. Gwen studied him the way she'd been taught to consider possible opponents, and found herself growing alarmed. The man moved far too lightly on his feet for someone with a build so powerful, and his balance, as one might expect from an aeronaut, was excellent. Worse, his eyes were quick and alert, sweeping the room as he moved. The mark of a man who was on guard for trouble. Gwen had attained some modest skills in the hand-to-hand -hand combat arts of the Wayists, but she had, or so she thought, no illusions about her ability to deal with a much larger or better-trained opponent without the element of surprise to support her skill. Benny, Gwen said, unless you think we should shoot him. I'm not the one who bought his bed out from under him, Cuz," Benedict said. "This situation looks like it needs smoothing to me. I'd rather not be transmogrified into paste while trying it," Gwen said. Benedict sat back in his chair, his eyes amused, and said diffidently, "Did you, however, briefly consider talking to him, just for the sake of novelty?" He doesn't look like a man who would react well to threats. An extremely fine coat, Master Ferris mused. They don't give those to just anyone, do they? Benedict arched an eyebrow at the etherealist and said to Gwen, "I said talk as opposed to threaten. Though one hardly needs struggle to see the possibility that you might not understand the distinction. You make me sound like a perfect ogre," Gwen said. But an articulate, wealthy, and very stylish one, cuz," Benedict said. "Beautiful too. Try it, just for fun, and if it doesn't work out, we can always grind his bones to make our bread later. Or," Master Ferris mused, "be ground, as the case may be." The Olympian captain reached their table. Slammed his fist down on it hard enough to make all of the crockery and utensils jump up off the surface, and demanded, "Get out of my room." Gwen didn't mind the threat display so very much. God in heaven knew she'd made a few herself in the past several days, but neither did she care for it nor feel terribly frightened by it. She was, after all, wearing a gauntlet. But then she noted, so was the Olympian. I'm very sorry to have inconvenienced you, sir," Gwen said. "But my associates and I required the room. It might be better if you looked elsewhere." The man who had been staring hard at Benedict turned his eyes to Gwen for a flickering glance before tracking back to the warrior-born. "She speak for you." "For the purposes of this discussion, I'm afraid so," Benedict replied. "Fine." The man said, and turned to face Gwen, looming over her. Then you, go gather up everyone's things and get them out of my room, girl. Now. She recognized the tone of absolute authority in the man's voice, and she did not care for it at all. Introductions, she said crisply. That gave the Olympian an instant's pause. What? 
You have not introduced yourself, sir," Gwen said, her voice hard. "I should like to know your name before I exchange another word with you." The man straightened, his eyes narrowed, and then he shook his head. "Bloody Albion fussbothers!" He took a deep breath, visibly controlling more vile language, and then said, "Pine, Commodore Horatio Pine of the Half Moon Merchant Company out of Olympia." And I don't give a tenth crown who you are. That suite is reserved for my captains and myself. And we've just walked a mile on the surface to get to this bloody spire, and nearly got shot up by your own bloody fleet when we finally made it through. I'm in no mood for games. Gwen nodded. My name is Gwendolyn Lancaster, of the House of Lancaster. Yes, before you ask. Those Lancasters, the ones who made the crystals that are most probably keeping your ships in the air, sir. And while I sympathise with your plight, I am afraid that I still require those rooms. So yourself and your friends can do some comfortable drinking. Pine spat. I've got wounded men who need good rooms and the attention of physicians, and this bloody habble is packed to the roof. Get out of those rooms. Or by God in heaven and the long road, both, I will leave you all unconscious in an alley and move my men in anyway. Perhaps such brutish thuggery is how things are done in Olympia, Gwen said, her voice lashing out like a whip's crack. But in Albion, sir, there is rule of law, and I shall be pleased to defend myself against any such violence. Pine narrowed his eyes, then he said to Benedict, "You sure she speaks for you?" Benedict sighed and leaned forward to lightly thump his forehead down onto the table, several times. I didn't threaten him," Gwen protested to her cousin. There was a sharp sound of crockery breaking, and Gwen turned to find that Master Ferris's mug had dropped from suddenly limp fingers. He made a soft sound and twitched several times. Then he shivered and his eyes closed. Gwen traded a look with Benedict and held up a forestalling hand to Commodore Pine. Master Ferris, she asked after a moment. Master Ferris, are you quite all right? Ferris opened his eyes, rose calmly, and said in a level tone, "Sir Benedict, I wonder if you would be so good as to draw your sword." Miss Lancaster, prime your gauntlet, if you please. He took his chair and slid it over to Commodore Pine. This, sir, is for you. You'll find it quite wieldy, I expect. Pine blinked several times. What? Gwen, Benedict snapped, rising and drawing his sword. His eyes everywhere. Gwen swallowed and instinctively put her back to Benedict's, and as Master Ferris had instructed, primed her gauntlet, the weapon crystal on her palm swelling to glowing life. And then the doors of the black horse exploded open, and high-pitched alien shrieks filled the air. Chapter Thirty-Seven, Spire Albion, Habble Landing, the Black Horse Inn. The doors to the Black Horse slammed into the walls, framing them, and what could only be a creature of the surface world squeezed inside. 
The thing was leathery and enormous, double or triple the mass of the largest man Gwen had ever seen, but it somehow managed to compress itself and come through the door without slowing down. Its segmented body was something like a spider's, but with four sections instead of two, elongated grotesquely, and some kind of dark grey carapace covered its back in flexible articulated plates. It had too many legs to be a spider, too, all of them thick and massive at the base, covered in thickets of some kind of spine or rigid, sharp-looking hairs. Its head was hideous, Gwen thought. It was half shrouded in protrusions of its armour, wide and flat, with a nest of beady, gleaming eyes on either side, and a set of massive jaws hinged to great bulging muscles along its skull. It slammed the door to the black horse closed, and then its rearmost legs spun a coil of some viscous grey substance onto the door behind it. Silk weaver! Someone cried. The room erupted into panic. Patrons lunged up out of their seats, screaming. Some of them ran toward the stairway to the private rooms. Most fled toward the opposite door or the kitchen. A handful drew swords and raised gauntlets. The silk weaver gave them no time to attack. It flung itself to the far side of the room, hurling its massive body into a luckless patron in aeronauts' leathers, smashing the man into the spire-stone wall of the inn with an audible cracking of bones. The silk weaver then slammed the other door closed and once more webbed it shut, while its eyes scanned the room, looking, she realized, for a target. As it did, it distractedly seized a reeling patron with its long front set of limbs and slammed the man to the floor with casual, lethal power. Dear God in heaven, Gwen breathed, a chill settling in her belly. It's intelligent. Impossible, Commodore Pine snarled, gripping the chair in both meaty hands and stepping back to stand even with Benedict and Gwen. Silk weavers are beasts. That's not a silk weaver. Master Ferris said in a matter-of-fact tone. The etherealist leaned forward and plucked a pitcher of beer from the table. It's a marionette. Some sort of puppet, at any rate. Pine scowled at Master Ferris as the man began to take a long and determined pull from the pitcher and then turned his glare to Gwen. How drunk is that man? He's an etherealist, Gwen said, and quite. Huh? Pine blinked, eyed Master Ferris with decided apprehension, and said, Ah, we have to get Ferris out of here, Benedict said in a low, tense voice. It's here for him. Quite, burbled Master Ferris, from the midst of another drink. He coughed and wiped at his mouth. Quite, yes, it's been sent to stop me from interfering. With what? Pine demanded. I really have no idea, Ferris said happily. I've been changing my mind all night, which is why it can't find me, I presume. Gwen watched in horror as the silk weaver waited until several folk had pressed toward the doors to the kitchen together, and then it simply flung itself at them in another fantastically powerful bound. It struck them like a runaway freight cart, making wreckage of bodies in a chorus of screams. Its many legs struck like deadly clubs at whoever survived the impact. 
A drunken armed patron discharged a gauntlet into the thing from no more than a foot away, but the silk weaver's carapace shed much of the force of the blast, and the attack did little more than melt a small crater into its hide. The weapon did get the creature's attention, though, and it turned lightning quick for something so large, and its jaws opened into three parts that closed on the armed man's gauntlet wrist. And severed it from his body as neatly as the Lancaster's gardener clipping a rose stem. After that, the silk weaver began spinning again and barricading the door to the kitchen with grisly corpses and silk webbing. The folk remaining in the room were fleeing toward the stairs, the only exit remaining to them. Stairs, Benedict said in a harsh voice. No, we can't run. We have to kill it. Gwen heard herself say in a hard, vicious voice, "Gauntlets are useless against that armor. If we trap ourselves in narrow hallways and tiny rooms, we play to its strengths, and it will murder us all one at a time. We're still guardsmen, Benedict, with orders to protect Master Ferris. We protect him by killing that horrible thing before it hurts any more Albions." Gwen spat, "Right here, where we have room to use our numbers against it, while we still have them to use." Little girl's right," Commodore Pine grunted. "Rats take me. That's a huge one, but not invincible. If we can get to its belly, we can kill it. Nothing but blubber and arteries down there. A shot to its head might do the trick if anyone can make it around the armor." Gwen nodded sharply. The silk weaver had its head shrugged down behind its knobby armored shoulders as it worked, a difficult target and one that would not sit still once someone pointed a weapon at it. She turned to the etherealist. "Can't you do anything?" "I'm afraid my cane is upstairs in the suite," Ferris said apologetically. "It would have given me away. Without it, I can't do anything significant." "Go get it." Gwen said through clenched teeth. Ferris opened his mouth and stared at Gwen helplessly, then waved his hands and said, "But there are doorknobs, and I've sent Folly off to talk to cats." Gwen gave him a level look, but there probably wasn't time for the etherealist to get his cane before the silk weaver came again. In any case, she turned to the other survivors still in the room. "You lot." She shouted at them. A group of older men pressed into a small defensive clump, just as she and her companions were. When it goes for the stairs, we shall attack it together from all sides. Semper fortitudo, bellowed Master Ferris. Semper fortitudo, a grey-haired, blocky man in a dock worker's jacket answered. We're with you, everyone together. Are you insane? Screamed another patron. A younger man in another separate knot of younger men. That thing will kill us. Oh God in heaven, man! Do gather up your scrotum and fight. Gwen snarled. Benedict blinked. Even if we can engage it, Commodore Pine said, if we can't get to its belly, we can't kill it. It'll just hunker down under its shell. Gwen looked sharply around the room and found a possible solution. Should that happen? I'll make sure it does not have the luxury to remain still. Benny, can you keep its attention for a few moments? As you wish, Cuz. Benedict said, baring his pointed canines in a savage smile. Planning to threaten it with treason? 
You simply won't let that go, will you? It's about to come again, Master Ferris said calmly. The silk weaver compacted a last pair of grisly corpses into the doorway. One of them, Gwen thought, might still have been moving. Sealed them in tight with its silk and swarmed up onto the bar. Its weirdly segmented eyes scanning the room as its legs danced restlessly, as if eager to pounce upon another target. Benedict obliged the creature, gliding out into the open floor directly between the enormous silk weaver and the staircase, sword in hand, and turned to face it alone, isolated from any of the defensive pockets of survivors. The silk weaver was a predator. A creature that sensed vulnerability and attacked it. It leapt at him at once, as swift and deadly as when it had slaughtered the dead strewn about the floor of the tavern. But the silk weaver's previous victims had not been Sir Benedict Sorrelin, warrior born of Albion. Gwen darted toward the bar and tried to keep an eye on her cousin, but it was virtually impossible. Not because she couldn't see him. Simply because he and the silk weaver were moving too fast for her to properly comprehend what was happening, the silk weaver's massive form moved like lightning, like some engine of destruction. Its club-like limbs hammering the ground with cracks of impact, like heavy steam pistons slamming the spire stone floor. But no matter how fast the creature moved or how quickly it struck, its blows never found flesh. Benedict somehow stayed fractions of an inch ahead, or to the side, or beneath the sweeping limbs, dancing back before the onrushing silk weaver, his feet hardly seeming to touch the floor. When the silk weaver's jaws snapped at his face, they met with nothing but a short, vicious strike of his sword. The beast shrieked in pain and charged Benedict furiously, following her cousin out into the center of the room. And Gwen realized that Benedict had led the creature there intentionally, to expose it to attack from all sides. Now, Gwen shouted as she reached the bar, "Attack!" Commodore Pine let out a bellow, hefted his chair, and charged the silk weaver. And the other surviving patrons of the Black Horse joined him. Some of the men had swords, and Gwen saw at least one gauntlet in evidence. But most were armed with chairs and knives. Their faces were pale, their voices cracking in screams that were more of terror than ferocity. But they knew as well as Gwen did that once a large predator of the surface began to spill human blood, it would not stop until it had killed every living person it could reach. Something about the taste of it maddened them, drove them to a savagery that was far beyond that of a mere hungry animal. Though no one had ever provided an explanation as to why, two of the younger men fell before they could even reach the silk weaver with their improvised weapons, clubbed down by lightning strikes of its many limbs. The rest closed on the silk weaver's flank, knives and swords stabbing, and the creature scuttled sideways, lashing out as it went, sending up more screams. Until Commodore Pine closed from the opposite side of the silk weaver and brought his heavy chair down through a ponderous, swooping arc with all the strength of his stocky frame. The chair had a wooden seat, but the rest of it was made of coppered iron. It had to have weighed forty pounds if it weighed an ounce, and Pine swung it with such force that the impact bent and twisted it. 
The silk weaver's armour might have protected its vitals from the shattering power of the blow, but nonetheless the force of the Olympian aeronaut's strike slammed the beast to the floor, sending its legs out in a wide sprawl and stunning it for a portion of a second. In the brief half-instant of weakness, Benedict attacked. With the same coughing roar Gwen had heard in the tunnels, Benedict closed on the silk weaver, his sword striking once, twice, three times, spinning in swift, heavy, vicious circles. Benedict wielded an exceptionally dense, weighty sword that had been intentionally created for use with his enhanced physique, and Gwen knew it would strike with terrible power. Three of the silk weaver's limbs went spinning away from its body, amid scouts of violet fluid, and it staggered back, rough limbs slipping on the bloodied spirestone floor. Pine shouted, banging the twisted chair down onto the silk weaver with less effect the second time, and then was struck in the chest and sent flying back. The silk weaver's rear sections swept left and right like a curling tail, battering three more men and sending them reeling. But the old marine and several of his companions began driving their blades toward the creature's belly and its vulnerable flank. The silk weaver shrieked as more violet blood flowed and whirled on the men with unmistakable fury. They raised their weapons, but were simply no match for the thing, their knives and short swords unable to penetrate the creature's shell once it had faced them. It rushed them, tearing and smashing, breaking bones and rending flesh. Benedict roared again, but even his blade could not penetrate the silk weaver's armoured shell and thudded futilely against it, slicing scrapes and fissures in the hide but drawing no blood. Even when he discharged his gauntlet nearly flush against the thing's hide, it did nothing to distract the silk weaver, and men screamed and fell before it, leaving Benedict standing alone. The silk weaver whirled on her cousin, flailing with its severed stumps of limbs, sending a spray of fluids at his face before it rushed forward. Benedict reeled back as the thing's blood filled one of his eyes and began to dodge and weave again, but now the floor was slick with scarlet blood and violet, and the silk weaver was not charging with blind violence. Instead, it circled, forcing Benedict to retreat from it in a spiral, and it wasn't until a few seconds later that Gwen realized that as it had advanced, the silk weaver had laid a strand of sticky ether silk on the floor behind it. Benny, look out! Gwen screamed. Benedict's boot touched the silk strand on the floor and adhered to it almost instantly. Her cousin fell. The silk weaver rushed forward for the kill. Benedict's gauntlet went off with a howl, his blood-shrouded face twisted into a snarl. The silk weaver wrenched its body and the massive humps of armour around its relatively tiny head shielded it from harm. And then a lumen crystal tore itself from its sconce, flew across the room like a blazing star and struck the silk weaver precisely between the eyes. Semper Fortitudo, Master Ferris slurred in a bellow. Over here, you great gawking thing. Leave that boy alone. I'm the one you're looking for. Had Gwen doubted the silk weaver's intelligence before, 
its reaction would have convinced her of its awareness and purpose. At the sound of Ferris's voice, the thing whirled with blinding speed and spent an endless second simply focused upon the old etherealist in what could only have been a shock of recognition. And then it let out the most blood-curdling shriek it had uttered yet. A second lumen crystal darted from a sconce and bounced off the silk weaver's head. The creature's weirdly segmented eyes seemed to flinch away from the cool blue light. Come on, then, Ferris snarled. What are you waiting for, an engraved invitation? The silk weaver screamed again and rushed at the old man. Gwen found herself in motion. She seized a glass bottle of the most potent liquor in the tavern in her right hand and flung it toward the empty space between the silk weaver and Master Ferris. Then, as the bottle tumbled, she raised her gauntlet. There was no time for careful sighting. Instead, she relied upon the hours and hours of practice she had put in to sense the precise moment to blast the tumbling bottle. She triggered her gauntlet, and white light leapt from the crystal on her palm across the room to the bottle. It exploded at once into a rapidly expanding shower of blue flame, a shower that fell directly onto the silk weaver's back and head. Fire suddenly wreathed the creature, burning skin and blackening armoured hide, sending it staggering, thrashing and bucking in pain. Master Ferris! Gwen shouted and sprinted toward the old man. It seemed to take an endless amount of time, but could only have been a few seconds. She reached the etherealist's side just as the silk weaver shuddered and its wild contortions ceased. Still aflame, it spun toward the etherealist again and once more rushed forward, making a horrible hissing sound as it came. Gwen pushed Master Ferris behind her and raised her gauntlet. The burning silk weaver was coming fast, its agonized body still contorting strangely, its small head thrashing. Gwen would have only a single chance to kill the creature, and she dared not waste it. She planted her feet firmly, straightened her back, squared her shoulders, and took a steadying breath. Then she sighted carefully between her fingers and waited. The silk weaver came on hissing and charging, burning and smoking, its mouth and club-like limbs smeared with blood. When it was no more than five feet away, Gwen loosed the bolt from her gauntlet. Then there was an impact so vast that she could scarcely credit it as anything but a delusion, a sense of rapid, brutal motion, and a blossom of agony in her skull. And then nothing. Chapter 38 Spire Albion, Habble Landing, Ventilation Tunnels Bridget stared for a moment at the remains of the silk weavers, then turned on her heel and walked decisively down the passageway, back toward their nest. My goodness! Folly breathed. Bridget had helped her collect her scattered crystals, most of them smeared with fine ash, some with more gruesome remains and the girl had refilled the mesh bags in her holsters and was fixing the lid back onto her jar. What is Bridget doing? Hundreds of little silk weavers didn't just pop out of the air, Bridget said back firmly. They hatch from eggs, do they not? Something must have laid the eggs. 
She is, of course, correct. Folly whispered to her jar, but it seems to me that is an excellent reason for us not to go back in that direction. Doesn't it seem that way to you? If there was a mother present, would she not have attacked us as well? Bridget asked. Prowl. The cat, prowling along at Bridget's side, paused to flick ashes off of one paw. His expression irritated. It stands to reason, little mouse. And the mother is not present, Bridget said. We should look at the lair. It could be that we will learn something, or be webbed up, or poisoned, or eaten. Folly said in a small voice, "Eaten all up." Bridget paused and looked back at the etherealist's apprentice. Folly, she said, "I understand that you're frightened. I am too, but we were sent out to get information, and what do we have to show for it?" Folly didn't look up at Bridget, but frowned down at her gently glowing jar of crystals. "If you don't want to go," Bridget said. Then we can walk back to an illuminated hallway, and I'll go myself. If you'll lend me your jar. Folly clutched the jar of little crystals to her bosom and bit her lower lip. Oh no, no, no! I couldn't do that. That would be a violation of trust. We have a mission, Bridget said. We'll need the light. We, Raoul asked smugly. Oh, Bridget said, scowling down at the cat for a moment. Then she looked up at Folly. Please, Folly, we'll do just a little more, and then we'll go back. Folly took a deep breath, then she nodded very quickly, as if eager to get the motion over with. Climbing the ropes was difficult, and it was made no easier by the fact that Raoul insisted upon riding up on her shoulders. Why do you breathe that hard? The cat asked her curiously. Does it help in some way? Bridget made an incoherent snarling sound, secured her feet on the too narrow length of ether silk wedged between them, and strained to push her arms up another foot or so. Your shoulders are shaking, Raoul noted. It isn't very comfortable for me. Are you sure you're doing this correctly? Bridget ground her teeth and kept climbing. It's perfectly simple," Raoul said impatiently. "Watch," and with that, the cat seized the length of ether silk with his forepaws, taking it firmly in his stubby grip. Then he hunched up his rear quarters, lifted his back paws, and sank his claws into the ether silk line. He slid his front paws up, and with effortless grace. Shinned up the last three feet of line and disappeared into the opening in the masonry ceiling. You see, his voice came down. You should be more like that. It's faster, and one need not puff like a steam engine. This time, Bridget managed to growl, "Kill that cat," putting as much threat as she could into the words. Then she hauled herself laboriously up the last few feet, heaved her upper body over the edge of the hole, and tried not to panic at how exquisitely vulnerable she felt, lying on her belly in what was presumably a silk weaver nest. There was a strange acrid odor thick in the air, a scent that made her skin crawl, and she could see almost nothing in the darkness. 
Had a foe been present, Raoul would have warned her. That was, after all, why he had proceeded into the nest first. Bless his fuzzy, arrogant heart! But even Raoul couldn't sense everything every time. Bridget wasn't sure she wanted to come any farther up. If a silk weaver should leap at her, she wanted to be able to drop back down at once. Of course, if she did so and lost her grip on the lines, she would fall twenty feet to the spire stone floor. Statistically, she had heard, surviving such a fall was a toss of the coin. Granted, the chances of surviving the poison of a silk weaver were worse. Bother! She didn't need mathematics. She needed to look and get it over with, and get out of this horrible place. She primed her gauntlet. And the crystal on her palm glowed and crackled with power, sending a wash of tingles up her arm to the elbow. But it hadn't really been designed for illumination, and the light from it seemed to spread out and accomplish nothing practical. All it really did was to leave her blind to anything more than a few feet away. But at least she supposed its glow managed to make her into a much better target than she'd been a moment before. Folly. Bridget called, trying to keep her voice steady. Send up the light. Bridget expected the etherealist's apprentice to tie the jar to the line of ether silk so that Bridget could haul it up. Instead, she heard Folly open the jar. Bridget grunted and pulled herself the rest of the way up, so that she could turn and peer back down through the hole at the other girl. Folly took the end of the ether silk line in her hand. Closed her eyes for a moment, and then slipped it into the jar of gently glowing crystals. She said something quietly, speaking in the same tone of voice one might use when addressing small children. And then there was a flickering of light amongst the crystals, and their quiet luminance abruptly spread into the ether silk line and up it, like water flowing through a pipe. Bridget watched in amazement as the light spread up the line. Branching out into the other strands of ether silk it crossed, until it passed into the silk at the edge of the hole and beneath her, and then on into the silk-covered chamber beyond, until the entire thing pulsed with a muted aqua glow. Raoul let out a quiet sound, an expression of pure emotion Bridget had heard only a few times in her life, when a cat was impressed but did not wish to acknowledge the fact. The nest was covered in ether silk, the walls, the floor, the roof, like some vast cocoon, spreading from the hole in the floor up to the height of the spire stone roof above, with walls composed of more silk. It was, Bridget thought, stunned, the fortune of a commoner's lifetime, the silk representing enough value to buy her father's vatry whole a dozen times over. She gave her head a small shake, and forced herself to look past the treasure the silk represented. She scanned the nest again, straining to see details. There were tiny nodules of silk all over the floor and lower walls of the nest, each the size of an adolescent's fist. Some sort of cradles for the little silk weavers. Each bore a similar funnel pattern. Where the silk weaver would obviously have eased into the cradle, high above the floor of the nest was a much, much larger cradle, one seemingly large enough to host three or four of Bridget.
the silk-weaver matriarch's bower? And between the enormous bower and the tiny cradles were more funnel shapes, much larger than those below, yet smaller than the one above. None of them, as far as Bridget could see, were occupied. This is why the nine claws were all huddled together, Bridget breathed. This is what Norn wanted us to see, Raoul said, his tone that of a teacher correcting a student. Also that, Bridget said quietly. Then she nodded. Let's go back. Master Ferris must know of this at once. Chapter 39 Spire Albion Habble Landing Shipyards AMS Predator Grimm spent the evening filling in for the ship's cook, who had been given leave along with a quarter of the ship's crew. Unfortunately, Journeyman hadn't bothered to inform the cook or his assistant that he'd brought an extra twenty men aboard to labour in the engine room. Journeyman was a simple soul, and the length and breadth of his universe could be described in precisely the same terms as the area of the ship's engineering spaces. The evening meal had therefore been woefully inadequate, and someone had to step in. Creedy had been nearly apoplectic when Grimm had calmly removed his captain's coat from his shoulders and donned an apron. In fleet, such a thing would never have been conceived. A ship's captain was her master and the right hand of God in heaven himself, and concerned with matters of such grave importance that minor issues like food for the mortals in his command were entirely beneath him. I'll get someone else to take this duty, sir, Creedy said stoutly. The non-essential personnel are already on leave, Exo, Grimm replied. All the remaining hands are fully engaged in installing the new systems and making repairs. You know that. But, sir, Creedy said, what will the crew say? What they won't say, Byron, is anything like, my captain allowed me to go hungry while demanding that I work without cease, Grimm said. Creedy moved his arms in an abortive gesture of frustration. Sir, it just isn't natural for a ship's master. Nonsense. The Olympian Navy holds that a captain should know the details of every position in his ship's company by working them with his own hands stem to stern. It's the only way to be sure you know what each man needs from his captain in order to be able to perform his duty. Creedy's handsome face screwed up in protest. We are not Olympians, sir. Surely as Albions we need not believe that we already possess all the sum of the world's wisdom. Are we not better bred than that, Mr. Creedy? But, sir, you can't possibly expect me to... to take my meal from you as if you were any other cookie in the galley. Indeed not, Grimm said gravely, and held out a second apron. As I still have only one reliable arm, I require your assistance. Coat off and look sharp, Mr. Creedy. There are tubers need peeling. Kettle walked through the crowded mess hall and brought his bowl and spoon back up to the galley counter after the meal, grinning broadly at Creedy. The XO scowled at him. There were bits of something, perhaps shavings of tuber skins, in his hair, and he'd cut his hand twice. 
Grimm had cleaned and covered each wound carefully before sending the young officer back to work, and Creedy's temper was worn thin. Do you have a problem, Mr. Kettle? No, sir, Kettle drawled. Just wanted to give my compliments to the skipper on his captaining. His captaining? Creedy asked. Grimm kept a grin from spreading over his mouth. Yes, sir, indeed. The hands and I all agree he's a damned fine captain. Creedy regarded Kettle without humour. I see. Best captain in the sky, maybe. I understand, Creedy said. There's rarely been a finer captain, we reckon, Kettle said expansively. You have made your position clear, Mr. Kettle, Creedy all but snapped. I'm sure the captain appreciates it. Kettle nodded and put the bowl down. Creedy snatched it up, scowling. So, Skip, he asked with perfect innocence. When will Waller get back into the galley so you can get back to captaining? Why, Mr. Kettle, Grimm said, one is tempted to think that you do not approve of your captain's cooking. No, sir, Kettle said. You'll never hear me complain, sir. I'm just a much bigger admirer of his captaining, sir. Mind your heading, Kettle, Creedy snapped. Why, I should... Grimm put a gently restraining hand on Creedy's shoulder. Cook should be back on board by midnight, I dare say. I'll spread that around, Kettle said, nodding to them pleasantly, and went back to his place at a table. Creedy frowned after him for a moment, and then turned to Grimm, lowering his voice. Sir, the men shouldn't be able to criticize the captain openly like that. I didn't hear a word of criticism, Exo, Grimm replied. He grunted with effort and dumped the last of the simple stew he'd made of the insufficient meal Waller had left behind into a large bowl, which held a double-sized portion of the food. Kettle was merely expressing himself. That man knows how to complain flawlessly. He looked at Creedy. You had a few mouthfuls when you could, Byron. I saw you. What did you think of my stew? Creedy looked suddenly discomfited. It was perfectly nourishing, sir, with salt, practically palatable. Grimm smiled and began cleaning up. Creedy blinked several times. Sir, do you mean to say you made that on purpose? Command is about more than knowing the protocol, Byron, Grimm said. Whose fault was it that not enough dinner had been prepared? Mine, sir, Creedy said stoutly. I should have kept an eye on Journeyman, sir. His section was extraordinarily busy. There are small grounds to reprimand him. By the book, perhaps, but you and I were both supervising different sections of the ship, and he's the chief of the engine room. He should damned well be thinking about his men and the hired hands, as well as his systems. That's a very fine distinction, sir. Grimm shook his head. The men know exactly what happened, and there are reprimands that have nothing to do with the book. He carried the double portion bowl over to the counter. Mr. Kettle, he called. The pilot looked up. I skip. The chief hasn't come out of his precious engine room to eat. Perhaps you and some of the men can see to it that he sits down long enough to feed himself.
Kettle eyed the double portion bowl askance, and then slowly beamed. Aye, Captain. He's working so hard, he deserves nothing less. Creedy watched Kettle pick up the bowl and head out. Virtually every man in the mess hall went with him. What are they going to do? Creedy asked with a certain amount of fascination. Watch Chief Journeyman eat every bite without salt, I should think, upon peril of their extreme displeasure, Grim said, and go very hard on him the entire time for foregoing such a basic responsibility and costing them a decent meal. The young officer frowned. Sir, it seems a bit hard on the men to proceed this way. Nonsense, Exo, Grim said. The food was technically nourishing, and they all ate the fill. We've done our penance in their eyes for not making sure the problem was avoided in the first place. He winked at Byron and started shrugging back into his coat. And after all, we can hardly have them wanting their captain to cook dinner when someone screws up by the numbers now, can we? After all, I have a ship to run. Creedy considered that for a long moment before he said, You have a devious mind, sir. Grim looked up at the tall young officer and dropped his voice into a more serious register. Strategy and tactics, discipline and protocol are necessary, but they're just the beginning. You have to know people, Byron, how they think, what motivates them. Watch. Learn. Creedy stared at Grim for a long moment, then he nodded and said, I will. Good man. You've hardly slept, sir, Creedy said. I'll take the next watch. Go get some rest. Good of you, Grim said, and took up his coat again. I'll be in my cabin if I'm needed. Grim nodded to Byron, tried to ignore the pervasive ache that had spread from his injured arm out into every other fibre of his being, shambled to his cabin, hung up his coat, and flung himself down on his bunk without bothering to undress. He was asleep before the faint scent of Calliope's perfume that still lingered on the covers could bring back memories, unhappy or otherwise. A sharp rap at his door brought Grimm abruptly out of his first sound sleep in days, almost before it had begun. He managed to sit up and swipe the rather less than captainly drool from his chin before the door opened and Creedy poked his head in with an apologetic expression. Sir... Grim suppressed a groan. Captains were not subject to such mortal infirmities as sleep deprivation. Yes, Exo. Several of the men came back early from their leave, sir. They say there's been some kind of situation involving your passengers, sir. Trouble. People were killed and injured. Grim swung out of his bed at once and rose, ignoring the protests of his weary body. At least he was still dressed. Kettle and an armed party of four to be ready to leave with me, including the men bearing the report. Dr. Bacon and his bag will accompany us. We leave immediately, to be briefed en route to Master Ferris's party. Aye, sir, Creedy said with a brisk nod, and withdrew from Grimm's cabin, bellowing orders. Grimm took his wounded arm out of its sling long enough to properly don his coat, then added the sword belt and the sling again. The damned thing was a nuisance. The moment his arm was serviceable, he tossed the blasted sling over the side of the spire. It seemed likely that would happen faster if he could only get several hours of sleep all in a row. 
He checked to be sure that his sword would draw smoothly, slid it firmly back into its scabbard, settled his hat onto his head, and strode out to meet the moment. A deckhand named Harrison guided them to the Black Horse, an inn and pub. Even at the late hour, well after midnight, a small crowd had gathered around the place. I "Don't know what happened exactly, sir," Harrison was saying. "But there was screaming like souls in hell from inside, and what looked like smoke from a fire." Another crewman named Bennett saw them coming and hurried over, flicking Grim a quick salute. "Sir, been watching it since Harry and the others left, sir." And no one has gone in or come out. The doors won't open, sir, but your passengers are inside. I was having a drink in there earlier, and that elderly fellow was leading around a farmer Long's cucumber. He nodded toward a couple of uniformed guardsmen over by the doors. They were young men, their uniforms not quite tidy, perhaps the least valued of their garrison, to be drawing the late shift. They seemed somewhat at a loss for what to do. These lads seemed to be out of their depth, sir. Grim sighed and said, "Boarding axe, Mister Kettle." Kettle turned to one of the other men of the party and caught a heavy-headed boarding axe as it was tossed to him. The thing was part axe and part sledgehammer, meant for battering down the doors or bulkheads of an enemy ship, not for true combat. It would make short work of the doors of the inn. Grim judged. With me, Grim said, and strode toward the young guardsman. Kettle at his back. They turned to him with a mix of uncertainty and anger on their faces. Here now," said one of them. "What's this then?" Grim eyed the young man steadily. In moments of confusion, young soldiers were often comforted by authority figures who seemed to know what to do. The guardsman's back stiffened a little, and he nodded. "Captain," he said. With at least a pretense of respect, Grim nodded back. Guardsman, he said, "I have friends inside that building. I see that the doors have not been opened. They're stuck fast," said the second guardsman. "There are people inside shouting, but it's a demon's torment to hear them." "I have an axe here," Grim said. "Perhaps you would care to use it." The guardsmen looked at each other. While the Spyrarch's guard might have been popular with the scions of the great houses of Albion for a symbolic year or two at least, the majority of its long-term members were common men and women with widely varying backgrounds, and most of them had less extreme levels of endemic confidence. Bloody wooden doors are expensive," muttered the second guardsman. "It'll be a month's pay to replace one." Billet to Captain Grim of the airship Predator, Grim said. Kettle, I sir, Kettle said. He fired off a crisp salute and strode confidently toward the door. Can he do that? The first guardsman asked the second. Um, the second said. Guardsman, Grim said calmly. Perhaps you should supervise the opening of the door. To make sure no one is harmed, and to be on hand to assess the situation and render assistance as needed. Mrs. Bennett and Harrison, come here, please. The two men did, firing off salutes of their own. You and the rest of the men will accompany these two guardsmen and assist them in any way you can. He turned back to the two guardsmen. 
You'll find my men cooperative, sirs. Master Bacon is my ship's physician, and he will be able to render aid to anyone who is wounded. Right, said the first guardsman, nodding. Thank you for your assistance, Captain. But, the second guardsman said, Shut up, Malky. There's people in there need helping, said the first one. He turned to the men from Predator, his stance and bearing more authoritative and confident. You lot come with us. Malky, clear those people back from the doors, eh? Last thing we need is someone to take that axe on the backswing. Grim watched things develop with a certain amount of satisfaction. Once given a direction, the young guardsmen seemed willing and capable enough. It would probably eventually occur to them that they'd essentially been given orders by a civilian with no legal authority whatsoever, but they seemed to be more in their element now. He wondered whether either of them was secretly working with the Aurorans. It hardly seemed likely, but then good spies never seemed likely, did they? He took a couple of steps back as the second guardsman herded the small crowd away from the doors of the inn and bumped into a woman who had been watching, sending her to the ground in a sprawl. Oof! the woman said, her expression a war between astonishment and anger. She wore an excellent suit of clothing in steely shades of lavender accented with grey, skirts and a bolero jacket with a matching hat. She was an attractive, sharp-edged woman, perhaps a few years older than Grimm, with large grey eyes devoid of any other colour and dark hair. How rude! Madame, you are entirely correct, Grimm said. I was careless, and do beg your pardon. He straightened and offered her a bow, and then his good hand. Moreover, I ask your forgiveness. In my eagerness to comply with instructions of the good guardsman, I fear that I did not adequately survey the space behind me before I moved. I am entirely in the wrong. The woman stared at him for several seconds, and Grimm had two sudden impressions. First, that she was searching his words for something that might displease her. Second, second, that this woman, whoever she was, was dangerous. The hairs on the back of his neck simply crawled. The woman narrowed her eyes abruptly, and for a wild instant Grimm wondered whether he might have been weary enough to have accidentally spoken his thoughts aloud. And then the moment was gone, and the woman offered him a tight, restrained smile. Of course, Captain. You are an airship, Captain, are you not? Indeed, Madame. Captain Francis Madison Grimm of Predator, at your service. Her wide, expressive mouth twitched at one corner. Oh, indeed? My name is Sycorax Cavendish. She took his hand and rose. Thank you. You're quite welcome, Madame Cavendish, Grimm said. She smiled, though the expression was an empty bowl somehow barren of what a smile was meant to contain. Are you the same Francis Madison Grimm as he who took command of the Perilous all those years ago? Grimm stiffened. Was that damned ship and the choices he made upon it to haunt him for the rest of his days? Yes, it was, he supposed. That was part of the price he had paid to do his duty. 
The same, he said. Oh, Captain. Madame Cavendish breathed. I have often wished to meet you. Then you are an exceptional individual. Such infamy as mine does not generally draw admirers, madame. I am, she replied. And as such, I'm well aware that there are often two sides to any given story, even when one side is fleet admiralty. He gave her the wooden smile he presented to so many others over the years. I pray you will forgive the bluntness of a simple aeronaut, madame, but I have nothing further to say about the matter. I can hardly fail to forgive when such a request is so politely offered, Madame Cavendish replied. There was something very hard and covered in jagged spikes behind her eyes as she said the words, as if the courtesy itself had somehow displeased her. Grimm found himself fighting a sudden desire to edge away from the woman. There was a movement in the crowd behind her. And then several people sidled away from a large man who had approached them. He was a tall, lean warrior-born, his pale head covered in sparse, grizzled fuzz. He was no beauty, and one of his eyes was fixed slightly to one side, making his gaze vague and a bit unsettling. When he saw Grimm, he let out a low, growling sound in his chest and stepped forward, his body language aggressive. Grim had no desire to come to blows with a warrior born. That fight could not be won in a gentlemanly manner, and his instincts were warning him that any such action would be a mistake in the presence of Madame Cavendish. A flutter of white flickered downward in the corner of his eye as he faced the man. Good evening, sir. The large warrior born scowled. He looked aside, giving Madame Cavendish a quick glance, or so it seemed to Grim. The disparity of the man's gaze made it difficult to know for certain. Grim was unaccountably reminded, looking at the man, of an enormous spider, something patient and lethal, waiting for its prey to come within reach. The moment the man looked away, Grim turned on his heel, bent, and retrieved a handkerchief from where Madame Cavendish had let it fall to the ground near her feet. "Pardon, Madame," he said. But you seem to have dropped this, and so I did. Madame Cavendish replied. Her dark eyes glittered brightly, almost feverish in their intensity. You have excellent manners, sir. My old protocol teachers at the Fleet Academy would be startled to hear you say so. I am sure, he said, adding a little bow to the words. Just then, Kettle's boarding axe. Crashed through the door of the black horse, and men began entering. If you would excuse me, Madame Cavendish, I must attend on what happens next. She offered her gloved hand, and he felt only barely managed to avoid speaking through clenched teeth. Of course, Captain. How could I do otherwise? Grim bent over her hand and brushed a polite kiss over the glove. Though he thought his skin might ripple entirely up the length of his spine and pile up atop his head as he did so, it was my pleasure to meet you, Madame Cavendish. Acting again on instinct, he added, "If you so desire, I am sure I can convince a guardsman to see you safely from this place." 
Madame Cavendish's eyes flickered to the guardsman and back to Grimm, too wary to be the gaze of a simple woman of the upper classes. Her expression froze as she found Grimm watching her, and then the barest hint of a smile touched her lips. She inclined her head to Grimm like a fencer acknowledging a touch, and then said, "That will not be necessary. I'm sure Mr. Sark can see me safely home." The large warrior-born made another growling sound in his throat. Then, Madame Cavendish, Mister Sark, I bid you good evening. He bowed again, then turned and walked away. He did not allow himself to hurry. He didn't know what the two were up to, but he knew predators when he met them eye to eye, and it was never a good idea to show fear to such creatures. He walked past Malky with a firm step and a steady nod. The young guardsman didn't seem to question his presence, and Grim joined Kettle at the door of the inn a moment later. The reek from inside was horrible. The first floor of the building looked and smelled like an abattoir. Merciful builders, Grim breathed. What happened here? Looks like a silk weaver attacked them, Kettle reported. A big one, sir. Webbed the doors shut and killed a lot of people. A silk weaver, here, Grim demanded. He squinted around the street. Though there were fewer lights here than one might expect in Habble morning, it was still bright enough to clearly see objects fifty feet away. We're near the center of the Habble. How did it get here without being seen? How did it know to web all the doors shut and trap everyone inside? Kettle asked. Those things ain't that smart, sir. Grim grunted. He turned to check on the presence of Madame Cavendish and her companion, but they were no longer in sight. And it just happens to attack this inn. Has a bad smell to it, wouldn't you say, Mister Kettle? Even worse than your cooking, sir. Kettle confirmed. Grim glanced at the man. That bad was it? Kettle scratched at his short beard. No,、nah, suppose not. He replied. Mind you, a hundred meals like that'd be a mutiny. One is just a good story. Grim grinned briefly. Doctor Bagan, inside with the others, Kettle said. Harrison appeared a moment later and saluted Grim. Captain, Doctor Bagan's compliments, sir, and he says the Lancaster girl is wounded. He needs her in his infirmary at once. The others of her party, alive and well, sir. But two are missing, who were sent out a few hours ago. Grim nodded. Have Bagan make the girl ready to move. Then, let's get them all back to Predator quickly. We'll leave Mister Bennett and yourself here to round up the missing members of their group. Sir, Harrison said, and hurried back inside. Grim watched the man go, and then looked around, scanning the crowd. He still found no trace of either Cavendish or Sark. You've got your thinking face on, Captain. Kettle noted. Hmm, Grim said. I was thinking that the Spyrak sent his team to the right place. Sir, Kettle asked. The enemy is here, Mister Kettle, he said, and they're clearly on to us. Let's get Master Ferris and his people out of here before the next attack. Chapter Forty. Spire Albion, Havel Landing Shipyards, AMS Predator. 
Grimm and the shore party headed back to Predator, though he had an acutely uncomfortable sensation of being watched. He walked beside a quite inebriated Master Ferris, framing the old man between himself and Sir Benedict. The old etherealist could barely stagger along in a straight line and was humming bits and pieces from a bawdy song beneath his breath as they travelled. Captain, said Sir Benedict, he was walking on Ferris's other side, keeping the old man moving along with the crew of Predator. He dragged Master Ferris's two overloaded wagons along behind him. The other two young ladies of our group were sent to... I've left two men behind at the Black Horse to await them and bring them along when they return, Grimm said, interrupting the young man. But what if they do not return? Sorolin asked, his voice tight. They were to... In that eventuality, I will dispatch a search party, Grimm said shortly, pointedly cutting him off again. Let us not discuss anything further here where we may be overheard, shall we, sir? The young man scowled but then seemed to think better of it and schooled his expression. Of course, Captain, you are correct. Grimm gave him a short nod and felt a bit of his tension ease. Young Sorolin was both warrior-born and of high birth. Grimm had met all sorts from the upper classes in his time, most of them unremarkable in most respects. The ones who had prided themselves too much upon their position, by contrast, could be the most obnoxious human beings on the face of the earth, with Hamilton Rook representing the worst portion of that particular bell curve. Grimm would not care to deal with Hamilton as a warrior born, but this young man seemed a more or less decent sort. They passed the rest of the walk back to the ship in silence, and Dr. Bacon and the men detailed to carry Miss Lancaster proceeded directly to his infirmary. Master Ferris tottered up the boarding ramp to the ship and promptly wobbled about to face Benedict. My cane, if you please, Master Sorolin. Sorolin shrugged the strap of a carrying case off his shoulder. A walking cane with a leather-wrapped head was strapped to the case, and Benedict removed it and passed it to the old etherealist. "'I'll just have a word with your ship, shall I?' Master Ferris slurred. Grimm arched an eyebrow at him and said, "'As you wish, sir.' The old man beamed and then turned and walked carefully down the deck, his wobbling steps steadied somewhat by the cane in his hand. "'All right.' Grimm said, turning to Sorolin. What happened in there? Grimm listened as the young man told him of the silkweaver attack in terse sentences. He finished with, And then Gwen took up a firing stance right in front of the thing as it charged Master Ferris, and blasted half of its little head into pulp. It had enough momentum to slam into her and carry her into the wall, and it bit her at least once. But she killed it. Remarkable. Grimm murmured. That took more than a little courage. Sorolin smiled briefly. My dear cousin has a very odd relationship with fear, though mostly she's too busy to be bothered with it. I'm glad the rest of you are well. The enemy has made his first mistake. Sir? Sorolin asked. It would have been smarter for them to do nothing, Grimm said, to give us no clue at all as to their presence. Instead, they've attacked Master Ferris. With a silk weaver, sir? Sorolin asked, his tone sceptical. They've never been domesticated. 
Grimm glanced up at him. Did it seem particularly tame to you? Sorolin frowned. They've told us that Ferris is a threat to them. Grimm said, therefore we must be looking in the right place. If it isn't just a random attack of a surface creature, sir, Sorolin said, it might be a coincidence. I don't believe in the stuff myself, Grimm said, and idly flexed his wounded arm in its sling. Though you're right, we shouldn't rule out the possibility. But how many large creatures do you think have harmed folk in the center of Habble Landing? We could ask the Verminoster's Guild, I suppose. An excellent thought, said Master Ferris, as he came back along the deck toward them. If there's anything odd afoot, or an enemy force in the Habble, they'll be in the ventilation tunnels and crawl spaces. The Verminositors will be the next most likely group to have spotted something. After who, sir? Grimm asked. The cats, of course, Ferris said. Your ship is quite insouciant. Grimm found himself frowning. Is she? Terribly, Master Ferris said gravely. But I believe she understands the importance of cooperation. Ah, Grimm said. Well, I must see what I can do to ensure that brave young Lancaster's sacrifice was not a vain one, Master Ferris said. Master Sorolin, perhaps you and I could make inquisitions of the Verminositors. But, sir, Sorolin said, Bridget and Folly are still out there. Well, Folly is quite capable of taking steps to protect them both if need be, Master Ferris said, and time is of the essence. But I suppose if you prefer to search for them... I'm not supposed to leave your side, sir, Sorolin noted. Master Ferris flipped his hand in an impatient gesture. Did the Spyrarch place me in command of this mission, or did he not? You may have heard about my issues with authority, Grimm said. Master Ferris, I believe it may have become too risky for you to roam about Habble Landing without taking extraordinary precautions. And certainly I believe Master Sorolin is correct in not wishing to leave your side. Ah? Uh -huh. Ferris asked. And why is that? I met someone outside the Black Horse while we were getting the doors open. Grimm replied, a woman who struck me as extremely odd and somewhat dangerous. She did not look like the normal sort out and about at that time of the night, nor did she behave in a manner consistent with a genuine passerby. She was accompanied by a warrior-born man. They seemed to be entirely too interested in seeing the results of the situation inside the Black Horse, with entirely too little interest in speculating upon what had happened. I suspect that they may be Auroran agents, or employed by them. Ferris narrowed his eyes. Odd, you say? Why so? If she is indeed connected to the Aurorans, an agent here in Albion... She would have to have ice water in her veins and be somewhat addled to be standing in plain sight at the scene of an attack, Grimm replied. He added rather delicately, The woman seemed at least as odd as yourself, sir, meaning no offence by it. Oh, none taken, Ferris said. He considered the crystal at the end of his cane gravely. Inevitable that at least one Auroran operative would have talent. I had hoped it would be otherwise, but 
He shook his head. You are a man of uncommonly acute instinct, Captain Grimm. What else can you tell me about this person? Grimm pursed his lips. She seemed unnaturally concerned with manners, sir. I gathered the impression, in fact, that if I had slipped up, she might have become violent or asked her companion to do so on her behalf. Of that, I have little doubt," the etherealist replied, his expression distant. She said her name was Cavendish. Ferris grimaced. So, she's calling herself Cavendish now, sir. Grim asked, "Do you know the woman?" Most thoroughly, I suspect," Ferris replied. Then you must surely see the wisdom in keeping you here in order to protect you," Grim said. "If she was involved in an attempt on your life once, why not do so again, more directly this time? Should a warrior-born assassin surprise you inside the Habel, even Master Sorolin could be hard pressed to defend you." "I see your point, Captain," Ferris replied. That said, Grim continued. I find it interesting that only hours before an Aurora attack upon Spire Albion, I should be assaulted in the ventilation tunnels by creatures unknown, creatures that left poison in my blood, much as silk weavers would. You helped me then. Assuming you are capable, perhaps you could help Miss Lancaster the way you assisted me. Ferris frowned, and his eyes began darting here and there. Yes. Yes, we really ought to do whatever we can for Miss Lancaster. So be it. You and Sorolin will go. Um, sir, Sorolin said, still not supposed to leave your side. Ah, but I will be here and quite safe, surrounded by the grim captain's ship and crew. Ferris said, smiling. He tilted his head to one side and eyed Grim. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember saving your life, Captain. Did I not? Grim sighed. You did, sir. And does that not oblige you to me in some way? It does. You must trust me in this. I know precisely what I'm doing. The old man turned and began to walk with a determined stride toward Doctor Bacon's infirmary. Then he paused, looked back at Sorolin, and said, "I say, dear boy, could you get the door knob for me?" I never could learn the trick of the blasted things. Sorolin gave the etherealist a perfectly bland look. Then he smiled amiably, if wearily, and strode off after him, returning a moment later. Shall we speak to the verminositors? Grim asked him. What now? In the middle of the night? A silk weaver matriarch has killed some of their neighbors tonight. Grim replied. Word will have spread by now. I doubt any of them will sleep for some time. Sorolin grunted and nodded, and the pair of them started down the gangplank. Halfway down, Grim looked up to see Stern returning to Predator. The wiry young man was dressed in disgraceful-looking tattered rags and covered in grease, oil, and soot. When he saw Grim coming down the ramp, he stepped aside to let his captain pass. Mister Stern, Grim said. What is that covering you from head to toe? For a moment, I took you for my shadow. Soot and engine grease, Skip. Stern said, grinning. I take it you amused yourself thoroughly this evening. Indeed, I did, sir. All went well. I'm relieved to hear it, 
but I can't have one of my aeronauts wandering about looking like a tunnel rat. Clean yourself up. Stern grinned, and his teeth were a very white contrast to the soot. I'll do that, sir, right away. Good man, Grim said, and began striding toward the archway leading into Habble Landing. Sorolin looked back over his shoulder as the small sailor scampered up the gangplank. What was that about, Captain? Accounts payable, Grim replied. Do you know where the guild has its headquarters? If they haven't moved them, Sorolin said. Then lead on, sir. The warrior-born took the lead, and as he did, Grim took note of the young man's appearance. You seem to be somewhat the worse for wear, sir. Did you take part in the fighting? Some, Sorolin said, though it was Gwen who made the difference. Grim nodded. What is her condition? The bite wound was not severe, but it was poisoned. She has what might be a broken wrist, Sorolin replied, his tone wooden but steady. She also took a severe blow to the back of her head, and has been insensible ever since. Her head is swollen. The physician wasn't sure if her skull had been cracked or not. He showed his teeth in an unpleasant smile. To think of all the times I ribbed her about having a hard head and a stiff neck. Now she's barely breathing. Hold fast, Master Sorolin, Grim said. I've seen men who recovered from severe concussions in a day or two. Mr. Bagan knows his trade, and Master Ferris knows some things most of us don't, I dare say. There is ample reason to hope. The warrior-born frowned. I'm not sure how comforting that is, sir. Master Ferris is... I do not wish to sound disrespectful, but the man is... One grip shy of a steering column, Grimm suggested, ten degrees short of a compass, aviating without goggles. Sorolin's expression flickered through surprise and amusement before he schooled it to neutrality again. A bit eccentric, sir. Hardly. Grimm said. He's mad. Benedict frowned for a moment. Truly? Every etherealist I've ever met has been, Grimm said, as they passed into the spire proper. Something about the energies they work with. It affects each of them uniquely as far as I've been able to see. Is that why he's so odd about doorknobs? I assume so, Grimm said. He nodded toward the two piled wagons. I've seen him demand a number of strange items from his apprentice for no sensible reason I could detect, and add them to that collection of his, the one he insists on taking everywhere with him. And you'll note that his apprentice seems unable to directly address anyone else apart from Master Ferris. She's mad too. She seems a pleasant enough child, Grimm said. But yes, presumably. Sorolin considered that for several steps. Sir... Is it quite safe to be around such folk? If they were safe, I suspect the Spyrarch would not have sent them into the enemy's teeth the way he has. Grim replied, None of us on this mission are particularly safe to be around, Master Sorolin, yourself included. Of course they aren't safe. The real question is whether or not they can be trusted. And do you trust them, sir? Grim considered the question for half a block before he said, The Spyrarch has extended his trust. I am willing to do so as well. Even though they're mad. 
There is madness and madness, Master Sorolin, Grim said. Ferris and Folly are quite odd, and I take considerable comfort in that fact, sir. In my experience, the worst madmen don't seem odd at all, Grim said. They appear to be quite calm and rational, in fact, until the screaming starts. He glanced up to find Sorolin staring at him, frowning. Let me put it this way, sir: if you ever meet an etherealist who does not seem odd, you will have ample reason for caution. An etherealist who speaks to things that are not there and cannot track the day of the week is par for the course. One who is perfectly well dressed, calmly spoken, and inviting you to tea—that. Is someone to be feared? Chapter Forty-One. Spire Albion, Habble Landing, Ventilation Tunnels. Do permit me to pour you tea, Sergeant Siriaco. Cavendish purred. Major Espira adjusted his cup on its saucer, controlled himself from raising his voice in alarm, and said, "Madame." I pray you will forgive the sergeant, but he has duties to which he must attend. Ah, Cavendish said, duty must be the soldier's primary concern, of course. Cavendish had returned to the Auroran staging area with a pet monster wheeling a little cart behind him. The cart had produced a small folding table, chairs, a tablecloth, and tea service. Complete with a bubbling hot pot of water ready for steeping. Sark now loomed over one side of the table where Espira sat across from Madame Cavendish, while Sergeant Siriaco stood behind and slightly to one side of his chair, watchfully facing Sark. Espira ignored the spatters of blood on the floor and walls of the tunnel in which the little table sat. This was where Cavendish had tortured the luckless verminositor. Siriaco, with his enhanced senses, would not be able to ignore it. The smell of blood and terror was doubtless responsible for a great deal of the sergeant's tension. Go ahead, sergeant, and see to the men," Espira said. Siriaco was a good man, but in his present frame of mind, the warrior born was too bluntly spoken to survive tea with Cavendish. Major," Siriaco said, hesitant. Espira looked back to see the man shift his weight, eyes warily locked on Sark. Sark, for his part, didn't seem to be looking at anyone. The grizzled warrior-born simply stood, relaxed, as if the presence of a wary, armed, and dangerous warrior-born marine were of no greater consequence to him than the colour of the cloth he'd spread over the little table a moment before. And as long as Cavendish was there, it wasn't. Espira suppressed a shudder. "That's an order, Sergeant," he said calmly. "See to the men. Post a guard on the mouth of the tunnel so that we are not disturbed." Dismissed. Espira could all but hear the sergeant's teeth grinding, but he said, "Yes, sir." Snapped off a salute, and stalked out of the tunnel. He seemed a trifle impolite, Major," Cavendish said diffidently. The sergeant has had little experience with the niceties of proper society. I feel. 
Additionally, he was wounded in the attempt to destroy the Lancaster's crystal battery. Espira replied, I suspect he is experiencing more pain than he is willing to admit. And he is valuable to you? Indispensable, he assured her. Cavendish sipped at her tea. I suppose allowances must be made. He is, after all, warrior-born. We cannot expect them to maintain perfect poise indefinitely. She glanced up at Sark and murmured, Inevitably, the beast emerges. For a second, Ispira saw some kind of smouldering heat in Sark's blank eyes. The bloodstains on the walls glistened in the light of the little table's lumen crystals. You speak with great perception, Ispira said. This tea is excellent. Why, thank you, Major, Cavendish said, with a smile that on anyone else would have seemed genuine. It is my personal blend. I mixed it myself. Espira struggled to keep his smile from becoming wooden. He had a strong instinct that he did not want to know precisely what a madwoman like Cavendish would have mixed into her tea. Madame... You are too generous. That remains to be seen, Cavendish said. The enemy is here, Major. Espira arched an eyebrow. He took a sip of tea and suggested diffidently, It is the Albion's home spire, madame. She made an impatient flicking gesture with the fingers of one hand. All the trogs of Albion cannot impede my designs, she said. But there are other hands moving now, other minds bending their wills upon this hebble. They have the power to deny us our goals if improperly handled. May I assume then, madame, that this is the purpose of your visit? Obviously. It is time to employ contingency measures. Espira leaned back in his chair and cupped his tea with both hands for a moment. Madame, he said slowly. The timing of our strike must be precise. Otherwise we shall not have the support of the Armada nor any means of escape. Any action we take before the appointed hour jeopardizes the entirety of the plan. Cavendish looked at him over the rim of her teacup, and her expression was utterly blank. Major, I begin to find myself disappointed in the paucity of your motivation. Must I find a way to increase it? Madame, with all respect, I must remind you that my men are marines, not spies. They fight well, but they have neither the training nor the experience to blend into the populace of an Albion Habel for any length of time. He cleared his throat. I might even suggest that your own resources might be better put to such a task. They have been, Cavendish replied calmly. It was how I managed to confirm the presence of the foe. And I have been identified, I suspect, so I dare not address the matter personally from my current position. Your men will still possess the advantage of surprise. Just then, footsteps sounded in the hallway, and Lieutenant Ibarra, one of the younger officers of the force under Espira's command, appeared from the shadows. Ibarra had gone missing during the initial incursion and had been presumed lost, 
and the broad-chested, quick-tempered young nobleman walked toward them with tired but hurried steps. Major, Ibarra called. Lieutenant Ibarra reporting for duty, sir. Damn it! Why hadn't the guards stopped the man? Because the young officer had ordered them to let him pass, of course. Damned young hothead. Lieutenant, I am currently busy. Ibarra looked strained and a bit white around the eyes, but he grinned and gave Cavendish a lecherous leer. I can see that, sir. Rank doth have its privileges, eh? Can I afford one of those on a lieutenant's pay? Lieutenant! Espira snapped. How rude! Cavendish said. Her smile was one of absolute pleasure. She flicked a finger. Only that. Ibarra's eyes suddenly flew wide open in an expression of utter terror, and an instant later the man began to scream and kept screaming. His hands flew to his eyes, his palms pressing against his skull, and he staggered and collapsed to the ground one joint at a time. Cavendish watched with flat, passionless eyes and noted, I cannot abide boors. Ibarra shrieked on as his spearer put his tea down and lunged toward the young man. Guard! he bellowed. Espira had seen this before. He desperately pried at Ibarra's wrists, but despite his strength, he was unable to remove the young man's hands from his eyes. The guards came running, but they didn't get there before Ibarra had clawed his eyes out with his own raking fingers in mindless howling terror. At Espira's command, and with his help, the two marines managed to haul Ibarra's hands from his face and bind them behind his back. But the bloody ruins of the boy's eye sockets were bleeding freely by the time they were done. Get him to a medic fast, Espira snapped. Then he shot a glance at Cavendish. The mad etherealist regarded him through slitted eyes, a small smile dancing upon her lips. She was, he realized, enjoying herself and waiting for his reaction. Was that necessary, madame? He snarled. That depends entirely upon you, Major, Cavendish murmured. And upon how motivated you are feeling. How many more of your men will be visited by such horrors before you elect to cooperate? You may decide. Espira ground his teeth. He wore his gauntlet. Would he have time to prime and discharge it before Cavendish could... What? Twitch a finger. And even if he did manage to kill her, what would Armada Admiralty say about the action? Cavendish was their darling. Espira felt his shoulders sag. Very well, he said, and his own voice sounded ragged to him. How many? Six should be sufficient. Six. Six men. If he sent them out on Cavendish's hunt, absolutely anything could happen. He might well be signing their death warrants. But at this point, what choice did he have? He ground his teeth and nodded. Whom do I tell them to kill? She lifted her cup and took another sip of tea, briefly concealing her skeleton smile. 
Chapter 42 Spire Albion, Habble Landing, near the Black Horse Inn Bridget spotted the sign for the Black Horse and felt a surge of relief, only to have it sublimate into anxiety when she realised that something was very, very wrong. There was a crowd around the building. The front door had been broken from its hinges and lay in shattered pieces on the ground nearby. A number of uniformed guardsmen were present, as were nearly a dozen silent, motionless human forms lying in a row on the ground, covered by blood-stained bedsheets. Bridget promptly took Folly's arm and drew her around the nearest corner and out of sight of the black horse. Oh, Folly said, surprised. I thought Bridget and I were returning to the master in the inn. But now we're hiding in a dark alley instead. I wonder why we're doing that. Didn't you see? Bridget asked. The etherealist's apprentice frowned down at her jar of crystals. One of you should tell Bridget that I was watching to make sure none of you fell out on the return trip. I'll watch them for a moment, Folly, Bridget said. You should take a look. Folly gave her a grateful smile and then crept up to the corner and peered carefully around it. After a moment, she reported dubiously. I can see what she's talking about, but don't know what that means. Something has happened, Bridget said. We don't know what, but what are the odds that so much violence would come to the same inn where our Inquisition was based? Oh, I can't tell her that without more points of data, Folly said seriously. If I knew how many inns were in Habble Landing, and the general rate of violent incidents over a statistically significant duration... Folly, Bridget said quietly. There are dead bodies there, and we don't know who they are. Folly stared blankly at Bridget for several seconds, then her eyes widened and the blood drained from her face. She thinks one of them could be my... her fellow guardsman? She swallowed. Oh, I'm sure that I don't like that thought at all. We must not rush to conclusions. How can we even be sure that those are dead bodies? Bridget glanced up to the cat on her shoulder. Raoul? I smell death, Raoul reported. Bridget forced herself to breathe slowly and evenly, though her heart lurched at the thought that some of the forms beneath the sheets might be her friends. She tried to address the problem with dispassionate rationality. One of us should go look, she murmured. Perhaps Master Ferris and the others are simply inside. We must know what happened. Of course, Folly said, nodding to her jar. Bridget is so sensible. Oh, except that if there truly is an enemy nearby, he might be watching the inn. We would be revealing ourselves to him. I will go, Raoul said calmly. Bridget peered around the corner again. That is not advisable, Raoul. There are half a dozen verminositors there now. See the scale lashes and the leather coats and boots? They might not take kindly to the presence of a cat in the middle of the habble. Raoul made a growling sound in his throat. Cats had historically been hunted by verminositors, and vice versa. Though there was a working alliance of cooperation between them in Habble Morning, cats and verminositors kept communications to the absolute minimum necessary to make that alliance function. 
Neither group trusted the other. She had no idea what that relationship might be in Habble Landing. In order to harm me, Raoul said supremely confident, they would first need to know I was there. And with that, he leapt lightly to the ground and vanished into the shadows deeper in the alley. Oh, that arrogant little monster, Bridget murmured. Don't worry, Folly told her jar. I'm sure Raoul will be quite careful. Bridget sighed. He's not one-tenth as clever as he believes himself to be. You mustn't judge Bridget for saying such things, Folly murmured. She is only under strain, and I can hardly blame her. I don't want someone I care about to be dead either. Thinking of it makes me feel as though my stomach had curled into a ball and rolled away. Bridget grimaced. It seems so useless to be skulking about like this. Those guardsmen wear the same uniform I do. Or would, if we were wearing our uniforms. I should be able to walk up to them and ask questions. Perhaps Bridget does not remember that the Spyrarch was concerned that one of the guardsmen might be an enemy spy. Or they might not, Bridget said. Traitors do not pose the true threat to Spire Albion. They are nowhere near as dangerous or toxic as fear. Folly frowned quietly down at the ground. And yet, what choice does Bridget have? If this situation is the result of enemy action, and the enemy does have a traitor within the guard, is it not logical to assume that the traitor would be present here, watching and reporting to his Auroran masters? I suppose it is logical, Bridget sighed. But I feel no obligation whatever to like it. Oh, Folly said more brightly. I'm relieved that she feels that way. I thought I might be the only one. Bridget drew back from the corner, lest someone spot her and be curious as to why a young woman might be acting in such a clandestine fashion around such dire events, and settled down to wait. Raoul returned within ten minutes, sauntering forth from the shadows calmly and padding over to climb onto Bridget's lap. I know, Bridget said. You told me so. Raoul curled his tail around his paws and looked smug. What did you see? I could not get close to the dead, Raoul said. They were too closely watched. There is a very large silk weaver inside the stone box. It is most thoroughly dead. Death scent overpowers all other smells. I could not identify the bodies. I could hear the moans of many wounded humans inside the stone box, but there is only one door leading inside, and that was too crowded and well lit to risk. Even humans would have seen me. Rust and rot, Bridget snarled in frustration. Oh, Folly breathed, and tried to cover up the jar of crystals with her hands, as though cupping an infant's ears. Such language! I do beg your pardon. Bridget said, "I'm tired and overwrought." Is all. Folly nodded seriously. Everyone begs everyone's pardon, but I've never seen a pardon. Is it near the spleen? Bridget blinked, then gave her head a little shake to keep the odd thought from crawling into her ear. Folly, we need to decide on our next move. All right, Folly said. What should we do? Raoul looked up at her, waiting. 
Bridget could feel the pressure of two sets of eyes on her, and she felt her chest tighten. Somehow she had become the leader. How on earth had that happened? We make a sensible, conservative move, she said. We can't know where the others are, or if they are hurt or in danger. Either way, we are ill-equipped to assist them as we are, and the chance of an enemy agent spotting us is simply too great. We will return to Predator and seek the help of Captain Grimm in getting back to Master Ferris and the others. Sensible, Raoul said, his tone one of firm approval. I can watch for danger from the top of the ship tree. Yes, Folly said, that seems like a very fine plan to me. Good, Bridget said, nodding. Yes, that wasn't so difficult, was it? She chewed on her lip for a moment. Raoul, could you please find us a way to circle around the black horse without being observed? Of course I could. Raoul purred, clearly pleased as he rose. Wait a moment while I ensure our safety and success. The cat ghosted away and returned to lead them deeper into the alley and through an alarmingly narrow passageway to the next street over from the black horse. They walked in silence, with the cat padding well in advance of them, his whiskers and ears quivering as he watched for potential threats. By the time they got back to the archway that led out onto the wooden shipyard, Bridget's alarm had begun to fade. She was simply too exhausted to sustain a case of nerves. Once they were back on Predator, she could report what she had learned to Captain Grimm, and perhaps sit down for a few moments and rest her aching feet. And so she was utterly unprepared when a tall, lean form detached from a shadow only a stride or two from Folly and abruptly seized her around the throat with both arms. Folly's eyes flew wide open, but she never had the chance to make a squeak. One instant she was walking, and the next her eyes were rolling up into her head, while her knees buckled beneath her. Bridget stared for a moment, trying to drag her mind into focus to confront the threat. She abruptly remembered her gauntlet and lifted it, struggling to prime the crystal against her palm with her thoughts, only to suddenly feel her hair seized in an iron grip, while something cold and terrible and sharp pressed against the base of her neck. Now, now, miss. Growled a man with a rolling Auroran accent. Lower your hand, or I'll shove this up into your brains. Bridget ground her teeth, hesitating, and the hand jerked her head back. She had a sudden, horrible image of her head being pulled onto the knife and let out a little sound of panic, lowering her hand. Ali, the man growled. And Bridget could do little as she found herself marched into a darkened alleyway out of sight of the guarded portal to the shipyard. The first attacker seized the back of Folly's jacket in one hand and dragged her limp form along behind him. Her little jar of expended crystals went rolling free, and the odd pistolier's belt joined it. There were other men waiting in the alley, and one of them scooped up Folly's fallen gear like a man tidying up after a mess had been made. Bridget rapidly found her hands bound behind her back, and a cloth gag forced into her mouth. Her heart pounded with sheer panic, her weariness forgotten. Her low voice rumbled in Auroran. It was answered by the voice of Bridget's captor, 
its tone annoyed. A small lumen crystal appeared, being held in the fingers of a man she did not recognize. He was in his early thirties, perhaps, with fine dark hair and an olive skin tone. His eyes were dark and very, very hard. He held the light up to her face, and then up to that of the unconscious folly, and muttered something else beneath his breath. The first voice answered him, and Bridget recognized it even as the light from the little crystal revealed the man's features. It was Syriaco, the warrior-born Auroran sergeant who had captured her in the tunnels of Habble Morning. The man's eyes narrowed as he saw her, and he said, "You again." The shorter man frowned, looking between them, and switched to speaking Albion. "You are acquainted, sergeant. This girl was one of the ones we had trouble with. Forgive me for saying so," he said. But she doesn't look particularly doll-like. This is another one," Syriaco said. "Ah," said the smaller man. Something about him screamed "officer" to Bridget. He was obviously the warrior-born's superior. Then there's no real need to remain clandestine if she already recognizes you," Syriaco grunted. "Young woman," the officer said. I hope that you believe me when I say that I truly regret the necessity of detaining you. He nodded to two of the other men in the alley, and they loped out silently, obviously intending to scout for the major, just as Raoul had been scouting for them. Where are you taking us? Bridget demanded, or tried to demand. The gag made it sound like a muffled echo from a distant tunnel. The officer's expression became grim. Chillingly, he seemed to understand her question, despite the gag. Perhaps he'd had practice. To someone who wishes to speak to you, Sergeant, take the odd little one. If this young lady tries to escape or make any sounds, cut her friend's throat. I, sir, Syriaco said. He picked up the bound and limp form of Folly by the back of her jacket again, and drew a knife into his other hand. Bridget felt her eyes blurring with tears of pure frustration. I regret the necessity of such measures, young lady," the officer said. "But I implore you not to test my resolve. It will cost your friend her life if you do. Do you understand?" Bridget closed her eyes and felt ashamed that she had shown the man her tears. She nodded once. "Excellent," the officer said. Young lady, my name is Major Ronaldo Espira of the Auroran Marines, and you, both of you, should consider yourselves my prisoners. Chapter Forty-Three, Spire Albion, Habble Landing, Verminositas Guild. The Verminositas Guild was on the upper level of Habble Landing, and Grimm found it profoundly uncomfortable somehow. To walk Habble streets made of anything other than spire stone, the black stone from which the spires had been constructed was all but indestructible, and had withstood the ravages of time for millennia. But the builders had taken the secret of its working with them when they vanished from the world. Modern architects were skilled, but when anything collapsed in a Habble, it was inevitably made of inferior masonry. Grim knew he was being ridiculous. 
God in heaven knew that he walked far more fragile wooden decks without a qualm, both upon Predator and on the platforms of landing. Nonetheless, he fancied he could feel the masonry floor beneath his feet flexing and shifting ever so slightly with each of his steps. The guild hall was down a narrow side alley, and if Benedict hadn't been there, Grimm might not even have noticed the alleyway at all. Its battered wooden door had the faint remnants of a scale lash carved into it, worn down to a faded design by time. A single small lumen crystal hung from a string that had been fixed to the doorway above. By its light, Grimm could see a placard on the wall beside the door. It stated, simply, No unauthorized entry. A second, smaller placard immediately beneath it read, No, you are not authorized. Friendly, Grimm noted. Benedict smiled tightly. They're a breed unto themselves, and they like it that way, which is why I'm not sure what the crystal is for. It's a shade light, Grimm said quietly. Some of my men put one up whenever I lose a member of the crew, to light his shade's way back to his bunk so he can rest. A bit heathen of them, I suppose, Benedict said. It's a tradition, Grimm said. Were traditions rational, they'd be procedures. He touched the light gently and then said, We all feel a need to mark the reaper's passing somehow. He frowned for a moment. Were any verminositors in the inn when the silk weaver attacked? No, Benedict said. Ah, Grimm said. And how many of these men do you think are killed in a given year? Not many, Benedict said. They're professionals. I believe it's strange coincidence to consider this death unrelated to our current troubles. I agree, Benedict said. Then this, Grimm said, is what I believe professional inquisitors refer to as a clue. In my considered judgment as an occasional inquisitor for the Spyrarch, Benedict said, I believe you may be correct. Grimm nodded and said, Excellent. Then he turned and pounded hard and steadily on the door. The guildmaster was a man named Felix. He was grizzled and short, standing only a scant inch taller than Grimm's friend Bayard, though the resemblance ended there. Felix was blocky and solid-looking, though his nose was reddened with burst blood vessels and his eyes were sunken, heavy things lurking back beneath a heavy brow. He was dressed in breeches and a tunic of heavy leather with matching gauntlets tucked in his belt next to the coiled circle of his scale lash, a long braid of metal rings woven together with metal scales throughout, forming a long, flexible reptilian coil. Grimm had seen them used before, in skilled hands, they could rend flesh like some kind of horrible mechanical saw. Gentlemen, Felix said in a low, growling tone, I have little time to waste on foolishness. He nodded back toward a side room off the main chamber of the guild hall, where a form lay on a table shrouded under cloth. We've lost one of our own today, 
and our Habble's folk have suffered. What do you want? Grim considered the man for a moment and then nodded to Benedict. Sir, you may not remember, but we met briefly about two years ago, Benedict said. I was in the uniform of the guard at the time. I was taking a deposition from one of your guild members about the stolen weapons crystals. Felix squinted at Benedict for a moment and then reluctantly grunted acknowledgement. Sorello, right? The one that broke down the door. Sorolin, Benedict said. Yes, sir. Felix nodded. I remember you. I'm in the midst of an inquisition, sir, Benedict said. And we need to speak to you regarding any unusual activity your members may have noticed since the Auroran raid. The verminosity's expression turned sour. Other than losing a man and having a rotting silk-weaver matriarch tear apart half the habble, you mean? Benedict smiled patiently. There were a dozen casualties, sir. Some dead, some wounded, and some still hanging in the balance. One of them is my sixteen-year-old cousin, Gwendolyn, whom I love quite dearly. His smile vanished abruptly, and his feline eyes went flat and glinted with flecks of amber and gold. The barest hint of a rumbling growl came into the young man's voice. We've all had a long evening, sir. Felix became tense immediately, and one of his hands twitched, as if to move to the handle of his scale lash. Benedict regarded him calmly, with absolutely no hint of hostility anywhere in his stance, only in his eyes. Anger smouldered there, far back, and Grimm took note of it. Young Master Sorolin had presented himself as a calm and gregarious young fellow of Havelmorning's upper classes, but Grimm had, in his time, met a certain number of dangerous individuals. Though he was young, Benedict Sorolin, Grimm judged, was one of them. Grimm turned his gaze to Felix. What happened next would depend a great deal on whether or not Felix had the sense to see what Grimm had in the young man. Felix was no fool. He grunted, turned away, and casually put a little more distance between himself and the looming warrior-born. He picked up a mug and swallowed whatever dregs were left in it before turning back to them and eyeing Grimm. Who is he? My associate, Benedict said calmly. Felix grunted, looking back and forth between them. He's fleet, eh? The verminositor snorted. Oh, civilian clothes, sure. But them boys could be naked and you could still see their uniform. He squinted at Benedict. You aren't in uniform either. Rotten ruin, what does that old man up in mourning think he's about? Do you really want to know? Benedict asked. Felix shuddered. And get drawn in further? God in heaven, no. I have troubles enough. Wise man, Grimm said. I'd like to examine the remains of your man, if that's all right, Benedict said. Felix shrugged and nodded. Suit yourself. Benedict nodded his thanks and withdrew to the side chamber. He drew the cloth back. Grimm couldn't see much of the form beneath it and felt glad that he couldn't. What he could see was horribly torn and mangled. 
Felix didn't look toward the room. He stared down at his mug, turning it in hard, scarred hands. What was his name? Grim asked quietly. Moberly, the guildmaster said quietly. Harris Moberly. Grim nodded. How old? Felix grimaced. Twenty. Grim nodded. Family. Wife. Brother. Mother. Felix said. Wife's expecting. Grim made a soft sound and shook his head. Felix nodded. He eyed Grim. You know. Wish I didn't. Felix let out a wry chuckle. Drink. Obliged. The verminositor poured from a bottle into his mug, and a second one like it he took from the shelf. He held up his mug to Grim briefly, and Grim mirrored him. They drank. The spirits in the mug were not particularly fine, but neither were they feeble. Kettle would have loved them. Grim swallowed it carefully. Felix glanced into the room and then back down. How did it happen? Grim asked. Moberly was out on a contract on his own. Felix said, against the rules, not supposed to run without a partner. But with the baby on the way, he wanted to lay in some extra money. Silk weavers got him. Weavers, plural. Felix grunted. Hatchlings. Matriarch, like the one at the Black Horse, will lay fifty eggs a day. One hatchling wouldn't have been a problem for Moberly. Six or seven wouldn't have been a problem. A few hundred, though. Grim shuddered. Bad way to go. You sure what killed him? Those mouths of theirs make marks you can't mistake. Not hard to measure them and do the math. No offence meant, Grim said. Felix shrugged. All right. What will you do next? Sweep the tunnels as soon as we get enough of the lads together. Hand all those hatchlings before they grow up. Coordinate with the guilds above and below Habble Landing. Make sure it doesn't become an infestation. Difficult job. Hard enough, Felix said. His eyes flattened, though his voice stayed gentle. But we'll get it done. Grim nodded. Benedict reappeared from the side room. He had covered Moberly's body again. Hatchling marks, he asked Felix. That's what we saw, Felix said. That much venom, he never had a chance. I don't think so, Benedict said. The wounds aren't right. Felix squinted at the young warrior born. How's that? The blood, Benedict said. It's congealed in the wounds. That's what blood does, Felix said. What are you getting at, Benedict? Grim asked. I don't think your man Moberly was alive when those things caught up to him. He didn't bleed enough. Didn't bleed enough, Felix asked. What does that mean? I think his heart wasn't beating when the hatchlings started on him. Benedict said seriously, "Did you notice his neck?" Neck, Felix asked. We'd need to consult with a physician to be sure, Benedict said. But I think someone broke his neck. 
clean. Grim pursed his lips, and then tossed them to the silk weavers. Benedict nodded. Why? Felix asked. Why would anyone do such a thing? Benedict looked at Grim. What do you think? Grim swirled the spirits in his mug and said thoughtfully, "I think they had to kill him." They, they who? Felix asked. Benedict's eyes widened in understanding. Mobley got close to the Aurorans. He saw them. Grim nodded sharply and rose. The Aurorans are here, in Habble Landing. He turned to Felix. You say Mobley was pursuing a contract? Yes, the guildmaster said. Grim clenched his jaw and felt his hand fall to the hilt of his sword. Where? Chapter Forty-Four. Spire Albion, Habble Landing, Ventilation Tunnels. Raoul moved with flawless competence. Through the shadows behind the group of men who had seized Little Mouse and her odd friend, this meant, of course, that he was unobserved by anyone whom he did not permit to observe him. This was all Little Mouse's fault. She had specifically asked him to seek out any possible danger lying in their way. She had said nothing, whatever, about danger that might steal up on them from behind, and Raoul had assumed that between the pair of them. They might have enough wits about them to avoid being stalked and taken down like a pair of silly tunnel mice. He had therefore been ahead of them, looking for reasonable dangers, and it was quite thoroughly Little Mouse's own fault if she had not taken adequate precautions to watch over her shoulder while Raoul was busy watching absolutely everywhere else. By the time he'd heard the half-souled human warrior and the smaller one, who was the leader, close in on Little Mouse and her friend, it had been too late to warn them or accomplish anything apart from exposing himself. Their enemies had been inconsiderate enough to be too many in number for Raoul to manage comfortably with only his four paws. So instead, he followed the men who held Little Mouse, and calmly plotted their deaths. They hurried from the main human area. Into the ventilation tunnels on the southern side of the Habble, and Raoul kept pace with them. There was a familiarity to the air of the tunnels, to the scent and the sensation, and Raoul suddenly realized that they were somewhere near the tunnel where he had battled and destroyed the silk weavers who had tried to harm Little Mouse. So, was that the message Norn of the Nine Claws had meant Raoul to receive? That surface creatures were inside his territory, along with invading humans of Spire Aurora, it would explain much. If the Silk Weavers were indeed under the control of the enemies of Little Mouse's people, they would be a threat too great for the cats to face. When humans came hunting them, cats simply scattered into the endless tunnels. They moved much more swiftly and silently than any human could hope to emulate, and avoided them with relative ease. Humans with the aid of silk weavers, though, that would be an entirely different ball of string. Silk weavers in great numbers could threaten the nine claws, pursuing them through the tunnels the clumsier humans could not or would not use. Worse, 
They would use the vertical shafts as easily as the horizontal tunnels, providing them with a tremendous advantage of mobility. Most particularly, they would be a threat to the kits of the Nine Claws. A single silk weaver, if it struck a nursery, could kill the offspring of a generation. Working together, they could force the cats to flee through tunnels where humans could employ their gauntlets and long guns. Raoul suppressed a snarl. No wonder the Nine Claws had been keeping their kits close. And of course Norn could not simply ask Raoul for help. Any cat would understand that. He would probably be obliged to explain to Little Mouse the importance of a clan chief's pride of place and absolute autonomy. She would fail to comprehend it naturally. But what else could one expect? She was human. The warriors who had taken Little Mouse made her walk with them into a section of the tunnels that Raoul felt immediately wary of entering. There were watchers there somewhere, hidden sentries posted in the darkness, concealed even from his eyes, at least from this distance. But his instincts warned him that they were certainly there. Raoul prowled to a particularly deep pool of shadow, and had just settled down to regard the tunnel more intently when something soft flicked his whiskers and caused him to whirl about, claws and fangs bared, ready to fight. Shadows stirred and a pair of green eyes blinked slowly and insouciantly at him from only inches away. There was a low, chuckling purr, and a small female cat curled her tail back neatly around her paws. Meryl, Raoul said, keeping his voice pitched below the volume a human would hear. He flicked his tail stiffly in displeasure. I might have killed you. You will need to notice me first, Meryl said back, her tone insufferably pleased with herself. Almighty Raoul. He regarded her for a haughty moment, then sat down and composed his fur. What are you doing here? My duty, Meryl said. Maul and Longthinker set me on a trail. It led me here. Or did you think I'd come to throw myself at your paws and beg for your affection? Raoul gave her a gentle bump of his shoulder against hers to take the sting from his words. I have no time for games this night. I saw, she said, sitting down beside him. They took your human. They took two of them, Raoul said, disgusted, and they will answer for it. Of course they will, Meryl said. But I have been studying the Auroran defenses. I do not think there is a way to get close enough to observe them without being seen. Why not? Raoul asked. The deepest shadows of the roof, Meryl said. Thirty pounces back. Raoul stared intently for a long moment at the spot she had indicated. Finally, a vague shape took form there and a faint glitter upon a gleaming eye. Silkweaver, Raoul murmured quietly. An adult. Others guard each passage in, Meryl said. We can draw no closer to your humans without being seen. 
Raoul lashed his tail left and right once. That was ample time to consider the situation. Then he rose. Mirl, Raoul said. Yes. I will ask you to do a thing for me. Will you? Yes, he said. This thing I ask of you is not a command. You need not do it. I could manage it without you perfectly well. Mirl looked at him with merry green eyes, but her voice was serious. Of course you could, O oh, Raoul. That needs to be understood. It is, Mirl said. Raoul nodded once. Excellent. This problem has some one or two facets that are beneath the dignity of cats to manage. The humans must be told of what has happened here. I will ask you to do this thing. Humans are too stupid to understand plain speech, Mirl said. Am I to find one and scratch him until he runs in the proper direction? Then hope he has wits enough to notice. Do not be difficult, Raoul said. There are humans on a ship of wood with tall trees on it. As its sole purpose is to transport me, I have declared it mine, and my scent is upon it. Contact the human warrior with two red stripes upon his sleeves and a reasonably sized hat. He is less dense than most. That seems simple enough, Mirl said. But important, Mirl. Raoul said quietly. He faced her and said, Very important to me. Mirl tilted her head, abruptly very still. You trust me to do it? Raoul sniffed. It is a proper task for a whisker. I am a prince. I have princely business to attend. What business? Mirl asked. Is it not perfectly obvious? Raoul rose and began to pad calmly toward the proper tunnels. I am going to conquer the Nine Claws. Chapter 45 Spire Albion, Habble Landing Shipyards, AMS Predator Every man to be armed and armoured. Grim said to Creedy as he strode down the deck. Every single one, Mr. Creedy, apart from Journeyman and his hired hands. They're to keep working on the ship. We have little more than half the complement we had during the initial attack, sir, Creedy said, walking quickly beside Grim. If an entire battalion of Aurora Marines have landed, then it is imperative that we catch them while they're still in the tunnels to prevent them from using their superior numbers against us. Treaty got a little paler, but nodded. Aye, sir. That will even things up. Some. But even so. Relax, Byron. I've no intention of fighting them to the death. We are merely confirming their presence. This is a reconnaissance in force. Their security is evidently good enough to catch even someone familiar with the local tunnels, like a local verminositor, travelling alone. I mean to find them. And I mean to make sure they don't take me the way they did that poor fellow. And if we do find them, sir, we fight just long enough to get an idea of their numbers, break contact, 
leave pickets at the tunnels they can escape through, and send to the Spyrarch for reinforcements. Divide the crew into five-man squads. Have them pick squad leaders and brief the leaders on the plan. Snap two. Creedy threw a crisp salute and said, "Aye, Captain." Then he spun on a heel and went below decks, where most of the men were either sleeping or working on refitting Predator's systems, bawling orders as he went. Grim stalked to his cabin, took his coat from his shoulders with an impatient shrug, and eyed his wounded arm. All things considered, he thought he might need both hands and his gauntlet for the next few hours, and he was tired of the damned nuisance of a sling in any case. So he flung it into the corner and flexed his arm experimentally. There was pain, but not nearly so much as he had expected, and the discomfort was of a peculiar stretch. He thought, as if every muscle in his forearm had cramped unbearably and was only now beginning to loosen again. He winced and he flexed his wrist, but decided that the arm, if imperfect and uncomfortable, was serviceable. So he opened the locked cabinet, rolled up his sleeve, and strapped on his gauntlet. The wounds hurt beneath the bandages, but the cloth windings didn't suddenly turn scarlet with fresh blood. It would do. Grim donned his captain's coat, secured his hat firmly in place, and strode out of the cabin to find the men assembling on the deck. He checked to his right and spotted Sir Benedict pacing outside the door to Mister Bagan's sick bay. He walked over to the young guard and nodded. "Is Ferris in there?" Benedict nodded. His golden eyes were strained, hollow. "They're just finishing up." How is Miss Lancaster? Benedict shook his head, and they didn't say. Grim pursed his lips and nodded. Bagan wasn't the sort of physician to say anything he wasn't certain about. The man would always remain silent rather than risk giving false hope to those waiting on news of his patient's prospects. He didn't shirk from giving bad news either, though. Then there's hope, son, Grim said. If she was dying, Bagan would have said so. Benedict forced a small, brief smile to his mouth and nodded his thanks. His expression of worry did not change, but his pacing subsided. A moment later, the door rattled fitfully, and Benedict all but pounced on it in his hurry to open it. "Thank you, my boy," Master Ferris chirped and bustled outside. He turned, shut the door in Mister Bagan's rather startled, drawn face, and added, "Excuse me." Then he peered intently at the wood for a long moment. Ah," Ferris said, beaming. "I am not a braggart by nature, Captain Grim, but I must say that in my own small way I do excellent work." Grim cleared his throat. "What is the child's condition?" Ferris rounded on him with an arched silver brow. "Child, sir, have you ever slain a silkweaver matriarch?" "Point taken, sir." Grim said with a small bow. "What is Miss Lancaster's condition?" "Oh, she'll be fine," Master Ferris said offhandedly. "Assuming, of course, that she wakes up." "What?" Benedict asked. "She's unconscious," Ferris replied, his voice turning graver. 
Both Dr. Bacon and I believe that her condition is stable, but the blow to her head was severe, and she has shown no signs of rousing. It is possible that she may sit up in the next few moments. It is also possible that she may never awaken. We simply cannot know. Oh, Benedict said in a very small voice. Oh, oh, cuz. He swallowed and blinked his eyes several times. May I see her? Of course, Master Ferris said. He reached for the doorknob and fiddled with it fitfully for a moment. Then he sighed and said, "They worked when I was young. Standards must be slipping." Doubtless, Grim said, and opened the door for Sir Benedict, who paced inside and began speaking quietly to Doctor Bacon. Grim shut the door and turned to Master Ferris. Sir Benedict tells me that you can locate our enemy if I can take you to the correct general vicinity. Ferris raked a bony hand through his wispy grey hair and nodded absently. Yes, quite probably. He blinked. You mean to say that you found it, Captain Grim? I believe so. Grim said. I mean to leave the ship and find them as soon as my men are armed and armoured. I would ask you to join us. Yes, yes, obviously. Ferris muttered, waving a hand. His eyes were locked on what appeared to be a random point on the ship's deck. Though, we won't be leaving right away. I'm afraid. Grim tilted his head slightly. No, and why not? Ferris suddenly stiffened. His expression flickered with a rapid mix of emotions, and then a slow shudder seemed to roll down his spine. He turned slowly, pointed a stiffened finger toward the ship's boarding plank, and said, "We have no need to seek the enemy. She has come to us." Grim turned in time to see Madame Cavendish stride calmly to the top of the ramp and halt. Her hands folded neatly in front of her. She wore a steely lavender dress and bolero with grey accents and a matching lavender blouse. She wore her hat at a rakish angle upon her pinned-up hair, and the crystal the size of a big man's thumb glowed with gentle light at the centre of a velvet choker about her slender throat. Her gaze was focused directly upon Master Ferris, even as her head rose above the level of the deck. As if she had known precisely where he would be standing long before she had actually laid eyes upon him. Those flat grey eyes took in Ferris for a moment, and then Cavendish smiled. It was, Grim thought, the cruelest expression he had ever seen on a human face. Then she turned to Grim, and her smile reminded him of nothing so much as a primed gauntlet ready to be discharged. Captain Grim, she said, "What a pleasure to see you again, sir. And what a lovely ship this is. Permission to come aboard for parley." Grim turned his head slightly toward Master Ferris, but never took his eyes off Cavendish. "Sir," he said quietly, "ought we take her?" "You can't," Ferris said. His voice roughened with emotion. You haven't the necessary tools. Grim frowned. You think we should parley with her? 
Merciful builders and God in heaven, no. Ferris murmured back. She cannot be trusted. Offer her tea. Grim pursed his lips. For what reason? She has us at a disadvantage, Captain, or she wouldn't be here at all. She wishes to talk, or she would simply have attacked. Let us see what she has to say. Is she a danger to my men? Grim asked. Master Ferris's teeth showed briefly. To all men. Invite her to take tea before the winds change. He touched Grim's arm and lowered his voice intently. And Captain, do let us be gracious about it. Grim frowned at the old etherealist for a moment more before nodding. Then he turned, doffed his cap, and swept a politely proper bow to the lady. Permission granted, Madame Cavendish. Welcome aboard Predator. May I tempt you with a cup of tea? Cavendish stepped onto the deck of Grimm's ship, and her smile didn't widen so much as sharpen. Why, what a gracious offer! Yes, Captain. Tea would be lovely. Tea would please me to no end. Grimm fought down an odd sensation of manifest dread and offered the woman his arm. She took it, and the contact made him feel as if his flesh had begun to desperately bunch up in an effort to avoid contact with the woman's fingers. But he allowed none of that to show in his bearing or voice. This way, please, madame, if I may be so bold as to ask. Do you prefer sugar or honey in your tea? Chapter 46 Spire Albion, Habel Landing Shipyards, AMS Predator Grimm did not, as a rule, believe in extravagance. That said, he did own a rather finely made teapot. The device was specifically made for use aboard airships, plugging into the electrical system of a ship upon two slender copper prongs. Electricity flowed into a coil upon which sat the copper teapot and heated the water inside to the ideal temperature in well under a minute, shutting off immediately when the water was perfectly heated. As it was the deluxe model, it even had a dial on the side to adjust for altitude in order to make sure the pot was heated to precisely the correct temperature every time. Grimm heated the water, then added the leaves and let them steep for a few moments. Then he brought the tea to the little table in his cabin, around which sat Master Ferris and Madame Cavendish. Oh, is that the Fedori model, out of Spire Gerizzi? Cavendish asked, looking up with interest. I'd considered acquiring one myself, for when I'm travelling. But so few airships have their passenger cabins wired for electricity. Something of an indulgence of mine, I'm afraid, Grimm said. I don't mind missing meals when it comes to that, but I simply can't do without a good cup of tea in the afternoon. At least you and I can agree on that, Captain. Cavendish said firmly. If you would care to do the honours, Master Ferris, Grimm said. Why, certainly, Ferris said. 
He poured the tea, his expression neutral. I have less than fresh cream, I'm afraid, Grimm said. But I believe you said that you prefer it with honey, madame. Please, Cavendish said, holding out her cup to Grimm. He dipped what was very nearly the last of his rather expensive honey out of its ceramic bowl and into the matching cup upon its saucer. Master Ferris? Sugar, if you please, Ferris said calmly. Grimm served them, added a bit of both to his own tea, and left it sitting on its saucer to cool a bit, as did his guests. I must say, Madame Cavendish said, Given the innovations made in simple quality-of-life contrivances upon airships, it seems that there is vast potential in electrically-powered products, such as your fine teapot, that could be expanded into the lifestyle of spire-dwellers as well. In a gentler world, perhaps, madame, Grimm said. Oh? Power crystals are valuable resources, Grimm said. Given the amount of time required to produce them, they are nearly always slated for use aboard airships, and the expansion of each spire's navy in today's troubled world is an absolute priority. Cavendish's eyes glittered with an amusement that hardly seemed to match the topic. Much to the loss of the poor citizens of the spire, whom the airships are meant to serve and protect, I dare say. Necessity and survival, Madame Cavendish, Needs must take precedence over convenience. Except for airship captains, it would seem, Cavendish said. Consider the Fedori Company. Think how rapidly their shops would grow if they could supply demand for so large a market. And who knows what other products might be made available. Supplying to the citizenry of the spires could usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. Well said, Cora, Master Ferris murmured. I almost believed you meant that. Cavendish lifted her nose and sniffed lightly. You have always believed the worst about me, Ferris. And rarely have been disappointed, Ferris replied. Your notion seems perfectly sound, Grimm said smoothly. In theory... But I am afraid it would suffer once exposed to the harsh realities of life. Cavendish stared hard at Master Ferris. A valid point, Captain. So many theories do. Master Ferris did not quite flinch at the woman's words, but Grimm sensed the slow, long-term pain in the etherealist's face. The old man looked up at Cavendish and said gently, it needn't be this way between us, you know. The future has many branches. No, Ferris, Madame Cavendish said. Grimm was startled by the precise vitriol the woman managed to fit into the two words. They dripped with it to such a degree that he nearly checked the decking beneath the woman's chair for damage. Master Ferris sighed and nodded. Then you never learned to see... I take it. Perhaps I had a poor teacher, she replied calmly. But in time, I learned to create the future I desired. Oh, Cora, Ferris said. Is that what you think this is? 
creation. Building a new world is never easy, my old friend, she replied. A small smile touched the corners of her mouth. What fun would it be if it were easy? As a loyal son of Albion, Grimm knew more or less to the second when his tea would be cool enough to drink. He reached for his cup, and the other two moved to do the same at precisely the same time. They all sipped. Cavendish closed her eyes in pleasure for a moment before opening them. To business then, shall we? Of course, Master Ferris said. Where do you propose to begin negotiations? Cavendish lifted an eyebrow. Oh, Ephraim, I am afraid you misunderstand me. I am not here to negotiate. Then may I be so bold as to ask, why have you come, Madame? Grim asked. Cavendish took another sip of tea. This is a Dubane leaf, is it not? You have a discerning palate, Grim replied. My question stands. I am here, for Ephraim's collection. The old man stiffened in his seat. He covered it with another sip of tea, swallowed, and asked in a mild tone, "And why precisely should you believe I would allow you to take it?" Cavendish smiled pleasantly. Because if you do not. The two lovely young women from your group have already eaten their last meal. Ferris stared at his tea for a moment. Then he said, "If I give it to you, then you will release them." Pardon me, Cavendish said to Grim. I fear if Ferris is suffering from the first stages of senility, as I have already explained to him that this is not a negotiation. She turned to the old man and spoke in slow, measured tones. "I have them. I can destroy them with a thought. If you do not give me your collection immediately and without protest, I will do so." "And then?" Ferris asked. His voice roughened at the edges. "And then, if you value their lives." I will continue to do exactly as I please, with no further interference from you. I may even spare them when my business is concluded. I know you, Cora," Ferris said. "You offer scant hope for their survival." Her eyes hardened until they looked like chips of glass. "No, Ephraim. All I offer you is the absolute certainty of their death." The old man bowed his head and did not speak. Cavendish sat back slightly in her seat. Her expression pleased. You needn't do it, of course. Neither child is of any long-term value to your campaign. All you need do is ask yourself one simple question, Ephraim. Oh, the old man said. What would that be? Do you have it in you to sacrifice two apprentices in one lifetime? This time the old man did flinch, as if from a slap. Grim murmured, "Excuse me," and rose with the teapot to take it back to its heating plate. He took the mesh leaf holder from the pot and poured water from a ewer to cleanse it, then cleaned the pot out, 
He put the pot back down and rested his hand on the cabinet, out of sight of those seated at the table. Ah, a soldier's thinking, Cavendish said. Grim looked back at her. She had never taken her eyes from Master Ferris. Captain, Cavendish said, you can draw that pistol if you choose. But you will wish you were dead before you can bring it to bear upon me or pull the trigger. You are a foe of Spire Albion, madame, and an active ally to her enemies. I am presuming, of course, it was you who guided the Auroran destroyers in for their attack on the shipyards. Cavendish tilted her head, her expression pleasant, though her eyes never left Ferris. This is the work of that spider at the top of the spire, isn't it? He always did have a knack for picking capable agents. I'm surprised he dared to involve himself. How little you know, Addison, Cora, Master Ferris said quietly. The handle of Grimm's hidden pistol was cool beneath his fingertips. He'd meant to have it ready in the event that Calliope had turned on him, if not unexpectedly, then at least suddenly. Only a fool would bother to attack an etherealist with a gauntlet. The simpler, sometimes treacherous service offered by a firearm was the best weapon available for such a task. I'm sure someone as intelligent as you can comprehend my dilemma, madame. Yes, Cavendish said, her tone dry. You are insufficiently astute to understand the situation. Or do you honestly believe I would have boarded your ship without taking appropriate precautions? If you would be so kind, do elaborate, Grimm said. Should I not appear unharmed and safely leave this vessel in the next quarter hour, observers posted nearby will alert my allies. And those two children will die horribly. Grimm regarded Cavendish calmly, weighing his options. The woman was clearly dangerous and capable. Master Ferris seemed extremely cautious of her. Grimm had no doubt that she would order the execution of Miss Darkwin and Miss Folly with no more emotional investment than she might show when asking for another cup of tea. She seemed intelligent as well. He could readily believe that she would have taken precautions to prevent some sort of assault. And yet, he had little patience for one who would callously leverage young lives against her ambitions. She was not seven feet from him. In the space of a heartbeat he could draw the pistol and discharge it, then immediately order his men to sweep the docks and trap Cavendish's eyes and ears before he could report to the Aurorans. Information could be extracted from the Watcher, and a rescue operation mounted for the young women. Such a course seemed unlikely to succeed in the face of their foe, but judging by Ferris's reaction to Cavendish, he should think it would be at least as likely to save the young women as leaving them to Madame Cavendish's tender mercies. She might be telling the truth about her ability to stop him. Etherealists could accomplish feats that would astound most men. But he had no proof of that. Did he not have an obligation to at least try to put down this foe of his home spire? He narrowed his eyes. Besides, no one gave him orders aboard his own ship. 
His hand settled on the pistol's grip and he began the turn that would draw it from its hidden holster and into the open. Hold, Captain! Master Ferris said, his voice suddenly sharp. Do not shoot! Ferris hadn't looked at him either. Grimm felt somewhat annoyed by that. Etherealists or not, these people should bloody well at least need to glance at him to know what he was doing. She's telling the truth, Ferris continued, his voice very quiet. You won't be able to take the shot, and you'll be worse than dead if you try. Cavendish's mouth split into a sudden wide smile. Ferris shook his head. I wonder, Captain, if you would be so kind as to have the pair of wagons in my cabin rolled out to the deck for Madame Cavendish. Sir? Grimm asked. I believe the Spyrarch ordered you to support my mission, sir, Ferris said quietly. Did he not? Grimm exhaled slowly. Then he released the grip of the pistol and lowered his hand. He did. How very civilized of us, Cavendish said. She set her saucer and teacup down and rose, folding her hands in front of her. I have porters standing by to manage the wagon, Sir Ferris. Master Ferris rose with her and nodded shortly. Let it be done. He waited until she had turned toward the door before he said in a low voice, Sycorax. Madame Cavendish paused and looked back at him. If any harm befalls those girls, the world is not large enough to hide you from me. She lifted her chin, her expression cool. I'm not the one who has lived in hiding, old man. Ferris ground his teeth, then he glanced at Grimm and nodded. Grimm escorted Cavendish from the cabin to the deck, and it was done in short order. The two little wagons, piled high with seemingly random objects, rolled down the gangplank after a couple of hired porters from one of the companies local to Habble Landing. Cavendish watched them go, smiling, and straightened the cuffs of her sleeves. Captain Grimm, she murmured, do yourself a favor. Live a little longer. Remain on your ship. Do not attempt to follow me. I will do whatever is necessary, madame, Grimm said. He bowed politely and accepted her rather pensive nod in response. Then she swept down the gangplank and departed. The moment she was out of sight, Grimm spun on a heel and marched back into his cabin. Master Ferris, we shall leave with the shore party and meet. He broke off his words suddenly. The old etherealist was lying on the floor, curled into a fetal ball, clutching at his stomach. He rocked as if in agony, weeping silent tears. I can't, he said. I can't. This isn't Grim Captain. I'm not capable of it. Grim moved to the old man's side and knelt over him. Master Ferris, can you hear me? I can, and no matter, Ferris said, his voice twisted as if he were being crushed beneath some brutal weight. I'll not be, not for... Oh, 
I need thirteen needles in a ball of wax, hat pins, a lump of green chalk, and two left slippers. Grim blinked several more times. The old man's collection was that what he was babbling about? Why? Obviously, Grim thought, for the same reason that Cavendish insisted that he give it up. It must have been some kind of totem or fetish to the old man. He was broken and needed the collection to help him function, just as Folly needed her jar of crystals for communicating with speech, and just as Madame Cavendish seemed obsessed with the observation of courtesy. That madness seemed to follow every etherealist he had ever met. Their power, it would seem, did not come without a price. Folly always got them for me, got them perfect every time. Now she's in the dark. And it's my fault for sending her there. The old man's eyes snapped up to Grim, clearing for a second. You must find her. You must make her safe. I will, Grim said. Of course I will. Ferris clutched at him. The man looked twenty years older. His hands shook. Promise me, Captain. Grim took the old man's hands in his and squeezed. Everything in my power. I swear it. Ferris nodded once, and then his face twisted in new agony, and he shut his eyes tightly, muttering to himself beneath his breath at a frantic rate. Grim shook his head, got his good arm beneath the old man, and lugged him to his bunk. He straightened from the task slowly. He meant what he had told Ferris, but everything in his power was worth little if he did not know where to apply it. The plan had relied upon Ferris's guidance to locate the enemy. How was he to locate the enemy, pinpoint where the young women were being held, and rescue them, all without being seen by his foes? He dimmed the lumen crystals in his cabin and departed quietly, leaving Ferris to his feverish muttering. The enemy was here, in landing, but he did not know where. They were up to no good, though he did not know what their plans might be or where they might strike. He had inherited a mountain of ignorance when the old man had been incapacitated, and if he acted without knowledge, the lives of those two young women might be forfeit. Miss Targwin, he supposed, was a soldier in service to the Spyrarch. Sacrificing her for the good of the Spire might be an ugly and unavoidable necessity. The apprentice etherealist was a civilian, but she too was deeply involved in this business and in service to the Spyrarch. Yet he could not throw away their lives except as a last resort. Grim's hands closed into impotent fists. What was he to do? Kettle came striding up the deck and whipped off a quick salute. Skip, he said. There's a cat here. Bloody little creature just came running up onto the deck. Grim's gaze snapped up to the pilot. Show me. Chapter Forty-Seven. Spire Albion, Habel Landing, Ventilation Tunnels. Bridget sat quietly, bound and taken prisoner, and fumed. It was even more annoying than it had been the first time, and nearly as uncomfortable. She twisted her wrists, or tried to, attempting to loosen the leather cords binding them. And once again, she accomplished nothing except to make the skin of her wrists even rawer, and to make her shoulders ache with the effort of the motion. 
She puffed out her lower lip and blew several fallen strands of hair from her face. The hair that had escaped her braid was driving her slowly insane, but her wrists had been bound at the small of her back to her own belt, and thence to her bound ankles, and there was no help for it. She wasn't going anywhere. She felt a terrible surge of frustration well up in her belly and rise toward her throat, and she knew that it was being lifted on a tide of sheer terror. Her heart started racing, and tears began to well up in her eyes. She struggled to fight against them, but in vain. All she had wanted was to stay home with her father and in the places she knew. Instead, she was quite probably to die here. And Raoul wasn't with her. At that thought, a quiet, small sound escaped her throat, despite all she could do to restrain it. She shook her head fiercely. Such despair was foolish, of course. Had Raoul been captured as well, he would surely be in no position to do anything to help her. Free, he would certainly go for help, and was quite possibly her best hope of survival. If he was free, if he had not been killed by the enemy. She shook the gibbering terror away from her thoughts and forced herself to remember her survival lessons. First, she had to take stock of her assets. While Bridget may have been bound, she was at least whole. No one had shot or stabbed her, which seemed an excellent foundation from which to build, all things considered. She was trapped in the darkness of a ventilation tunnel, one that had been barricaded with a tremendous mound of broken masonry not far from where she sat. Her gauntlet had been taken, as well as her knife and her coin purse, but her captors had not mistreated her or taken her clothing away. Another mercy. The tall warrior-born, Gwendolen had wounded in Habble Morning, the man who insisted that he was a murderer and not a rapist, had been one of the men to secure her bonds when she had been brought to the tunnel. There was a paltry amount of illumination coming from the entrance to the tunnel, which had been blocked off with tarps on a light framework of some kind. Only a little illumination leaked around the tarps, barely enough to let Bridget see their outline, and not nearly enough to see her companion as more than an immobile lump on the floor beside her. Folly, Bridget said quietly, trying once more. Folly, are you awake? The form beside her did not stir. Bridget heard a faint, hopeless moaning sound, hardly human, as if she was in terrible pain. Bridget had seen the men remove Folly's possessions while she lay insensible. When she had woken an hour later, Bridget had heard her move about for a moment, making frantic animal sounds, and then let out a low keen of undiluted despair. And then she had simply lain still. Bridget felt abominably weary, and desired nothing so much as to lie down on her side and go to sleep. But though she was new to the business of being an agent of the Spyrarch, she felt that she understood the concept well enough to know that having a nice lie down when she and the Spire were in such dire straits would perhaps be unprofessional. Bridget closed her eyes for a moment, though it hardly made a difference, and cudgelled her brain into motion. Had she anything else at her disposal? She blinked her eyes open a moment later. She did, 
for what it was worth. She had a small lumen crystal in the pocket of her bolero jacket. Granted, the little thing wouldn't show her anything she hadn't already seen, even if she could get it out of her pocket, but it was something. Perhaps a light in this darkness was what she needed most. Bridget tried to lie down and wound up pitching over onto her side. She rolled onto her back, though it hurt her arms to do it, and began to wiggle her elbows, struggling to flap the sides of the bolero and spill the lumen crystal onto the floor. Had anyone been able to see her, she felt certain she would have looked utterly ridiculous. It took her several moments of difficult, uncomfortable motion, and the skin of her wrists felt as though it had been wrapped in hot copper wire, not leather, before she was done. But then she heard it. A little click of a crystal falling to spirestone floor. The next part of the task was more difficult. She had to find the crystal, reaching awkwardly behind her with bound fingers, walking on her buttocks to scoot around the floor. That part took her at least a quarter of an hour, she was sure. And had anyone been there to see, they would have been laughing themselves sick. And her hair kept falling into her eyes. Maddening. But at last she found the crystal with the tips of her fingers and willed the little thing to life. One light rose up in the hallway, and Bridget let out a sigh of relief and enjoyed a minor thrill of triumph, followed quickly by a wave of enervation that nearly had her falling over again for that nap. Instead, she forced herself to turn until she could get a good look at folly. The etherealist's apprentice was curled up in a fetal position on the floor, and though her eyes were open, they were unfocused. Her skin was pale, almost grey. For an awful second, Bridget thought that Folly might have been dead, but then she saw the girl's body rise and fall with a slow, shallow breath, and Bridget nearly wept with relief. Folly, Bridget said. Folly. The girl's eyelids flickered, and her eyes swept about for a few seconds, as though darkness still blinded her. But there was no further response. Bridget chewed on her lip. Then she shook her head and said, Oh, of course, they've taken your crystals. You've no one to talk to. Tears filled Folly's eyes. She shook her head once, slowly. Bridget nodded, thinking. Folly, she said. You can hear me, can you not? The girl looked at her for a few seconds and blinked. Bridget tried to give her a warm smile, and then she said, I've a crystal here, but I'm going to throw it away now. Do you hear me? I'm going to throw it away. It's not mine anymore. Folly's eyes widened. Bridget walked herself about until she could take the crystal in her fingers and flick it toward Folly. Oh, Folly said as the lumen crystal landed in front of her. Oh, look how alone you are. And you're covered in blood, which I feel sure is not good for you, or is at least premature. She scooted her body protectively toward the little lumen crystal until she was curled into a human crescent around it. Bridget let out a slow breath and felt her body sag with relief. Then she blinked and opened her eyes. Blood, 
She peered at the crystal and saw fresh scarlet smears there. Her blood, then. The bonds must have cut her wrists while she was trying to move them. Folly, can you see my hands? Bridget asked. Folly peered at Bridget and then sighed. Oh, poor Bridget! That must have hurt terribly. How bad is the bleeding? The odd girl shook her head. I shouldn't think it would be deadly to her, would you? Bridget nodded. Very well then. Folly, I need to know what's happening. Why didn't you talk to me? She knew already. Folly said, frowning at the little crystal. She already said it. I know, because you didn't have any crystals here, Bridget said. But I must know why you need to have them here to talk. I need to understand. Folly frowned and was quiet for so long that Bridget thought she might not have heard the question. Then she opened her mouth and spoke very slowly, as if choosing her words with tremendous care. Bridget doesn't understand the toll etheric energy takes on the mind. How there's a price for power, always, always a price. How heavy it is. How it tears. Holes and holes and holes everywhere inside one's head. She shuddered, and she doesn't realize how one must find other things to fill in the holes, or else one simply falls into them, and falls, and falls, and falls. It's not just your speech, then, Bridget said. You couldn't have acted at all. Folly shivered again. And whispered to the crystal, "I was falling, and falling, lying right there, but falling and falling." Bridget inhaled slowly. "Oh," she said quietly, "I didn't know." "We don't speak of such things often," Folly said in a sober tone. "It's bad form." Especially around someone who has practiced longer than you, like Master Ferris, Bridget asked. Yes, yes, my poor master. He's more holes than not by now, and yet he holds himself together with pure will. Folly bit her lip. Most etherealists fall, you know. Eventually, they die that way, falling while they lie in bed. One cannot feed oneself while falling. She shivered. Some day it will happen to me, and I'll not be able to come back. She closed her eyes for a moment and then whispered to the little crystal, "Be sure to thank Bridget for me. She's very kind." We're friends, Bridget said. There is no need to thank me. Folly smiled slightly. Then she moved her head, resting her cheek against the crystal, which plunged the hall into blackness again. No more than a second later, there was a sound at the tarps at the other end of the hall, and the warrior-born man named Siriaco stuck his head into the hall, holding up a lumen crystal of his own. He scowled at them in suspicion for a moment, but he did not come any closer. Instead, he simply snapped, "Keep quiet in there." Then he departed, closing the tarp again. Folly lifted her head after a moment and said softly, "Don't worry, I won't let the mean men take you." Well, Bridget thought, she had made her situation that much better at least.
she had a functioning ally again, even if she was trussed up as thoroughly as Bridget herself was. If only she weren't bound, things might be less hopeless. Very well then, what could she do to become unbound? What did the heroines in dramas and books do in such circumstances? Frequently, it seemed, they would use their feminine wiles upon their male captors, promising them amorous attention and then turning the tables upon the foe when the moment was right. But before, of course, sacrificing anything like their virtue for the cause. Bridget hadn't been an agent of the Spyrarch for very long, but she felt that she had the concept sufficiently surrounded to see that such a ploy was unlikely to work. Even if Syriaco had been amenable to such a thing, he had no real reason to release her from her bonds now, did he? And, in point of fact, what captor with any professionalism at all would be taken in by such a ploy in the first place? Besides, Bridget was not at all sure that she had any feminine wiles, and even if she did, she felt certain that they would not function as flawlessly in life as they did in tales and dramas. Leather cords. She should know what to do with this problem. Part of growing the great sides of meat in the vattery was harvesting the leather casing that grew around them as they matured. Her father could strip a skin from a side of meat with several long deft cuts and a few expertly applied tugs. Of course, they didn't tan the leather into usable form there, instead delivering the skins to a tanner with whom they had an arrangement. But all the same... Bridget blinked again. Of course. The skins had to be stored in a tub of very watered-down solution to prevent them from drying out. Skins shrank considerably as they dried and expanded once more upon being wetted down. Bridget began twisting her wrists again, this time in earnest. It burned, and she did not care. Oh, Folly said. She's making it worse. She should stop. No, Bridget said. She felt trickles of blood slither silently over her palms and across the pads of her fingers, and knew it had to be soaking into the leather bonds as well. Folly, I need you to tell me when the bonds have been thoroughly soaked. Folly stared at Bridget with her odd, mismatched eyes and shivered. Oh, goodness. Um, the left one needs more, wouldn't you say? Fine, Bridget said and focused on twisting and wrenching her left wrist especially. It took an eternity of self-inflicted torment, but finally Folly said, She should try it now. Bridget nodded her thanks. Then she closed her eyes and bowed her head forward. And then, very slowly, she began to apply pressure to her wrists, straining against the bonds. It hurt, hurt terribly, and not simply in her wrists. Her arms and shoulders ached with the strain she began to put on them. Bridget was a strong girl, strong enough to toss a hundred and fifty pounds of meat onto her shoulder and carry it from the vat to the cutting table without pausing to rest or put it down. She had never felt that it was really a terribly impressive thing to be able to do, since her father, Franklin, could toss one up onto each shoulder and walk along with them without breaking the rhythm of a working song. But for whatever her far less significant strength was worth, she pitted it against the Auroran bonds in a contest of endurance, determination, and slow power. 
and though it spread fire up and down her arms, the bonds began to stretch. It took her several tries, several painful, straining moments, but finally she rested and felt her wrists wiggle loosely. She stretched the moistened bonds one more time and then managed to wrench her hands loose. Oh, Folly said, her tone gleeful and quiet. Oh, that should be in a play. That was amazing. Bridget winced as she got a look at her raw, bleeding wrists and forearms. Well, she said, it's a good start at least. Then she leaned down and started picking at the knots on her ankles with determination. Give me a moment and I'll get yours, Folly. Will it make any difference, do you think? Folly asked. We shall know when we are victorious, Bridget said. Or not. When? She said firmly. After all, a few moments ago, Bridget had been bound, helpless, and alone in the dark. Now she was able to move, she could see, and she was working with a friend and ally. What had changed things? What had made the difference? She had, all by herself. When the enemies of Spire Albion were in the walls, the great-great-granddaughter of old Admiral Targwin had refused to have an ice lie down, and it was as simple and as profound as that. Bridget looked up at the etherealist's apprentice and showed her teeth in what she felt was a very rowl-like predatory smile. There's no way to know what's going to happen, Folly, but we'll bloody well be on our feet when it does. Chapter Forty-Eight, Spire Albion, Habble Landing, Nine Claws Territory. Raoul hurtled down the ventilation passageways that led toward the central dominion of the Nine Claws, taking no heed for silence. Speed was everything. Little Mouse was in danger, doubtless a prisoner, and the humans could not be trusted to handle her rescue with appropriate violence. They might be willing to leave someone alive, and Raoul was not prepared to tolerate incompetence where his personal human was concerned. He had just gotten her properly trained. The first of the nine claws sentinels heard him coming and emerged from the shadows to intercept him, but Raoul, Kit of Maul, had been fighting for his position since the time he could walk. He was large and he was strong. He was young and he was swift. And he was in no mood to tolerate such niceties as protocol. Raoul let out a war cry and left the first sentinel with both eyes, half his whiskers, and an entire ear undamaged. Once he permitted him to flee, then he hurtled on. The scent of blood on him was enough to make the next pair of sentinels wary, and Raoul's hiss sent them leaping aside. They took up pursuit behind him, but were careful to keep their distance. The prince of the silent paws scattered guardians from his path and collected a trailing tail who raced along behind him, their scents ablaze with wariness, chagrin, and of course, curiosity. There was nothing like playing to their curiosity when it came to catching the attention of cats. Raoul ran an entire circuit of the nine claws' central chamber, gathering up every cat within dozens and dozens of pounces of the tunnels in question. And by the time he snapped to a halt in front of Norn's central chamber, 
there were a hundred warriors and hunters following him. The entire group tumbled to a sudden halt, with the nine claws gathering in close to be able to observe Raoul with their own eyes. Even, Raoul noted, pleased, the guardian who had been luckless enough to be the first in his path. Two of the largest warrior cats stood before Raoul, blocking his way forward. Raoul was through with diplomacy. He padded toward them, his fur bristling, his tail lashing, and made his displeasure known with a sudden hiss. One of the warriors flinched, and Raoul discounted that one immediately from his consideration. He stalked around the other, back arched, blood on his claws. I will speak to Norn now, Raoul snarled. You will escort me to him. Norn has not said that, the warrior began to say. Raoul struck. The warrior let out an ear-splitting yowl and reeled away, spinning madly and pawing in desperate pain at the rake Raoul had fetched him across one eye. Raoul whirled to the other guard, who skittered a half-pounce away and came to guard, his own back arched. I will speak to Norn now, Raoul said, in precisely the same tone of voice he had used a moment before. You will escort me to him. The warrior looked unhappily from Raoul to his wounded companion. Then his fur abruptly settled and he looked away, lashing his tail left and right. It is this way, the nine claws said. Follow me, stranger. Raoul promptly pounced on the warrior's back and set his teeth in the back of the cat's neck, a death grip if he chose it to be. The cat sent up a kit's yowl and flattened to the ground. Raoul spoke, though his teeth were engaged, as it was a cat's prerogative to do. I am Raoul, kit of maul of the silent paws of Habel Morning, and I'm in no mood for insolence. Do you understand? I understand, Raoul, the warrior hissed. Run and tell your chief that I come. Raoul snarled and sent the warrior on his way with a sharp nip and a cuff to his ears. The other cat shot off into the chamber ahead of him, and Raoul padded after him, as if in no great hurry whatsoever. Cats gathered around him, just as before, and Raoul could feel the eyes on him, including those dozens of kits. Good that he had accomplished most of the rough business before he entered the chamber. Kits were silly things at the best of times, and they would certainly have been imitating him in an instant had he engaged the other warriors before their eyes. All kits needed to learn about blood between cats, and what it meant, and what made it necessary. But while they huddled in a chamber full of frightened tribe members was an ill place indeed to begin their education. For that matter, he was pleased Little Mouse hadn't seen it happen. She had such a high opinion of the cat's ability to manage conflict without violence. She had never gotten it through her gentle head that there was a time for a soft paw and a time for red claws. The burden of a chief or a chief's kit was to know one from the other. Raoul entered, trailing a third of the warriors of the clan, while the other two-thirds gathered around Norn's meeting area. As he sauntered into the centre of the chamber, 
Raoul saw Norn sitting up upon his table, staring down with unreadable eyes. The warrior Raoul had berated was crouched in front of Neen, Norn's kit, speaking quietly, his fur flattened. Neen, for his part, looked outraged. The cats he had wounded entered. The first tattered, but in essence whole. The second might lose the eye Raoul had scratched. Bad luck for both of them. They padded gingerly around Raoul to join their compatriot near Neen. Clan chief Norn studied the wounded warriors with steady eyes, and then drew himself up and wrapped his tail around his paws, hiding his claws. It was generally considered either a posture of peace, or one of veiled fury. Norn had excellent control. Raoul wasn't sure which it signified. Chief Norn, Raoul said. Not waiting to be addressed, urgent matters bring me to your territory. Warriors, Neen yowled to the chamber. This creature has drawn the blood of our kin. Tear it to shreds. A low growl rose around the room. Raoul felt a surge of something like alarm. He might not be able to fight the entire populace of the Nine Claws warrior caste with only his own teeth and claws. Though it was difficult to be certain, he did not let his concern show. Of course, such things were not done. He faced Norn and came to a halt, wrapping his own tail around his paws, in mirror of the Nine Claws chief. Something like a twitch of amusement might have shaken Norn's whiskers. Then he growled far down in his deep chest, and the room became silent and still. I will hear the silent pause, stranger," Norn growled. "Father," snapped Neen. Norn's head turned toward his kit; his eyes stared, level and unblinking. Neen let out a low growl. Norn regarded his kit for a moment, then turned to Raoul. "Your words will mean little to me," Norn said. If I do not know that you see clearly what troubles my realm, young Raoul. Raoul yawned. Your people have been hunted like prey, O Norn. He replied. At that, the chamber again filled with growls of outraged pride. Hunted, Raoul snapped, rising and spinning toward the nine claws nearest him. Offended or not, Raoul had defeated two of their warriors, one of them the chief's personal guard, without taking a scratch in return. They shied away from him. Hunted, Raoul said again, turning back to Norn. Or why else have you gathered your kits into this chamber all together like a brood of tunnel mice? You hope to protect them. Norn's eyes narrowed to slits. Then his tail tip twitched once, an acknowledgment. And your people fear the silk weavers and their brood. Raoul continued. These are no wild creatures of the surface. These are weapons. They are under the control of a human, a human who threatened you with the death of your kits should you not cooperate with its aims. 
He knows nothing of our ways," snapped Neen, rising and padding out toward Raoul. "Nothing of what our people may gain." Raoul twitched his whiskers smugly at Neen. "Ah," he said. "They have offered you both cream and claw. Then, what was the bribe? Should your people remain uncommitted to the human war? New territory." Neen snarled, "New tunnels and halls in which our folk can hunt, our tribe can grow, halls free of the human plague." Raoul regarded Neen with pure contempt. "So said a human to you. It must therefore be true." He flicked his tail at Neen as he would at an annoying kit and said, "You are no warrior. You are no hunter." You are an idiot, father," Neen said, whirling to Norn. The fur of the prince of the nine claws bristled with outrage. "Will you permit him to say such things of our clan?" Norn made a rumbling sound in his throat. Then he turned to Raoul and said, "Our kits are our future. What would you have me do? Teach them." Raoul growled, letting his voice carry to the hall. "Will you bow to the will of humans? Will you show them how to meow and purr for human charity next? To catch their mice and leave them as gifts? To besop themselves on human plants, human drink?" Raoul lashed his tail and bounded up onto the clan chief's furniture, all the way to the level just below Norn. Norn, chief of the nine claws, I would have you show them what it means to be free, to be cat. Raoul turned to the room before hisses of outrage could rise. I have climbed the ropes to the den of the silk weavers. He lifted the claws of one front paw. I have slain their brood by the score, and my humans have slain them by the hundred. They are dead. Their matriarch lies dead, and rotting in a human tavern. Their mature hunters lie crouched around the approaches to a human camp in your own tunnels, in territory that these interlopers have taken from you all. He whirled back to Norn. Now is your time, Nine Claws. They have no forces left to fall upon your kids. Now is our chance to strike them down. Give me every warrior in your clan. Let me remind them what it is to be cat, to deal with anything that could harm your kids with tooth and claw. A chorus of excited yowls and low battle cries went up with that, enough to draw Norn's gaze from Raoul to scan the chamber. Norn's eyes came back to Raoul, and his voice dropped to a low, low growl—one for Raoul's ears alone. Is what you say true? By my paws and ears, by my whiskers and tail, it is true, O Norn. Raoul said, "He lies," Neen screeched. "He seeks to use us." To shed our tribe's blood to protect his humans in their war, to leave our kits vulnerable and defenseless. 
Raoul spun his head toward Nien. His vision suddenly sharpened with rage. His mouth suddenly watering with a need to taste blood. Presently, Raoul said, I shall grow weary of your mewling. I say this creature is a fool. Nien cried. I say that his mouth is full of lies. I say that he cannot see or hear or hunt. That this useless creature knows nothing. The words rang out into sudden silence, as well they might, for Nien had uttered the deadliest insult one cat could utter to another. Useless, Raoul purred, very quietly. Silence quivered, tense and waiting. You give me your word, Norn growled finally, his eyes closing almost entirely. You. A stranger. My kit tells me that you are filled with lies. How am I to know which one of you is right? With your permission, Clan Chief, Raoul said, a growl throbbing in his words. I shall show you. Nien let out a hiss, his fur rising, his claws sliding from his paws. Nien was large. Larger than Raoul, his fur shone with health, and his claws were long and sharp. He stood upon his home territory, surrounded by those loyal to him, and having not done battle multiple times in the past several hours, he was fresh. Raoul would have no chance of surviving battle with the Prince of the Nine Claws, not with all the warriors and hunters present who would support him, but if the clan chief permitted it. He might be able to beat Nien standing alone. Norn stared hard at Raoul for a long moment, as if waiting for any quiver of movement. Raoul faced him, completely still, showing every ounce of respect he could muster. Yes, Norn said then. Raoul, Prince of the Silent Paws of Habel Morning. Let out the throaty music of his war cry, and flung himself at Nien, claws extended, with Little Mouse's fate hanging in the balance. Chapter Forty-Nine. Spire Albion, Habel Landing Shipyards, A.M.S. Predator. Gwendolen opened her eyes and regretted it almost at once. She had never drunk wine or other spirits to excess, though she had seen the effects it had produced in any number of House Lancaster's armsmen after various holiday celebrations. She had always found their winces and green faces somewhat amusing. She suspected she would have more sympathy for them in the future. The light did not merely hurt her eyes; it stabbed it with rotted, rusty old swords. Her heartbeat sent pulses of pain through her skull and down her neck, as if on wires. And for the life of her, it was everything she could do not to simply roll to one side and commence evacuating the contents of her stomach. Wait a moment. Had she become drunk? The last thing she remembered was the mad old etherealist singing sadistically unfortunate lyrics to a truly disgusting aeronaut's song, and then. And then, an enormous surface creature. 
though surely that was an artifact of the feverish barrage of nightmares she'd endured for she knew not how long. Perhaps this was simply a hangover. If so, she had some apology notes to write to Estabrook and his men. She found herself letting out a groan, and that hurt as well, on top of everything else, as if sudden fingers of fire had dug into her ribs and her back. She put a hand to the pain and found that it met with something a little rough and tight. She had to open her eyes to see what. Bandages. Beneath a rather thin shift, her torso had been wound with bandages until they were almost uncomfortably tight. She had been injured then. While drinking. God in heaven, please no. Benedict would never let her hear the end of it. She lifted a hand to her aching head and found more bandages there, for goodness sake. Her head pounded in steady time. A head injury? Ah, then. Perhaps she hadn't humiliated herself after all. Perhaps she'd simply had her wits scrambled by a blow of some kind. That settled, she turned her eyes to the room she was in. Wood. All wood. Walls, floor, and ceiling. One wall was slightly curved. She was most likely aboard an airship then, which would make the wall a bulkhead, and the floor a deck, and the ceiling a... Well, she wasn't sure what ceilings were called on airships. Ceilings, she supposed. There was another occupant in the room, a man she didn't know, from his dress, one of the sailors aboard Predator. He was armed with sword and gauntlet, but he was currently sitting in his chair and snoring heavily. There were bags under his eyes. The poor man looked utterly exhausted, and one of his legs was dressed with a bandage. One of the men wounded in the first Auroran attack, perhaps? Poor fellow. He was doubtless there to guard her and make sure she didn't get out of bed without speaking to some sort of physician who wasn't there anyway, so there seemed to be no real sense in waking him. And besides, she was barely clothed. Gwen sat up slowly. Her head spun wildly for a moment and then settled down again. There was a pitcher and a mug on a nearby table that proved to be water. She drank three mugs down, hardly stopping to breathe, and in a few moments felt nearly human. Gwen found her clothing lying in a heap nearby. It was stained with... Goodness, what was that horrible purplish colour? And they smelled absolutely hideous. She winced with distaste, put them down, except for her gauntlet, and began to rummage quietly through the compartment's cabinets until she located a modest collection of men's clothing in a trunk. She donned the shirt and the pants, found that they hung off of her like a small tent, and spent the next few moments rolling up the sleeves and legs. Then she donned her gauntlet and felt somewhat better when the cool presence of its weapon's crystal rested against her palm. She looked down at herself when finished and felt certain that Mother would be entirely scandalised by her appearance. It would do. Gwen left the cabin quietly to find her cousin. Benedict would mock her outfit too, but he'd know what was going on. 
she opened the door and stepped into mist-shrouded late afternoon daylight. Afternoon? How long had she been asleep? Her last memories trailed off around eight o'clock the previous evening, and she found that gaping blank space in her mind unnerving. Even eerier, the deck of Predator was utterly empty. Hello? Gwen called. There was no answer. She frowned and began pacing the length of the ship. No one in the masts. No one in the galley or the kitchen. No one in any of the passenger cabins, and the door to the captain's cabin was locked. Gwen rubbed wearily at her eyes, and it was just then that she heard a man's voice bawling vile curses, muffled by the planks of the deck. Gwen moved over to the hatch leading below decks, and the curses grew clearer and louder. She followed them, and in short order found herself in the engineering room, the beating heart of predator. Where the air hummed with the steady drone of an active power core crystal. For a second, she thought that the room's floor was littered with corpses, but after a moment, she saw that it was covered with exhausted men who had simply stretched out on the floor and gone to sleep. Several were snoring, though that sound was being drowned out by the invective of the one man still on his feet. He was stocky and bald. And sported an enormous, bristling moustache. His coveralls were stained with sweat and grease, and though he wasn't particularly tall, his hands looked strong enough to crush crystals in his fingers. He was crouched in front of the adjustable hemisphere of curled copper bars known as a haslet cage, and he was working ferociously on an awkwardly placed bolt that secured one of the bars in place. The angle was bad for the wrench. But his stump-like forearms couldn't slip through the bars of the cage very easily, and he was having trouble wrangling the tool into position. Gwen stepped over a sleeping man and said, "Excuse me, sir." "What?" snarled the bald man without looking up from his task. "I'm looking for Sir Benedict Sorlin. I was wondering if you'd seen him." The man grunted, "He in here." Gwen looked around the room at the sleeping men. Uh, definitely not. Same answer. The man growled. The wrench slipped as he began to apply pressure, and he wound up gouging his hand on the frame. Curse you for a whore! He shouted. Bloody strumpet! You'll be the death of me. Gwen blinked several times. Excuse me, sir. What did you say to me? I wasn't talking to you," the man bellowed, going red all the way across his bald pate. "I was talking to the bloody ship." He shot a look over his shoulder and froze there, his mouth open for a moment. Then he scowled, turned back to the haslet cage, and began trying to squeeze his arm inside to grab the wrench he'd dropped. Fantastic! Like I don't have enough to do already. Now I have to deal with Arista brats too. Captain hates me. That's what it is. You can't go fight journeyman. You have to stay on the ship and fix her up enough for me to ruin journeyman. God in heaven, the man hates me. Ah, the ship's chief etheric engineer, journeyman. She'd heard his name mentioned when the ship was docking. 
Well, chief engineer or no, Gwen felt as if she should have been pinning the man's ears back, but her head hurt horribly. She really didn't feel like smashing it against any more metaphorical walls, or literal ones. Sir, I'll be glad to leave you to your work. If you could please direct me to the captain, I'll get out of your hair. The man's eyes whipped around to her, narrowing. My what? Lair, Gwen said quickly. I said I'd get out of your lair. The man scowled again and went back to reaching for the wrench. Captain's gone. Doc's gone. Every deckhand still on his feet is gone. It's just my crew and these hired slackers left, and Tarky. But Tarky's barely able to hobble along. Guess that means your Benedict is gone too. Gone where? Motherless, horse-borned, mist-sharking tunnel rat! Journeyman snarled, jerking his hand free. Oh, for God's sake! Gwen sighed. She stepped over to the cage and, before the engineer could object, slipped her slender arm easily between the bars, plucked up the wrench, and drew it back out again. She flipped it in her hand and offered it to him handle first. Journeyman eyed her, moustache bristling. Then he snatched the wrench and said, "You shouldn't play with the ship's systems. If you'd brushed your hand against the wrong arc, you'd have gotten the shock of your life." That's why I didn't touch any of the active arcs," Gwen replied calmly. "You're only running power from the topmost bars at the moment, are you not?" Journeyman's eyebrows lowered, then rose. "Hmm. You think you know something about ships, do you?" "I know little about airships," Gwen replied. "I do possess some small knowledge of their systems." "Sure you do," the man said. Gwen arched an eyebrow. I know the topmost left sidebar is out of alignment by at least two degrees. You're losing efficiency from it. Probably why the air is so warm in here. The engineer squinted. And why do you think you know that? The tone, Gwen said. There's a bit of a burr in it on that side. Huh? The man said. He pursed his lips and looked at her speculatively. Then he rose, grabbed the room's eight-foot-high scaffold, and slid it into place over the power core. He climbed up on it and thumped around with the haslet cage for a bit. Then he climbed back down again. All better. Gwen tilted her head to one side and listened to the hum of the power crystal. No, she said, "You didn't fix it. You put it out of alignment by at least another two degrees." The engineer must have grinned for an instant, though the moustache camouflaged it. He grunted, went back up the scaffold, and thumped around a bit more. "How's that?" "That's done it," Gwen replied. Journeyman hopped back down from the scaffold, eyed her up and down for a second, and then flipped the wrench over in his hand and offered her the handle. Gwen arched a brow and took it. "And what am I to do with this?" Saw which bolt I was working on, did you? Yes. So loosen it, he said. If you can. Gwen bounced the wrench lightly in her hand. If Captain Grimm and Benedict were gone with the men, they must have been heading to a fight, but she didn't know where, 
and doubted her ability to run to catch up with them in her present condition. If she had to simply sit and wait for them to return, she might go mad. She nodded, turned to the Haslet cage, and had the bolt loosened within seconds. Not because she was an expert so much as because she had smaller arms and hands and could work them into the available space much more easily than the engineer could. Right, Journeyman said when she was done. Back. She drew back and Journeyman threw the release on the lower array. The bottom half of the cage's bars began to swing out, opening away from the crystal within the apparatus. Like some kind of gleaming copper flower, pale green light flooded the chamber, glowing out of the depths of Predator's power core. Gwen stared at the rich green crystal for a second. It didn't have the proper jewel-faceted shape; it was instead formed into a much more natural-looking crystal, like a shaft of glowing emerald quartz. And then her eyes widened as she realized what she was looking at. God in heaven," she said. "Uh huh," Journeyman replied. His tone was unmistakably smug. "That's a first-generation power core," Gwen breathed. "Before they started developing facets, how old is it?" "Few thousand years at least," Journeyman said. "If it's that old," Gwen shook her head. Unlike lumen crystals, or weapons crystals, or cannon crystals, or lift crystals, power crystals only grew more and more capable of efficiently channeling etheric energy. A crystal was rarely considered to be working in its prime before a century of use had worn it into better condition. If the crystal was as old as Journeyman claimed. It would be able to produce more electricity from less etheric energy than almost any crystal Gwen had heard of, which would mean that the ship could sail to more places, farther and farther from the main etheric currents, and do it more swiftly. That is a tremendously efficient core, Gwen said. It should be in a fleet ship. Well, she ain't, Journeyman said, and she ain't going to be. She's Preddy's. And that's that. Incredible, Gwen said, shaking her head. Journeyman's chest swelled. Ain't she? He squinted at her. Where's a little thing like you learn about ship systems? From my mother. Who's your mother? Helen Lancaster. Journeyman frowned for a moment, then he blinked. Lancaster. Lancaster, Lancaster. You mean the battery? I've been learning about our products since I was old enough to speak," Gwen said, "including running system benchmarks on every crystal before we send it out, which means knowing how the systems work." Those Lancasters," Journeyman grunted. "Damn!" He seemed to come to a decision and nodded once. "I'm going to start kicking these pansies awake in a bit. You want to be useful meanwhile." Captain got us a little bit of a lift crystal to replace our old one. The trim crystals are all in, but I still have to rig the main one. Could use someone with a good ear for that. Which crystal? Gwen asked. One of your new Mark IV Ds. Gwen blinked at him once. You misunderstand me, sir. 
I mean, which crystal? Which one of the Mark IV Ds? Journeyman's mouth spread into a more recognizable grin this time. He nodded to the far end of the chamber toward the ship's suspension rig. You tell me. Gwen went down to the rig to regard the crystal and whistled. This is the one from the vat in section three, row two. It's one of the best of the batch. God in heaven! If you aren't cautious, with that power core behind it, this crystal could tear the ship apart. Tell me something I don't know, Journeyman said. Which configuration are you planning for its cage? Standard dispersal, maximum spacing, Journeyman replied. What? Gwen asked. Why would you do that? How else should I do it? Journeyman snapped. Didn't you read the owner's manual? Manual? See here, Missy. I've been an etheric engineer since before you were born. I think I know how to handle a lift crystal. Evidently, you aren't bright enough to do so if you cannot read. We provide those manuals and specifications and procedures for a reason, you know. Journeyman scowled. You do everything by the book, like everybody else. You get the same results as everybody else. That's the idea," Gwen said in a dry tone. Journeyman seemed to miss it. "That might be good enough for every other ship in the world, Missy," he said, "but that ain't good enough for Preddy. I get ten to fifteen percent more out of her systems doing it my way." "What?" Gwen said. "That isn't possible." "Maybe not in your workshops," Journeyman said firmly. But a ship in the open sky is different. You got to know how to treat her the way she likes. Well, take it from me, she's not going to like that dispersal pattern. Gwen said, "The bottom hemisphere of the Mark IV Ds is rigged with variable sensitivity. The closer to the positive end you get, the more powerful the crystal's pathways are." You need to set your bars in an asymmetric configuration to maximize sensitivity. If you go with a standard hemisphere, it will be too easy to dump too much current in. Before you know what happened, you'll be watching that crystal fly to the moon while your ship falls, which you would know if you'd read the manual. Journeyman ground his teeth. Always improving things that don't need improving, he muttered. Fine. Asymmetric. Show me. Chapter Fifty. Spire Albion. Habel Landing. Ventilation Tunnels. Someone shook Major Espira awake, and he blinked his eyes open to find Siriaco standing over him, his weathered face set. Sir, that woman's here. Espira grunted and rose. He wasn't sure how much sleep he'd gotten, but it wasn't much, and it included dreams he planned not to remember. He climbed to his feet from his bedroll, stiff from the cold spirestone floor. Better ready the men, he told the sergeant. Yes, sir, Siriaco said, and stalked off to do so. The warrior-born man's arm, though still badly burned, was no longer held at an awkward angle. And as he moved away, it swung naturally. 
Espira found himself wishing for a moment that his own family had carried some measure of warrior-born bloodlines. If he'd been born like Syriaco, his back wouldn't be so uncomfortable right now. Of course, if he'd been born like Syriaco, he wouldn't be a major in the Auroran Marines either. Espira tugged on his jacket, straightened himself, and strode out of the private little side corridor he occupied in his position as the commanding officer. As he appeared, the men were already rising and gathering their weaponry and gear. Cavendish and her pet monster were nearby, waiting. There was something tight and hard around the woman's eyes. Sark looked as he always did, but Espira had worked with the warrior-born long enough to realize that the slight dilation to the pupils of Sark's crooked eyes meant that he was tense and ready for battle. He'd been hoping for blithe, arrogant confidence from Cavendish. Whatever business she had done with the Albions, it hadn't gone precisely to her schedule. Whatever leverage she thought the hostages had given her must not have been enough. Espira gritted his teeth for an instant, then forced his jaw to relax. The lives of the two young women were worth a little less than nothing if Cavendish decided they had no value to her. And while he had no particular cause to dislike either of the young women and would prefer to leave them bound and in place to be found later, he still would cut the ladies' throats himself rather than leave them in the hands of Cavendish or Sark. Madame Cavendish, Espira said, bowing politely. Major, Cavendish said, I believe the time has come for us to act. Espira arched an eyebrow. You think we should begin early? I will signal the armada, Major, Cavendish said, a frosty edge to her tone. The miracle of such rapid communication was all very well, Espira thought, but it wouldn't make an airship move any faster if it wasn't already in position. If I may inquire as to why you believe precipitous action is required, madame. I misjudged a man, Cavendish said. The same commander who defeated your men at the Lancaster Vattery. He's here, Espira demanded. And you did not see fit to tell us this fact? He's one of their fleet washouts with a crew of privateers, Cavendish said. They aren't professional soldiers, and their numbers have been significantly reduced. But they can make a great deal of noise before your men wipe them out, and they might sap some of your strength. Where are they? Judging by Captain Grimm's confidence. They are coming here, Cavendish replied. Strike the primary and secondary targets and make for the extraction point. I want your men gone by the time they arrive. And leave a large mobile force at large behind us? Espira asked. I will attend to them, Cavendish said. They won't be able to pursue. Where are the prisoners? Espira hesitated. Major, Cavendish said between clenched teeth. The hallway we blocked off, Espira said finally. He nodded down the proper tunnel. Down there. What do you intend for them? The same as I intend for the rest of the Spyrox, Mary Band, Cavendish said, looking away, her eyes lit with some bizarre emotion Espira could not identify. 
take your men and go, Major. If you value their lives, none of them will be standing in these tunnels five minutes from now. Espira frowned at the woman, but she did not return her gaze to his. And then he nodded, bowed again, and withdrew. Suriaco fell into step beside him. The grizzled sergeant glowered back over his wounded shoulder at Sark for a moment, then turned to Espira. We're going early. Yes. Dispatch the men as planned, immediately. Without the confusion of a general attack on the spire, we'll have to move fast. Tell them to leave all camp equipment and supplies here, except for a canteen. Weapons only. Syriaco frowned, but nodded. Those two girls? Ronaldo Espira had done a great many distasteful, necessary things in the course of his career. The orders of his superiors were generally given to him with the aim of benefiting those same superiors in some way. He was under no illusion about that. But even so, there was, somewhere within him, enough conscience to at least feel shame about it. He felt ashamed of the next words he spoke to the sergeant. They're as good as dead, and no longer our concern, sergeant, he said quietly. Syriaco glanced at the corridor where the prisoners were being kept and clenched his large hands into fists with an audible crack of knuckles. He exhaled at once. Sir, he said, world might be a brighter place without Sark and that woman in it. Creating a brighter world is not our concern or duty, sergeant, Espira said without heat. From this moment... All that we need concern ourselves with is accomplishing our objectives and getting as many marines as possible out of this madness and back home to spire Aurora alive and well. Clear? Suriaco made a growling sound deep in his chest, but his hands relaxed and he nodded once. Clear, sir. He looked down at Espira. Think we can pull this off? Of course, Espira replied with a confidence he was not at all sure he felt. If each man remembers his duty and his training, and doesn't stand around wondering why we're doing it, Syriaco said. Ours is not the reason why, Sergeant, Espira said. Tell the captain of each force to move out. I want every single man of my command out of these tunnels in three minutes. Chapter 51 Spire Albion, Habel Landing, Ventilation Tunnels It's just not natural, growled Felix to Grimm. That's all I'm saying. Grimm regarded askance the verminositor walking on his left. You can only give me a general idea of which section of tunnels your missing man had entered. He gestured to the small, utterly black cat who paced calmly a few steps ahead of Grimm. It would seem that our companion has a more specific idea. Like as not the little beast is leading us into a trap, Felix predicted. I certainly hope so. I'd like to think that we haven't brought all these weapons for nothing, Grimm said. Grimm's crew walked behind him in a tight, purposeful group alongside the Verminositors' guild of Habel Landing. The Verminositors were a hard-bitten, wiry bunch. 
Very few of them were of even middling stature, or heavy of build, but they were men and women alike, made of rope and gristle, and they all bore scars as mute testimony of dangers faced and overcome in the past. You say the cap belongs to a guardsman," Felix continued. "This one, no," Grim said. "But I dare say our guide is acquainted with Raoul." At the mention of the name, the little cat looked back at them without slowing her pace, focusing her lambent green eyes on Grim. He lifted his hand and signaled a halt, and the men clattered to a stop. "This is as good a place as any to stop and get more information." Grim said, "I take it that is correct, uh, Miss Cat." The cat stopped in her tracks and turned to face Grim. She regarded Felix for a moment, interested, then looked back up at Grim. She moved her head up and down in a slow, deliberate nod. "He sent you to fetch us," Grim asked. Again, the cat nodded. "Good," Grim said. Do you know exactly where the girls are being held? She nodded again, and after a moment, she shook her head left and right. There, Felix said. Now, what's that supposed to mean? Grim gave him a mild look. Apparently, that I need to learn to speak cat. He frowned and called, Benedict. Can you understand them at all? The tall young warrior born shook his head. Barely more than a greeting and a few pleasantries. It's a complex language and takes years to learn. At this, the little black cat looked pleased. Bother, Grim said. If we go storming in and start shooting up the place when we stumble over the enemy, we're as likely to shoot the girls in the confusion as we are the foe. I need more specific information. She obviously knows it, or knows it better than we do, at least. Felix huffed out a thoughtful breath. Then he reached into his coat and withdrew a thick folded sheaf of paper. He began to unfold it and laid it out on the floor. Grim peered at it. It was a map of Habel Landing, with ventilation and service tunnels marked in several different colors, evidently to represent their respective elevations. Here, beastie, Felix said. Have a look at this. He tapped a portion of the map with a thick forefinger. I know Mobley was working in this general section of the tunnels. Which one have the Aurorans taken? The cat prowled over to the map and regarded it with bright eyes. She tilted her head this way and that, pawed at its surface, sniffed it, walked over it, then sat down and just stared at Felix. What the bloody hell is that supposed to mean? Felix demanded of Grim, "It's too abstract," Benedict said. "Maps are symbols, and she doesn't have the necessary experience she needs to understand one." "Explain, please," Grim asked. Benedict moved a hand in a small, frustrated gesture. "She doesn't experience the tunnels the way you do. She doesn't just see the tunnels. She navigates them by smell and sound as much as by sight." Show her a picture that is a symbolic representation of visual dimensions alone, and it's confusing to her. Felix shook his head. How do you know that? Because it was confusing as hell to me when I was learning to read maps. Benedict replied.
It took me a while when I was young. Felix growled. How hard is it to read a bloody map? Grim pursed his lips and regarded the cat thoughtfully. Perhaps we don't need her to read a map for us, he mused. Perhaps we need her to draw one. What? Felix asked. I need a piece of chalk, Grim said, and raised his voice. Who has some? Skip, called Stern. The little man hefted his long gun onto his shoulder, dug in his pocket, and came out with a lump of chalk, which he tossed to Grim underhand. Grim caught it and turned to the cat. Miss Cat, he said, if you're willing, perhaps we can work out exactly where we're going so that we can take the most appropriate steps to deal with the situation. The cat regarded him intently and then nodded once. Thank you, Grim said. I propose to have you pace out the length of the tunnels in question relative to one another. Not at full length, of course. Perhaps one pace to every thirty you would take were you actually walking through them. I will follow you with the chalk and sketch the tunnels you show me on the floor. Felix grunted. Then we compare the sketch to the map. Precisely, Grim said. The cat seemed to consider the idea for a moment, then rose and turned away from Grim with an impatient little growl. She began walking, her head tilted at a bit of an angle, and Grim followed her, marking the spirestone floor with chalk. The little cat walked for several moments, and Grim followed her, hoping that he didn't look quite as preposterous as he felt, following the creature around on his hands and knees until she turned to face him and sat down once more. He rose, his wounded arm aching, and regarded the chalk lines. Well, Felix? The verminositor lifted his map and peered at it, and then at the drawings on the floor. I don't think that... No! Wait a moment. This section, here. By God in heaven, look, it lines up well enough. She must have walked all around their perimeter. They're here, in the middle. Grim regarded the portion of the map soberly. Four ways in, four ways out. Mrow, said the black cat and shook her head. Grim arched an eyebrow and eyed her. Less? She nodded. They've blockaded tunnels. She nodded again. Which, please? Grim asked. The cat paced over to an intersection of chalk lines and pawed at the floor. Then at another. This one and this one, Grim said, thumping a finger on the map. They cut down the approach to two tunnels and left themselves two ways out. Your men take one, Felix suggested. We'll take the other. Grim looked up and arched an eyebrow. Down tunnels they've prepared to defend. We'd pay a heavy price and never get to the prisoners before they were killed. What then? Felix demanded. Their only chance is for us to get in fast and hard, find the prisoners and get out again before the enemy can react properly. We need to go in from a direction they do not expect. He pursed his lips. Coin toss may be the best we can hope for. Mr. Stern. I skip. The lean young officer came forward. I trust that you brought the blasting charges we acquired from the Aurorans in Habble Morning. 
Stern gave Grimm a wide, hungry grin.